This is Chris. Welcome to the new Sunday special. It is Generation X Lapsed, Episode 1. And, uh, well, it wasn't always going to be uh, Generation X Lapsed. Uh, In fact, when we wrapped up the last one, I turned it over to our great friends over at the Facebook group, over at 90s X-Men, to see if anybody had any suggestions for where we went from here. And... I got plenty of really, really good suggestions and things that I was planning on getting to, but uh, I I liked hearing that people were interested in hearing my takes on certain stories, so uh, I was really looking forward to getting that all in motion here. But alas, um, I recently moved, and my comics are in several different locations right now. So a a lot of those suggestions I... I just didn't have the uh, the issues handy to take a look at and to cover. I'm sure I would in a few weeks, but for right now, I just don't. Um, the Sunday special I was planning on going with was going to be one I was quite excited for. It was going to be Mr. and Mrs. X Lapsed, where we were going to take a look at the Rogan Gambit miniseries that went into Mr. and Mrs. X. Now, that's a couple of stories there, or a couple of series that I was really looking forward to getting to, um, and one that I have been collecting on the uh, on the down low, I guess. Every time I come across an issue that I need, I just grab it, you know? It's not like a priority, and I don't have the entire uh, series, but I certainly had enough to get started, and uh, I had quite a bit of optimism here, considering it was uh, Kelly Thompson, who we enjoyed so much during our recent uh, dig into Deadpool over on the main X-Lapsed program. She's also the creator of Jeff the Landshark, so I mean, of course, I'm going to be all about a series that uh, she's at the helm of. Um, unfortunately, like I said, the collection is is just spread <laughs> spread to the uh, corners of my life right now, and I don't have them handy, and as they have been comics that I've been picking up kind of piecemeal as we went along... Lord only knows where they're at, and as much as I'm looking forward to doing this, I really couldn't justify uh, picking up what my good friend Walt Nealon calls convenience copies of uh, the Gam- of the Rogan Gambit and uh, Mr. and Mrs. X. I've got them. <laughs> I don't need to have more than one of each, so we will get to that before long, but for now, we're doing a book that I actually have access to, and it is... 
Volume 2 and the Legacy Era, Generation X, which let's talk a bit about Generation X here. Generation X is a very important title to me. It was, uh, as I mentioned time and again, um, when I came up in comics, the Generation X book came out uh, right when I was A, in the target audience for the book, and B, when I was uh, basically aged as a cohort to the uh, stars of the book here. I was 14 years old when Generation X number one came out, and it really spoke to me. It was just a really fun, like, traditional comic, but at the same time, it did feel a bit uh, ahead of its time. I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, Chris Pachalo, one of my favorite artists of all time, was just killing it on that book. Scott Lobdell, probably one of the main reasons I'm still doing this. It was, uh, it was, you know, they created this these, this team together and uh, they crafted the book for, I want to say, probably two years or so before handing it off to, I believe it was James Robinson who came in after that. But it was around this time that I was, I was gone from uh, the X books. I had left shortly after uh, the Age of Apocalypse. So like the things like the tail end of the Lobdell Bachalo run and the Robinson run, those were things I I only experienced after the fact. But uh, I do want to talk about some of the hype around the original volume of Generation X. It was the first time I'd ever heard the, the term Ashcan. And, uh, I mean, now I think a lot of us uh, fake-ass comics historians know what ash cans are, but I remember they actually advertised the Generation X ash can edition, and it would show up, like, in Wizard magazine. So it felt to me like it was one of the more um, far-reaching ash cans. It wasn't just a... It wasn't just a limited to a couple hundred printings. It was something that was kind of out there. I don't think it was quite as plentiful as a regular issue of a comic, but it wasn't as rare as a lot of ash cans might be. And it was the first time I'd ever heard that it, there, there was a thing called an ash can. And uh, I actually went, boy, um, almost 30 years before I found it. I actually just found the Generation X ash can about a week ago as of this recording. I found it for like $2, <laughs> which, I mean, really speaks to how valuable it truly is. But... It still tickled me, and it, and I, it, I, I screamed on the inside for seeing it because I'd never, I never thought I'd have it. It was just one of those things that I always wanted, but never. I, I guess I never really put the effort into getting it, and uh, I was happy that by happenstance I came across it. And uh, I mean, there isn't much to it. There really isn't. Uh, there's not even a story in there, from what I can tell. It's just a, uh, it's just a list of the characters, a little bit of an explanation on who they are. Still, you know, really, really happy to have it. Um, but the hype around Generation X was huge because we had, we were in the era of the annual X Men event, just kind of like we are even to this day. And there was one called the Phalanx Covenant, and that was going to introduce this new generation of uh, mutants. And of course, considering that this was 1994, uh, everything had gimmicked up covers, it had. We had these cardstock covers with a band of just kind of, it's, it's foil, but it was like, it looked like phalanx skin, I guess, for lack of a better term. And all the X-Men books had this for a few months. And I, 
As a completionist, I grabbed just about as many as I could, probably all of them. Um, I don't think any of these I got after the fact, but I, I did get all of them, which probably explains why not too long after this I left <laughs> comics collecting for a bit uh, due to burnout from the gimmick covers and the overpriced uh, sort of special editions. With the Phalanx Covenant, I actually felt as though I was on the ground floor or something, and on the ground floor of something very special. And uh, it just really just fueled my interest for this ongoing uh, that was going to come out. And, I mean, speaking of gimmick covers here, I want to say Generation X number one might be the first ever Chromium cover that I ever owned or ever saw or ever knew about. I mean, we've seen the foil, we've seen holograms, we've seen die cuts, but Chromium was different. I, I mean, if you've seen the cover to Generation X number one, you know... It, it's really something to look at. Um, it's shiny, it's glossy, it's really, really sharp. And uh, this is before, of course, you know, Age of Apocalypse, where we had X-Men Alpha, which was also a, uh, a Chromium cover. But Generation X number one came out about a half year before that, what, four months before that? So that might actually be the first Chromium cover that I ever owned. I don't know what the first Chromium cover that ever was was, but... I'm pretty sure this was my first, and I, I was so excited to have it, and I, I still love that issue. It's one of my favorite issues of all time. Uh, just such a such a good time. Uh, it always reminds me, and I've said this before, it always reminds me of fall, of autumn, you know, and uh, that's my favorite time of year, and it, it always just, it hits me right where, right where I need to be hit, I guess. Um... Now, I've left, of course, but I came back during the Larry Hammer run, which sucked. Oh, it was rough. Um, folks who have, uh, folks who are knowledgeable or have experience with Generation X, you know about the Larry Hammer run and how, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say all the, the boilerplate um, cliche uh, complaints here, you know, there was the polka, of course, and that was very unpleasant. I loved the art during it. But the story was just like, what in the hell am I reading here? And uh, I, when I came uh, on board, Hammer was, he was kind of on his way out. And I might be conflating my timelines here, but I think uh, Jay Faber, or Faber, I think he came on after Larry Hammer. And uh, it felt like a real return to form for the uh, book. And it made it feel like... We were reading about kids at a school again. It, it felt like the New Mutants, even. And at, by this point, I'd already looked a little bit at the New Mutants, whatever I could find in a bargain bin, because this was still the mid to late 90s, where people thought every single issue of the New Mutants was uh, worth a whole load of money. <laughs> so I'd have to grab whatever I could in whatever condition I could. But uh, the uh, Jay Faber run just felt a whole lot like a traditional uh, superhero school book, a mutant school book, and I really, really enjoyed it. It was very interesting in that during that run, um, they opened up the Massachusetts Academy to human students, which was an interesting uh, change in dynamic. It was a very uh, teenagery book where we did have like love triangles. We had uh, Chamber and Husk. Just breaking up, getting back together, breaking up. It was a really good time. It was really, really fun. But uh, I guess sales just weren't what Marvel wanted them to be. And, I mean, this was around the time 
where uh, Bob Harris was uh, was shown the door, and we had Jemison Casada come in. Where, I mean, they were throwing the entire pot of spaghetti at the wall and, and seeing what would stick. You know, they wanted every everything had to be up in the air. Everything had to change. This is around the time where Thunderbolts changed from its classic, you know, he, villains being heroes sort of a sort of deal to like a Fight Club uh, situation, which was really really rough. Um, Things were just changing, and uh, Generation X got swept up into its own little uh, fiefdom with uh, some of the, uh, I guess, some of the lesser viable, lesser money-making X-Books in X-Force and X-Men. They were swept under Warren Ellis's uh, plot mastering in a group called Counter-X. And uh, this was a... I don't want to say it was dramatically different, but it was very different. It was maybe it was dramatically different. It was definitely different from what came before it. It felt kind of like a, for lack of a better term, like a vertigo light. Uh, you had X Force turning into like almost like a Wetworks team, and it was it was just like a black op. It was just really not not good. That was probably the weakest book of the line. Uh, X-Men changed very, very drastically from just a bog-standard superhero book to uh, making Nate Gray like this mutant shaman, or shaman, however you say that word. But kind of high concept, kind of interesting, probably benefited the most from the Counter-X shift, where Generation X was kind of in the middle, didn't change all that much. It was still kids at the school. Um, I think there were no... There might have been human students there because I think there was like some sort of a uh, riot or something or something that kind of played into some of the fears from Columbine. If I'm I'm remembering correctly, and I may not be, and I apologize if I'm not, but uh, it was still a school book. And unfortunately, uh, the Counter-X books didn't last uh, all that long here. Uh, with things like X-Force, it was a mercy killing because then we had uh, Milligan and Allred come in and do their little uh, their little dance with X-Force, which would turn into ecstatics after several months, and that was a lot of fun, uh, very, very fun. And uh, I don't know if I can call it underrated because I think anybody who read it liked it. Um, but uh, maybe... I don't even know if I should say lesser known because I'm pretty sure anybody listening knows what Ecstatics was or is. I don't know, but uh, a fun book is what I'm trying to say. X-Man went away and we wouldn't see him again for quite some time. And then Generation X went away and kind of, it was, this was when Grant Morrison came in. And I think Generation X was going to be a redundancy since, uh, Morrison's run was about changing the school into a much bigger thing, right? So things in New X-Men, you had classes, you had Zorn and his special class, you had all these new students, all these new young mutants. So Generation X was kind of a, a redundancy. Now, of course, there was a legacy of Generation X in the main X-Books. We had uh, Chamber uh, join the Uncanny X-Men uh, team, the Joe Casey team there, and... Uh, they used him to uh, fall in love with a Britney Spears stand-in or something, and then he kind of just hung out in the background. But uh, Emma Frost, the uh, you know headmistress of uh, of Generation X, the Massachusetts Academy, she went on to bigger and uh, better things, I suppose, 
as uh, just one of the mainstays of new X-Men and then just in the X-Men in general, uh, even to this very day. Banshee, the other headmaster of the Massachusetts Academy, would, uh, well, do some pretty unfortunate things in Uncanny X-Men. But uh, I think, uh, I mean, this was turn of the century, and I think a lot of us were, and this is just me projecting here, but I think a lot of us felt like we were too smart for all those 90s things, you know? So mainstays like Jubilee would kind of just go away for a bit. And the Generation X concept really wasn't mentioned a whole heck of a lot. Any t- I mean, and we've talked about this on the main x Lab show, where we talk about um, how the New Mutants are almost like fetishized, you know? The nostalgia for the New Mutants is something that um, I think speaks to a lot of folks, uh, both professional and, um, you know, just the fans. Uh, anytime there is a... A relaunch of a young X-Men book or a young mutant book It's more often than not going to be a New Mutants title And it's more often than not going to feature the classic New Mutants characters Where characters from Generation X are they, like we see in the current one Or I guess the first arc of the Hox Pox run We had Chamber and Mondo Kind of just standing off to the side while the New Mutants did their thing And I thought that was a really cool thing to add Because it showed that there is a difference in the generations, right? You have uh, the New Mutants in a group hug And Chamber and Mondo are just like the odd men out And I thought that was cool commentary in a way But I was hopeful that it would would, would lead to something, right? Uh, Maybe some prominence for... Our or my our Generation X characters who really just don't get as much play as they should. But let's go back to 2017. It's announced. Uh, I think it was. I think it was like called Resurrection with an X. Of course, <laughs> this is. Uh, I want to say around the launch of Blue and Gold and Weapon X, all new Wolverine starring you know X23, all those books that made me uh, run for the hills basically. Uh, they announced that Generation X would be making a comeback, and I. I was filled with a little bit of trepidation at the thought of that. Um, now, I can appreciate fan service and callbacks and continuity porn. I, I love all that stuff. That's, you know, my bread and butter as it comes uh, to being a comic book fan here. I love callbacks. I love be- feeling rewarded for my tenure as a reader and a collector and a fan. But when I saw that Generation X was coming back, I, I wasn't sure I wanted it. Um, I felt like Generation X, and this is you know purely me projecting, maybe being a little territorial. I like them being in the past because I feel like, and this is going to sound so entitled, but I feel like they're kind of mine. You know, people of my vintage who who are coming up during the you know bombastic speculation era and uh, managed to survive <laughs> and come out the other side. And remain fans I feel like Generation X as a concept Kind of belongs to us And I mean, of course, this sounds very, very entitled And I fully appreciate the fact that it does But in 2017 um, Marvel was basically telling me That I wasn't needed anymore My money wasn't needed anymore At least that's the way it felt I feel like Marvel was chasing the moviegoer Rather than the comic book fan Even though 
I mean, the moviegoers, they're, they're not coming into comic shops, and they're sure as hell not dropping four to five bucks on a, on a 16-page pamphlet. They'll go to the movies, they'll buy the toys, they'll play the video games, they'll get the t-shirts, but they ain't coming for the comics. And unfortunately, it felt like Marvel was pandering to the moviegoer rather than rewarding you know, the people who have been here. And so seeing a concept or a title like Generation X, which I held and hold so dear, being brought back during a time like this, that made me worry a little bit, made me... Made me wonder exactly who who this book was aimed at. I mean, Generation X as a just as a term, as a cultural term, it doesn't mean anything anymore, does it? I mean, as far as like naming a team that um, that's a little bit past its sell by date, and that was one of the things that I think a lot of people thought when Generation X launched back in '94. It's like, I mean, this is <laughs> this is a weird title to give a book because. It has to be right now. It can't be. This can't go on forever. It's a cultural term talking about people at a certain point in their life right this minute. And I suppose, I mean, we could say that new mutants are no longer new after issue two. <laughs> you know, it's much less issue 100. But I don't know, it just feels like um, Marvel wasn't quite sure who they were reaching for with this book. Because clearly... You know, if you see Generation X, you're you're looking at the older fan. You're looking at the grown-up. But the way this is written, well, it's uh, kind of not. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna take a look at it. Uh, how about we look at it right now? I quit my yapping at least about this, and I start yapping about the issue. Let's get right into it here. This is Generation X, Volume Two, Number One. It had a July 2017 cover date. This is before legacy numbering came back, but had there been legacy numbering, this would have been LGY number 76. This issue has no title. I wish it did. I hate it when they don't, but it doesn't. Written by Christina Strain, with art by Emil Garpina. Colors, Felipe Sabrero. Sabrero. I'm, I apologize. Letters, VCs Clayton Cowles. Edits, Chris Robinson, Daniel Ketchum, Mark Panizia, and Axel Alonso. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale May 17th of 2017. Now we open with a roll call and credits. Now the folks we're going to be paying attention to today are Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and Eyeboy. Few of those characters I do not know, but we'll meet them today. Now we open in Central Park, where Jubilee is looking for Shogo, who has gotten away from her. As she searches, she threatens to put the tot on one of those child safety harness leash gimmicks there. Uh, we can see that her old friend and teammate Chamber is there, helping her on the hunt here. He tells her how much she's matured since the days of her being a mall rat, which is a little fast and loose with their relationship, since when they met, Jubilee would pretty much take every opportunity to, like, big-league her teammates since she was tight with Wolverine and actually was an X-Man. Anyway, it's kind of necessary exposition for the direction this story is supposed to go, and since nobody cares about continuity anyway, we can allow it. Now, by this point, Shogo has popped his head out of the bush he was hiding in or behind, and Jubilee snaps him up. Shogo tugs at Chambers' bestest scarf, uh, which reminds us that you know, Jono is uh, missing the bottom portion of his face and upper part of his chest. 
And this also leads to a little play on words regarding a chamber being exposed or exposing chamber. It's, it's fine. The two friends then part company as Jubilee is late for an appointment. As she walks away, her narration talks about how things change, and she makes sure to give us a glimpse of her vampire fangs for good measure. It's not long, I mean, it's a single panel later, that she arrives at the Xavier Institute for Clowning and Sandwich Artistry. I mean, she was already in Central Park, so it's not not all that long a trip. Now, our point of view now shifts to a new character, Nathaniel Carver. I will uh, evidently come to know him as Hindsight, if the roll call page is anything to go by. He's a somewhat preppy-looking sort who uh, completely stole my haircut. Um, Unfortunately, the color, too, because his hair is almost completely gray. I thought for a moment this was, you know, ultimate Quicksilver, but it's not. Now, he arrives at Xavier's and has a look around him. Uh, He doesn't seem completely sure what to make of the place. In fairness to him, the array of characters he's seeing right off the bat is, uh, well, eclectic, to say the least. He sees Brew... Ernst, No Girl, Rockslide, Evan Apocalypse, and Glob Herman wearing glasses because he got tired of uh, putting contacts in. Now, while paying attention to all of them, he runs right into Phoebe Cuckoo. And this was back when the remaining cuckoos all had different hairstyles so we could tell them apart. And Phoebe here is a redhead, and for a moment, I thought she might be Teen Jean Grey or maybe like Hope in a schoolgirl outfit. I don't know. Anyway, they bump into one another, and when they touch, Carver can see into Phoebe's past. Now, this tells us that Hindsight's powers are psychometry, or psychometry, however you say that. I'm taking it to be something akin to Rachel's uh, chrono skimming that she's currently doing in X-Factor. Now, Phoebe doesn't take too kindly to this, and they have a contentious little exchange. After which, she introduces him to his new t- his new classmate, Benjamin Deeds. He's who we'll be calling Morph, probably because when Bendis created him, he didn't realize that the Morph from the X-Men animated series was already retconned into being the Changeling. Now, Deeds comes across kind of nebbish, and I gotta say, even even his name kind of annoys me. Um, Benjamin Deeds. Every time I see his name, my mind goes back to those horrendous Gail Simone Gus Beezer one-shots from around the turn of the century. Just, ugh, awful name. Anyway, from here, we shift scenes into headmistress Don't Call Me Kate's office, where uh, she's meeting with Jubilee. Now, if it isn't clear from the story thus far, Jubilee is here to take on a mentor role at the school. Kitty all but tries to talk her out of it, uh, citing that Jubilee's got a lot on her plate at the moment. You know, with the baby and, you know, being a vampire. Jubilee assures her that she's fine, though she is quite out to lunch at this point. She nearly feeds Shogo a bottle of blood. (sighs) It's weird to think that Jubilee's carrying around a sippy cup full of blood, but I guess that's just the world we were living in back in 2017. We go back outside. Carver and Deeds start to get to know one another, and Deeds accidentally and involuntarily morphs his face to look like Carver's. More or less to show us what his powers are, I would guess. Carver suggested it must be very helpful for using dating apps, which is something that Deeds never even considered. Their chat is thankfully interrupted by Bling smashing through the wall right next to them. You see, she'd been hurled through by Quentin Quire after scuffing his very expensive shoes. 
Just then, QQ is attacked by ducks, courtesy of Nature Girl, who is flanked by iBoy. So I, I guess the gang's all here. Um, we've come a long way since the days of husk, sink, and skin, haven't we? A long way down, that is. Um, they all fight for a bit, until hindsight tackles Quentin out of the way of some falling debris. Quentin doesn't take too kindly to this, and so he socks our POV character in the mush. This skin-to-skin contact activates Nathaniel's psychometry powers, and so he can see into QQ's past. Quentin, as you might imagine, doesn't appreciate this either. Now, while he's distracted, either Bling or a duck manages to knock him on his butt. The art is kind of unclear here. Quentin then finds himself at the feet of Kitty Pride, where she's got one of her feet phased and literally up Quentin's ass. She threatens to solidify if the boy gets up, which is, you know, a sort of brutality I didn't think don't yet call me Kate acquired until the current year Marauders stuff, but what are you going to do? Now, while Kitty lectures the group, Carver's all F this noise, and he nopes out of the whole Generation experience. Kitty dismisses everyone except Choir, who is left to clean up the mess, which, I mean, it includes, you know, fallen lighting rigs and, like, a big hole in a brick wall. I'd figure this might be at least a two-man job, but he's screwed. Now, while Quentin broods, we can see that he is in the sights of someone holding a pair of binoculars, and we'll get to that before we leave. But first... We gotta do that thing where our new mentor character chases after the newbie who decides to quit in order to talk them into staying. And I swear, we've seen takes on this exact same scene play out like dozens of times in the X-Books already. Um, I mean, was it Skin who noped out of the original Generation book for like five or six panels the first time around? Yeah. Naturally, it doesn't take long for Jubilee to get Carver to do that thing like, you know, where you, like, rub the back of your neck to, like, physically show that you're thinking about something, you're considering things. So he's doing that. But we don't get a chance to get an answer yet because the millennial Gen Xers are then attacked by the Purifiers. And, uh, well, if that doesn't make you want to pick up the second issue of the series, I don't know what will. But... That's where we leave it. So, let's talk about this. Um, I could have sworn I'd read this, because uh, I think I cited this as one of the reasons why I ran away from the X-Books the first time around. But uh, in my older age, you know, I am probably about three or three and, three and change years older than when I first read this, uh, I thought maybe I'd appreciate it a little bit more. Um, I did not. I didn't hate it. But uh, I really wasn't too big a fan of it, and there are a few reasons why. Um, I've been picking this book up, uh, just kind of like I mentioned with the uh, the Rogan Gambit books. I've been picking them up, but I haven't been prioritizing them. And it turned out that about a week ago, um, I think it was the same day I found the ash can, I got the last issue of this run that I needed out of a uh, out of a fifty cent or a dollar bin, and. It was actually the final issue, which I think is number 87, which we'll be getting to in like 11 weeks, I guess. But uh, I always look at the last issues because I, I like to see if there's any sort of um, any sort of note from the creators there. You know, uh, even though this is long, 
gone. I always try to see if there were any plans for any of these characters, like if they make a note, it's like, oh, you can follow these characters in this book, or this character in this book. Or maybe like, hey, keep writing Marvel, maybe they'll bring us back. I always like to see what kind of a note we get. And the note we did get, I mean, it was a very heartfelt note by Christina Strain, but it said something that didn't inspire a lot of confidence, in that uh, she says she was approached to pitch a teen uh, mutant book. And I mean, that's all well and good. I mean, editors are supposed to do that kind of thing, but that tells me that this wasn't really a passion project. I mean, I have very, very few rules about content creation as a fake-ass content creator myself, but I like to think that if you're creating something and you're expecting someone to invest time, money, effort, uh, heart into um, whatever it is that you're creating, that uh, it should be something you're passionate about. And, I mean, there's no right or wrong way. This is just me being me. But I would like to think if someone had a Generation X story they needed to tell, that they would go to an editor and say, hey, I want to write Generation X. I want to write this new take on Generation X, rather than be approached by an editor who just says, hey, you want to do a teen book? Just figure it out. (laughs) I mean, that just uh, doesn't inspire a whole lot of confidence in me. Another thing, and this was from some research I did on the early issues of this series, I read, and I mean, I don't know how true this is, but uh, I did read in a few different places that uh, the writer had to be pretty much brought up to speed by the fans about some of the recent goings-on in some of the cast's life, uh, like Quentin Quire showing up in Thor. Um, I would like to think that if you're writing a comic, you know what the characters were up to uh, just a couple of months before your comic comes out. And I mean, we all come from different places. We all have different levels of uh, buy-in on on comics and the fandom and the industry. But that just doesn't inspire a whole heck of a lot of uh, confidence in, in how this book is going to go. I'm hopeful and optimistic that I'm wrong. And this issue wasn't wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad issue. It was just a very tropey boilerplate first issue of an X Men comic. I mean, we could have played, you know, issue one bingo here. We get a point-of-view character who really doesn't know what to make of things. That same point-of-view character considers quitting and has to be talked into staying. We've got the cliffhanger. We have a fight that breaks out for a silly reason. It's... It felt very, very samey. These characters could have been pretty much any character. It didn't matter which X characters these were. They were just bodies occupying space, you know? Um, And again, we're just one issue in, so I I don't want to make any, you know, snap judgments and just declare that I'm going to hate this or I'm going to love this or whatever. I'm still on. I'm still on board because this this is a series that I want to read. Generation X is, as I mentioned, very, very important to me, and it always felt weird to me that there were issues of it that I didn't own. And that's why I've been putting a little bit of effort into grabbing this second volume and then the uh, tail end of that legacy run that went to a mighty three issues, I think, after their legacy numbering came back, which is another thing that doesn't inspire a terrific amount of confidence in uh, how this is going to go. But I'm going to be open-minded. I'm going to be as optimistic as possible, and we're going to take it as it comes. 
I hope that uh, there are folks out there who want to come on this journey with me or just relive it vicariously through this program. And if you do, I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, on this series. And also, your thoughts on Generation X Prime, you know, the original run. Uh, I know we have some pretty big Generation X fans out there, uh, like our good friend Jesse D. Young, who might be the biggest Generation X fan that I know. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that series and this series. Maybe tell me a little bit about your history with this franchise, how you were introduced to them, if you stuck around the whole time, and if you enjoyed this second run, because I hope I do. I hope I do. Um, And and it's weird, because I'm reading this because... Basically, I want to know how Jubilee um, lost her vampireness, and I hear that it's in this series that it happens. So I would like to see, I would like to experience firsthand how that uh, works itself out. I, I think the Phoenix is involved, but I don't, I don't know exactly how. So that I'm looking forward to. I hope you are as well. And here's to uh, twelve or so weeks of Generation X lapsed. Now, uh, if you'd like to uh, write in and chat with me about anything in the world, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk with us on Facebook. The little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that will do it for today. I want to thank you all so much for joining me on this new venture, this new extended, I guess we can call this a maxi-series, since it's going to be about 12 episodes long. So it's not a mini-series, it's a maxi-series. So I hope we're all on board for this, and hopefully we'll survive the uh, Generation X experience. Oof, that was bad. I apologize. Um, Anyway, (laughs) thanks again, and as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Yeah.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode two of Generation X Lapsed, where, uh, well, I think this is going to be a short one because uh, there really isn't a whole heck of a lot to say about this issue, unfortunately. Uh, let's hop right in. This is Generation X, volume two, number two. It had a July 2017 cover date, written by Christina Strain, with art by Amilcar Pinna. Colors, Felipe Sobrero with J. David Ramos and Chris Sotomayor. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Edits, Robinson, Ketchum, Panizia, and Alonzo. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale May 31st of 2017. Now we open with roll call and credits. Now the characters we will be focusing on today will be, uh, well, not limited to these names, but uh, I guess they'll be the primary focus. We got Jubilee. Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, I won't do a woo, uh, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. Now we pick up sort of kind of where we left off last issue with Quentin Quire cleaning up the room that he and Bling destroyed at the end of last issue. And he does so in a very Quentin Quire sort of way if we're doing the, uh, you know, inch deep, mile wide Quentin Quire. He puts furniture on the ceiling. He uh, crafts a great big sign on the wall that reads, You Suck. Really neat stuff, huh? And uh, like, I, like I said here, it's like this is the quickest and dirtiest that we can get on this character. It's kind of shallow. Um, anyway, he exits a classroom and runs into Brew, who he tells that he thought would be dead by now and expresses great disappointment that he's not. So, oi. Uh, Brew is ushering students into the library as he calmly informs Choir that the purifiers have taken the school under siege. Quentin is pleased by the news because it means he can go kick some butt. We shift scenes to the outside, where several members of our student body, I'm not sure if we can call them Generation X yet, or I suppose ever. Um, Now, anyway, the students are fighting with the purifiers, who seem to have worse aim than a stormtrooper or a bad guy on the A-team. Now we see Chamber, Shark Girl, and Grey Malkin dutifully dodging the bad guy's blasts. Jubilee is just standing there holding Shogo. Headmistress Kitty, in her ridiculously ill-fitting skirt, runs off after telling Jubilee to round up the other students at the library. It's worth noting that they keep calling Jubilee Jubes here, which really annoys me. Um... It feels kind of obnoxious, like it's something they really want to see stick. And, uh, no, I don't like it. I, I guess maybe that'll be our big Gen X Volume 2 takeaway that we now call Jubilee Jubes. I, ugh. Um, anyway, Kitty runs away, and Jubilee hands Shogo over to Bling to take to the library. And then, Quentin Choir shows up all full of P&V and ready to dole out some punishment. But first, he stops to mock Jonas Greymalkin. But instead of making fun of him for being a horrible character, he chooses to mock him for his skin tone and lack of tan. 
Then Quentin uses his hoodoo to make the purifiers hit themselves, which is apparently a great big no-no. Jubilee orders him to stop because the purifiers are people, not toys. Oh, come the F on with this crap, really? I mean, they... We'll, we'll talk more later. Quentin's like, okay, fine, fine. I'll have them stop punching themselves, and instead I'll have them shoot themselves. Jubilee and the gang just stand there with exaggerated, shocked looks on their pusses, and uh, Jubilee makes sure to show us that she indeed has vampire fangs. Let's shift scenes to the library, where the rest of our cast is there with the humans that they're keeping safe in the library. Now, I don't know if this means that the Xavier School of Botany and Beekeeping is now integrated to include human students, or if these were just poor unfortunates who happened to be touring Central Park when this all went down. I'm guessing it's the latter. I also guess it doesn't matter. Now, one of these humans is rather off-put being quarantined with the mutants, so he's probably not a student. He decides to take out his aggression on Xavier's cross-eyed janitor. I'm not sure if this is someone I ought to recognize, but I don't. Uh, It's worth noting that this human asshole is your average preppy jock white kid, because of course he is. Now, he shoves the janitor who bumps into hindsight, which triggers hindsight's mutant power, you know, where he can see things. It's kind of like Rachel's chrono skimming. We talked about this. We don't get to see exactly what it is that he sees, but he sees something. Then Bling threatens the jock, and, uh, well, he backs down, because of course he does. Hindsight makes sure the janitor is okay. He then reconnects with Morph and... Bling. Why does she have an exclamation point at the end of her name? Uh, He, Nate, Hindsight that is, is apparently so new to the mutant culture that he doesn't appear to realize that uh, humans hate and fear them. I mean, that's kind of on the tin, isn't it? I mean, that's got to be engraved on some sort of sampler or tablet at the school, right? Ben Deeds tells him that he'll get used to it. I mean, has he never, ever heard of human and mutant relations before? Okay. Just then, a purifier busts in the library to liberate the humans from the mutant menace. To which, Nate gives us some millennial speak. You know, rather than crapping his pants at the sight of a Liefeldian Mark 69 gun being aimed at his face, he instead comments that, quote, nobody actually talks like that. You know, because this purifier called them the mutant menace, so... Okay. Um, Back outside, Jubilee jumps on a purifier, and I'm guessing this happens before the bad guys get the opportunity to shoot themselves, though, honestly, I don't even care. Grey Malkin slaps Quentin, which is apparently enough to stop the Omega-level mutant. Okay, then. Now, the student body rounds up the purifiers. However, Jono realizes that there were only 14 here... When he originally counted 15. Well, I'm sure glad he has that much attention to detail when he's in a siege situation. Maybe he should be leading this team. We jump back inside where the rogue purifier is blasting the fish in a barrel and still missing wildly. I mean, do we have to do this? If we have a threat, right, and his only the only thing he's got is that he has guns, shouldn't they be better at this? Uh, okay. Now, while the baddie doesn't hit any of the kids, he does manage to hit the table where Nate Carver's Magic the Gathering cards were all spread out. I'm not kidding. Um, Now, to this, uh, Nate whinges that the deck that he spent years putting together has been destroyed. This is pretty bad. Um, 
Nature Girl then runs by with a skunk and sprays the purifier in the face. <laughs> I mean, that might sound like something I'm, I'm making up to joke and poke fun at this, but that is actually what happens here. Unfortunately, it doesn't seal the deal for the good guys. Instead, the purifier uses another gun to fire an electrified net at her, which, if the art's to be believed, renders her into a two-dimensional entity. I mean, the art, the art is kind of iffy to begin with here, but this scene in particular is quite rough. She actually looks flat, like she's like from the Paper Mario universe here. It's, uh, it's something. Uh, the purifier then net, nets Bling's wrist, um, and it looks like he's about to land a killing blow when Chamber busts in and blasts him with fire, which is uh, just so much more humane than Quentin Choir just blowing their brains out. Jubilee then launches into an attack, knees the guy in the face, and then KOs him with a sock to the mush. We wrap up, thankfully, with Jubilee assembling her new team. She claims that they're going to be doing things different than usual, and then proceeds to do the same thing all young X-Men have done since there were young X-Men teams. Quentin scoffs at the whole deal, stating that, you know, they're only doing this because none of them will ever be good enough to be real X-Men. Now, this seems to really bother Bling, who asks for a little clarification. Jubilee assures her that Quentin is talking out his ass. But honestly, are any of us waiting with bated breath for any of these characters to headline a flagship X-Book? Anybody? No. Nate Carver, hindsight, our POV character, informs Jubilee that he wants to stay at the school. Not in hopes of becoming an X-Man, however, he just wants to learn how to control his powers and then go on to live a normalish life. We close out the issue with Benjamin Deeds approaching Quentin Quire for some small talk. Quire calls him an idiot, and it looks as though he's planning on having a little fun with him. Now what form that fun will take? I guess uh, your guess is as good as mine. So, um... Hmm... You know, I figured I'd go into this and be like, you know, this is just a little too current year for me, right? I figured that would be my big complaint, which that all comes down to being a Chris problem. If you're familiar with the main X-Lapse show, I do break challenges I have with these books down into legitimate gripes and Chris problems. I assumed that this entire run of Generation X Volume 2 and Into the Legacy Volume was going to be just rife with Chris problems. And don't get me wrong, it is. But it's also not. Um, this just isn't very good. I hate saying something like that. I mean, everything is subjective, but there was not a single bit of this that I enjoyed. Um, I mean, Chris problems aside, this just this is just boring. It's boring. It's clunky. I feel like it's trying to say something, but I, I'm not sure what. I mean, let's look at the scene where Choir has the uh, the purifiers hitting themselves, right? Seems like a relatively innocent thing to do, right? You know, just like a kind of a bully move. You know, they come in with guns, he just has them punch themselves. Okay, I mean, uh, if anything, he's being a little too easy on these guys, but Jubilee has to stand up and be like, no, they're people. And I get what they're going for. I just think it's very stupid. Um, I, I, I think they're trying to make a point here. But part of me wonders, like, what would have happened if Shogo didn't make it to the library? What would have happened if a purifier blew poor Shogo's head off? I wonder if she'd still be, you know, 
you know, worrying about their rights as people. And I mean, don't get me wrong here, Quentin's a dick. We know that. That is like, that's like line one of his Wikipedia entry. This character's a dick. <laughs> and we're used to it. And the th- what he was doing was a bully move. It was a dick move. And um, at the same time, though, like... These these purifiers were coming in to kill people. They were coming in to blast. You know, we can see from the how awful a shot any of these characters are. They didn't care what they hit. They were indiscriminately shooting. <laughs> they were just blasting. They didn't care if they hit a mutant, a human, a squirrel. It did not matter. So having Quentin Quire swoop in and be like, "Hey, punch yourself in the face a bunch." I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I don't think that's that big a deal. I think that's kind of an, an okay response. If anything, it's it's a bit of a benign response in, in comparison to what we're getting there. Now let's talk a little bit about some current year problems here. And I'm not talking about things like millennial speak. I'm not talking about things like that. Uh, let's talk about just the the direction that this comic is going and how it really reads like just about every team book that has been launched from Marvel, or DC for that matter, for the past 10 years. I feel like we're going to be spending a lot of time putting this team together and having them like sort of learn to coexist. And we know that this series is only going to run 12 issues. Which, I mean, that's kind of the Marvel method right now. I mean, (laughs) we talk about the Marvel style and, and... how that was a thing back in the day with the artist and writer working in collaboration and stuff like that. The new Marvel style is launch a team book, spend the entirety of the volume having these teammates you know, get to learn each other and work together, then cancel the book. And I feel like that's the direction we're going here. We have sort of a team, but judging from up- upcoming covers, it looks like we're going to be in for a whole lot of fan service from the original volume of Generation X. So I don't know what this team is going to ultimately wind up looking like. So I feel like we're just going to get several issues of team building, and then they're going to just pull the rug out from under us. The only thing I know that happens at the end is that Jubilee is no longer a vampire. <laughs> that's God's honest truth, that's the only reason we're reading this, because I wanted to find out how that happened. And uh, me being the completionist that I am, I... Couldn't just read the, you know, the one issue where it happens. I'm assuming it's either the last issue, the issue before that, or the issue before that. I don't even know which one it is. So we'll all be surprised together. Well, you know, I mean, those of us who haven't read this before, I guess. But all that to say, um, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in this series. And I hate saying that because some of these characters I really, really enjoy. Uh, Jubilee is, uh, you know, she was my Kitty Bride. She was my point of view character as I was growing up and becoming an X-Fan, you know. She was the one who was like us, being in awe of all these incredible characters with amazing powers. She was us. And uh, I, seeing what they've done with her is, uh, (laughs) it's kind of rough. Chamber, another great character, uh, Quentin Quire, despite being a dick, is a great character. He's a fun character, but... I guess context is king, and the context of this book just really, really, I just... Just don't like it very much. Uh, let's talk about um, some other more current year observations here, because this is probably going to be slotted under Chris problems here. I'm getting the impression from the end of the issue here where Quentin and Benjamin Deeds are kind of talking, and Quentin kind of alludes to having a little bit of fun with him. And I'm getting the sneaking suspicion that uh, the, the direction this book is headed 
we're just going to have all of our Generation X team members here coupling. I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking we're just going to have... It's going to be like that uh, Marvel Now Young Avengers where uh, like rather than actually focus on superhero stuff, it was just like, who's kissing who? Who's dating who? Who's dating who now? And that really isn't what I want from a Generation X book. I mean, I'm all for romance in the comics here, but I feel like I feel like that's going to become the primary focus. And I mean, that's just something that I've long had a problem with because I feel like it's chasing a non-existent audience. And that's something we've talked about on other shows on this channel where uh, Marvel and, and DC both, they seem to be in hunt of the elusive new reader. And they go about it in the most dunderheaded sort of way here. They, they try to appeal to folks who don't want to read comics by putting stuff they think they want in comics into comics. <laughs> and it just doesn't seem like a uh, very uh, fruitful outcome has ever come out of something like that. I'm sure exceptions exist, but I don't know. I'm just not very confident about this. And, I mean, there there's like no subtlety in this writing. So I'm guessing if that is the direction we're headed, it will be done with very little subtlety. Uh, we're going to be hit over the head with anvils and hammers and every sort of blunt object until we... Uh, Either submit or abandon the project. Now, I, we won't abandon the project. We will keep going here, and we will try to be optimistic. I know we are headed into the legacy numbering eventually. Hopefully that'll see some sort of a return to form. And like I said, there is going to be some fan service here. I think I saw M on the cover. I think I saw Husk on a cover. So maybe we'll uh, we'll get some of that old Generation X feeling um, back into this book here. But as as we stand two issues in, not a fan. Not a fan at all. And rather than repeat myself for the next ten minutes, I think I will just cut it off here. <laughs> um, I look forward to your thoughts. Uh, those of you who are following along, uh, please let me know what you thought of this volume of Generation X. Let me know if you thought it improved as it went along. Let me know if you uh, read it the first time through or if you're just discovering it with me right now. And uh, definitely feel free to reach out. Uh, you could find me and follow me on Twitter if you'd like. I'm at Ace Comics. Or you could shoot me an email over to, where are we? WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. That's where we are. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You can find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. And you can listen to all the stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But that'll do it for today. I do apologize for coming across probably a little bit more negative than than you're all accustomed to. This just uh this this book just really ain't my flavor unfortunately. But I guess not all of them have to be. But uh, I would like to thank you all so, so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll be talking to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode three of Generation X Lapsed, where, uh, well, if you've been following along, you'll probably know that this has not been one of my favorite projects up to this point. But, uh, hey, you know, third issue's the charm. Isn't that what they say? I think that's what they say. Third issue's either the charm or when they decide to cancel a book uh, or retroactively call it a miniseries. Uh, let's see if... The third issue of this second volume uh, does the trick. Maybe we'll dig it. Maybe we won't. But let's get into it. This is Generation X, Volume 2, Number 3. And it had an August 2017 cover date. Written by Christina Strain, with art by Amilcar Pena, with Robert Poggi. Colors, Felipe Sabrero, with Nolan Woodard. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Edits, Robinson, Ketchum, Panizia, and Alonzo. Cover price, $4. This one went on sale June 14th of 2017. Now, as we always do with this book, we open with our single-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, and our characters today will be Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and Eyeboy. So, same as it ever was. We kick off our story here in a Central Park Zoo where Nature Girl is chatting up a seal. Eyeboy and Nate Carver are watching this play out, and the former is shocked. Shocked, I tell you, to find out that Nature Girl can actually speak. I didn't even realize this was ever in question. Uh, I could have sworn she even had a few lines over the last couple issues, but I guess not. Um, Now, she's chatting up the seal all about the poor trees that got shot when the purifiers struck over the course of the last couple of issues. Anyway, when asked, she says that uh, she chose not to speak because she had nothing to say to him. Which is, I I guess that's kind of ice cold, huh? Uh, Nate then tells iBoy to never assume that an Asian girl is mute. I gotta ask, is that a thing? Like people assuming that Asian girls are mute? Uh, I don't know. Uh, She then hops out of the seal... uh, Well, it's not a cage. Uh, It's not a tank. Wherever the hell they keep the seals, that's what she jumps out of. Uh, She is then alerted via the wind and the trees that there's been an attack nearby. And so the kids rush deeper into the park where they happen across Face. You all remember Face, right? 
He was that Inferno baby with the great big, like, mirror-looking button instead of a face that the New Mutants found in Limbo or something like ten years ago? Uh, Anyway, he's been attacked, and he's out cold. Nate asks Lynn if her tree friends can tell her who did this, to which she says that to trees all humans look exactly the same. Dangerous. Oh, gag me. Um, We shift scenes over to the Xavier Institute for Animal Husbandry and the Occult, where Bling is running on a track. I didn't realize that the Transplanted Institute had a, you know, track and field sort of a setup here, but all right. Anyway, she runs into Chamber. Now, he mentions that seeing her jog reminds him of uh, someone that he used to know. Because of all the people he's ever known... He's only ever seen two of them jogging. He is, of course, referring to his ex-girlfriend, Paige Guthrie, who liked to jog. And I'm pretty sure they still know each other, too. I mean, hell, she's probably hanging out somewhere at the very same school, right? I don't know. Anyway, Bling informs Jono that she'd like to switch teams, commenting that Jubilee's team will never grow into actual X-Men. Jono tells her that there's a reason why she's on Lee's team, and for now, that's where she's gotta stay. I gotta ask, who's on Jono's team, then? Uh, We haven't seen him yet, right? Uh, I mean, we really are going full Academy X here, aren't we? This is quite a bold new approach at uh, training the next generation here in this book. We shift scenes inside the Institute, where Ben Deeds and Pixie are playing some video games. Now, Pixie is winning, naturally, because girls can video game. Quentin Quire is nearby, and he's quite annoyed, and so he jams up Pixie's buttons so that she loses to Deeds. An argument nearly ensues, but thankfully, they're interrupted by the arrival of Nature Girl and the boys. Uh, Also, Face is draped over the back of a uh, deer. Next, we know we're in a huge hospital room with a single bed in it. Danny Moonstar is trying to see whether or not Face has the death glow. And uh, since she can't see the death glow, she suggests, yeah, he'll probably be okay. Call Me Jubes comes in to ask if the kids saw anything. And, uh, I mean, we know they didn't. But uh, I guess that's a good try at being in charge there, Jubilee. Uh, iBoy suggests that Quentin use his hoodoo to scan Face and try to solve the case. I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but here we are. Uh, Quentin reminds the gang that Face is blind, deaf, and mute. So there's uh, precious little he can do for him. Quentin then offers up Hindsight, Nate Carver, whose powers might better paint them a picture of exactly what happened. We know that when he touches people, he has sort of a similar uh, power set to Rachel's chrono-skimming power, where he can kind of see what went down. Nate Carver refuses to do it. He will not invade someone's mind without their permission. QQ is all, isn't that the whole reason you're here? You know, meaning to learn how to use his powers? Nate still refuses, and Jubilee backs him up, claiming that Nate is allowed to work at his own pace. Quentin, the only person in this book with any sense, walks out. We next shift into Headmistress Kitty's office, which sounds like a setting for an adult movie. Headmistress Kitty? Anyway, she's still wearing a very ill-fitting power suit and skirt combo. And I gotta say, if you can't draw one of these and make it look right, don't. <laughs> Maybe just put her in different clothes. Uh, Kitty suggests that it might be time to enact a curfew. I guess we are to assume that Face was assaulted late at night. 
She then asks Call Me Jubes and Chamber to head out to investigate. Just then, however, Shogo sneezes. So Jubilee, assuming this single sneeze means the baby's got tuberculosis, backs out. Danny Moonstar agrees to join Jono for the investigation. As they go to leave, Chamber tells Jubilee that she probably ought to check in on Bling, because uh, she might have something she wants to say to her. Elsewhere, Nate is helping the janitor Andre from last issue carry his mop bucket up a flight of stairs. Ben Deeds shows up, because why wouldn't he? Nate tells Andre that he's going to teach him how to play the Marvel equivalent of Magic the Gathering the following day. Andre seems wildly excited, which is to say, not really so much. He's just like, alright. Ben then tells Nate that Face woke up, to which Nate flips the F out. He thinks that Deeds is here to twist his arm some more to do his hoodoo on him. Ben's all, nah, dude, just calm the F down. I'm just letting you know he's okay. Or recovering, I guess. Nate apologizes for his overreaction, and uh, this was a great use of a handful of panels. Ben is cool with it, and reminds our POV pain in the ass that it takes a while to acclimate to Xavier's. He even cites Andre the janitor, a human, as evidence that eventually this place will become home. Nate then informs Ben that Andre is no human. He's actually a mutant. And to which a handy and very unexpected editor's note informs us that Andre's story occurs in something called Wolverine Saudade. Okay, this is a mature reader's one-shot from November 2008 cover date. Worth noting, according to the Marvel Wiki, this here is Andre's final appearance. So we'll never know how good he is at playing, you know, collectible card games. Anywho, Andre was a street kid who couldn't control his powers, and it rendered him lobotomized. Nate explains that when he touched Andre and learned all of that, he also kind of experienced it. Which is why he's so hesitant to touch Face. He doesn't want to actually live what Face went through, which... Okay, uh, that actually makes all sorts of sense, doesn't it? That makes sense. Nate then states that, uh, after some muddling, that Quentin was right. Uh, Somebody better put that on a t-shirt. You know, Nate is here to learn to better use his powers, and he should have tried using them to help face regardless of what he might experience as a byproduct of that. And so, that's exactly what he's going to do. Now, it's worth noting that Carver is drawn sometimes as wearing a pair of gloves, kind of like Rogue would, so she wouldn't accidentally make skin-to-skin contact. And I like that. Unfortunately, it's not in every panel. Um, they, they, they gotta be a little bit more careful about that if they want this to, you know, kind of stick as a, a thing and a character-defining little visual for uh, Nate Carver. And I only noticed it because there's a panel of Nate removing the glove very dramatically before touching face. And I was like, hey, he's wearing gloves. So I flipped back to see if this is something I should have noticed. And, well, yes and no. Sometimes he wears them. Sometimes he doesn't. I don't know if it's a coloring error, an art error, or just a lack of attention to detail. I don't know. So, after getting permission, Nate touches Face. What he sees is basically the quick and dirty of Face's origin story and how he came to arrive at Xavier's here. We know he was an Inferno baby, and they experimented on him, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later. Then, the uh, memories fast forward a bit to, like, you know, yesterday or last night or whenever it was that he was attacked, and we see that he was attacked by a weird two-dimensional shadow critter 
who escaped into a crack in the sidewalk. And uh, if you see the cover of this issue, there is a shadowy uh, humanoid form in the background there, so it's probably that. Nate hugs Face, who thanks him for helping him communicate his experience. QQ's all, okay, so how about you tell us what happened so we can go deal with it? And so Nate does. The kids who are present, who are comprised of, well, conveniently enough, the cast of the book, decide to break curfew and take matters into their own hands. And I gotta say, it's actually a much funner scene than I'm explaining it to be. It's actually a pretty cute scene. I liked it quite a bit. We wrap up with Quentin leading our kids out of the school while proclaiming them all to be losers. And, uh, well, he's not wrong. Worth noting, this final page is kind of evocative of Frank Quitely's uh, new X-Men uh, costume designs here. Except for Eyeboy, who's wearing like an odd take on Cyclops' Jim Lee costume. You know, the one with like the straps, the belts over his shoulder and stuff? It's kind of weird, but um, the rest of them are very reminiscent of uh, Frank Whiteley's work here. It's a, it's, it's a neat little visual, but that is where we leave it. So how about we talk about it? It's still not great. It's still not great, but this issue was far more like it. Um, I like this one best of all so far. Granted, that's not high praise, but I do intend it to be praise here. This was, uh, I didn't... I didn't not enjoy this. I, I thought it was a pretty good time. Here we've got the kids acting more like kids and less like, you know, cause of the week Twitter users. <laughs> You're not the type, right? Um, I was pleased to learn a little bit more about our POV character, okay? We get some pretty neat nods to Rogue's involuntary power set. I thought that was pretty cool here where he's wearing gloves. That's a nice callback. I really appreciate that sort of thing here. We also get a better idea as to why Nate is so trepidatious when it comes to using his powers, right? That's all well and good. Now, I gotta talk about something that's not not so much part of the book itself here, but something that Reggie and I would always talk about this as we would uh, discuss recently launched books here. Uh, if you're familiar with Reggie and my work, we did a full examination of every single issue to come out of DC's Young Animal imprint back in 2016 through 18 or so. And uh, we would talk about a lot of things, you know, the the quality of the book, whether or not someone could, uh, you know, approach this book, uh, how someone might receive and enjoy a certain book. And uh, we had some books that had some very unpleasant characters in it, or just characters that you wouldn't really want to root for or you wouldn't be invested in. And by the time we would get invested, we would always kind of temper our our uh, softening to on the book by reconciling just how much skin we had in the game. You know, here, uh, we waited three issues to reveal this bit about Nate Carver, which puts us $12 into the story before we actually begin to care. And I guess, And again, that's assuming that we've begun to care here. I mean, that's not a Gen X problem. That's not a Christina Strain problem. That's just a current year comics written for the trade problem. Because when you buy the trade, it really doesn't matter how long it takes for us to start caring about a character, so long as you do by the end of the six-issue you know, spread that the uh, trade is covering. But here we are halfway into the what I would assume would be the first of two Generation X Volume 2 trades here. And it's only now that it's like, oh, okay, I kind of get this guy. I kind of understand why he is so unpleasant 
or why he's so nervous about using his powers. It's not bad storytelling, it's bad comics. You know, it's bad comics pacing, because we should have cared about this. And I I can only speak for myself. So if Nate Carver and Benjamin Deeds jumped off the page at you when you picked up Generation X Volume 2 Number 1, and you loved them and you wanted to know everything about them, hey, that's great. I didn't share that experience. I'm only now getting a little bit of an understanding as to what Nate Carver is here to do. Now, Ben Deeds, I could I could give a rat's ass. I don't really care about Benjamin Deeds yet. But let's put a pin in Nate Carver for now and look at some of the rest of our cast. From the presentation of this book here, you would assume that Jubilee is uh, like your focus character here. I mean, she is probably the most identifiable uh, Generation X character that maybe outside a chamber, just because he's so, you know, striking in his design. I think Jubilee is who a lot of us associate Generation X with. And so I think, again, I can only speak for myself here, but I assume that she'd be playing a much bigger role in this instead of just holding baby Shogo, which unfortunately is her character now and has been. It's either she's a vampire holding a baby or she's a former vampire holding a baby. And that's kind of all that they do with her now. But I do wish that they maybe pay a little bit more attention to her here. I, I can compare this to, and this is almost embarrassing to <laughs> admit, but I am a huge fan of uh, Beverly Hills 90210, the you know the old you know 1990ish show. Huge fan of that show. Uh, it's a guilty pleasure of mine, and I was over the moon psyched when I found out that they were doing a. Uh, like a reboot, or maybe not so much a reboot, but like a continuation of it, like a next generation version on either UPN or the WB or whatever, CW, is that what that? One of those teeny bumper channels, probably around 2009, 2010 or so, and I was so psyched and I sat down to watch it and I saw like some of my, you know, some of my era's characters show up. And they were there for a little while, and then they went away. And it was all about these new kids. And it's like, I don't care about these kids. I want to know about, you know, Dylan and Kelly. What the hell do I care about these high school students? You know, I, I didn't. And here we have Generation X here, where I see Jono for a minute. And it's like, oh, cool. I see Jubilee for a second before I realize she's holding a baby. And it's like, hey, great. But then they're just gone. And it's these characters that, outside of Quentin Choir, I really... I have absolutely no reason to care about it. And that's a sad thing when Quentin Quire is the most relatable character in a book. And I, I mean, what does that say about me that I'm relating to Quentin Quire? But maybe it's just that uh, he's as frustrated and annoyed with these uh, goofy kids as I am at this point. Uh, let's talk uh, Bling, or Bling, if you uh, prefer. Now, her story uh, in wanting to change teams from uh, Jubilee's sort of benchwarming team to, I I suppose, Jono's uh, on-deck team. I I suppose Jono's team is probably going to be more likely to become X-Men. I I like that as a a character development for her, not being satisfied with uh, being in, you know, Zorn's special class, not not being in Spider-Man's special class. She actually wants to uh, make something of herself and make an impact on on the team. I can appreciate that. Unfortunately, my main takeaway from that scene was like, ooh, I wonder who's on Jono's team. (laughs) You know, I really didn't care whether or not Bling was going to be changed to his little squad. 
I was more interested in finding out who he's training. I guess that's something, <laughs> which is better than nothing. Um, Nature Girl, refusing to speak to iBoy. Um, when we talk about the Hox, Pox, Docs, Rocks, uh, X-Force, sometimes I'll say that it feels like Ben Percy came up with a really cool line he wanted to use and then writes backwards from that line because he really wants to use this line because it's clever and witty and it's going to make people laugh. So he has to get there. So we get this like really, really hackneyed, sort of inorganic path that we take to get to this one line that's supposed to just really knock us over. I got a similar feeling here with the uh, Nature Girl scene here with uh, that wrapped up with Nate saying, never assume the Asian girl's a mute. I don't know what that means. I, I'm not a worldly fellow. I mean, I, I've been very upfront about that, but I don't know if that's something that I was supposed to, like, recognize, or was it just something that I was supposed to say, yeah, that sounds clever enough. Eh. It really felt like they were trying to get to that line, and it, that very seldom works, and uh, I don't feel like it worked all that well here either. I like the use of face uh, for, the, uh, for the victim here because... Uh, honestly, it's been so long since I even thought of face. It's nice seeing these nods to uh, to just these obscure characters. And it was nice seeing bits and pieces of his origin because honestly, I'd forgotten most of it. I, it was you know it didn't take me long to get my memory jogged, but uh, I really liked seeing that here. And I think he was probably a perhaps the perfect character. For this, in that it facilitated uh, Nate Carver's, um, you know, trepidation to to kind of come out and be verbalized. So that worked really well, and I was very pleased with the way this issue ended. Here, it was a very cute few pages where they're talking about, you know, taking this matter into their own hands here, but they're nervous about the the uh, curfew, and uh, like Ben Deeds is like, okay, you guys, you guys go, you guys have fun, and Quentin's like, hey, you're coming too. It was it was just pretty neat. I liked that a bit. It made me feel, like I said, it made it feel like these kids were kids and not memes or, you know, social media users. They were just kids, and they wanted to take care of this. They wanted to prove their, their you know, their merit. I like that. And I'm actually, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm actually looking forward to the next issue, which uh, I haven't been able to say to this point. So that's a good thing. That's a very good thing here. I'm coming out of this one far more positive than I thought I would. So that's a very good thing. Uh, we'll just talk a little bit about the art before we cut out of here. I, I you know, I, I generally don't comment on the art unless it's really, really great or really kind of, eh. This was neither. This was in the middle here, but there were some panels that I didn't like. Um, one thing that kind of skeeved me out a little bit, um, iBoy is uh, not really so much presented as a guy with a bunch of eyes on his face, but he looks like he's got a really, really painful skin situation, like a really bad acne, which just was kind of kind of skeeved me out. Maybe that's the point. <laughs> Maybe that's the point. If that's the point, then well done. But uh, I think that's where we'll leave it for today here. Uh, coming out of this one, far more positive than any of the prior two issues here. Can't say that all the characters are growing on me, but a couple are, and I'm excited to see what's to come here. So we are back in the optimism seat here, so that's a that's a good thing. Now, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the direction that this uh, series is going here. Please feel free to hit me up and chat me up 
You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can talk to us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can listen to all the audio, thousands of hours, over a thousand hours of audio at the Chris and Reggie channel at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available on all your noise aggregation devices and applications. So you can find that. You found us now, so you know where to find us if you want more of that. But that'll do it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing some time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode four of Generation X Lapsed, uh, an episode that uh, very nearly didn't happen. Um, if I were to go into the events of my day, um, I think uh, many of you would think I was crazy for even bothering to put this episode together, but here we are. Um, neither rain nor sleet nor Whatever the hell I went through today uh, is going to keep us from doing what, uh, you know, the thing, the thing that we do. So let's uh, let's hop into some GXV2 here and uh, see what we can see. 
This is Generation X, Volume 2, Number 4, had a September 2017 cover date, written by Christina Strain, with pencils by Amilcar Pinna and Martin Marazzo, inks by Roberto Poggi and Martin Marazzo. Colors, Felipe Sobriero, letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles, edits, Robinson, Ketchum, Shan, Benizia, and Alonzo. Cover price $3.99, went on sale July 17th of 2017. Now we open to our normal full-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. The characters we're going to be paying attention today include Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. Now we open in Central Park, you know, where else, where the kids are trying to seek out that entity that beat up face last issue. Now, much of our narration for this issue will be coming to us from Bling, starting with her reflecting on the time she realized she no longer had, you know, actual skin and instead was, I don't know, foil embossed or whatever her, uh, whatever her uh, makeup is here. Now, Quentin interrupts her inner monologue by asking her to put up her hood. You see, the moonlight is reflecting a glare off of her shiny self, and he finds it both annoying and distracting to the mission at hand. Nate, Nate Carver here, he leads the crew to a tunnel under some rocks. I gotta concede, it's been a minute since I've been to Central Park. Are there really just, like, a bunch of catacombs there that people can, like, freely enter? Seems a little dangerous. Um, Now, the scene shifts to the Xavier Institute of Air Conditioning, Heating, and Refrigeration, where Call Me Jubes and Danny Moonstar are having some drinks. I thought Danny was out looking for the kids with Jono. That's how we... Ended last issue, right? Oh well. Now we learn here, and well, I learn here, this might be common knowledge, that uh, Jubilee can no longer get drunk, seeing as though she's all vamped up. And uh, I'm not really big into vampire lore, so I don't know if that's like an established trope of like, you know, Dracula's or something. I, I really don't know. Now the discussion goes from drag queens to Jubilee's students. Now you see, Jubilee is over the moon with how well these kids are coming together. That makes me feel like either A, we've missed an issue, or B, Jubilee is completely out to lunch. She laughs about the curfew that Kitty had enforced uh, last issue, and she thinks back to her days as a young mutant in training. She says, you know, back in the day, she probably would have snuck out, which prompts a light bulb to go off over her head. Now, it's worth noting here... um, What was the thing that caused that dude's face to melt off in that uh, Indiana Jones movie? Like the Ark or the Grail or whatever it was. The art here makes it seem as though Call Me Jubes and Danny have both looked at that thing. They're very, very melty. So they run in to check on the kids. They first stop at Quentin and Benjamin's room, and it's empty. Then Roxy and Lynn's, also empty. Finally, Nate and Trevor's, and duh, it's empty. So that was a great use of an entire page. Uh, Danny tells Lee to hand over Shogo and go find her kids. And uh, she must already be in on the gimmick of Jubilee using the baby as a reason to not actually do anything. So, there you go. We hop back to the cave or the catacomb or whatever it is, and the kids watch as cockroaches and rats run away from them. In formation, even. They're very, uh, they're like soldier-esque here, the way they run away. Boy asks Nature Girl if she can ask the rats for some help. To which, she says that rats always want something in return. I mean, what could that be? Cheese? I mean, it's a small price to pay to find out who attacked Face, right? Eh? 
Uh, Nate is distracted by the sound of someone calling his name. Now, it's soon revealed to be Phoebe Cuckoo trying to get a bead on their location. Quentin decides to ixnay this psychic connection by concocting some construct tinfoil-esque hats, which are able to jam the Cuckoo's abilities. Now, Ben Deeds is not uh, cool with this, and he suggests that maybe they just head back and face the music. Roxy, however, won't have it, claiming that if they go back, they're done. Ben reminds her that done is better than dead, and asks, you know, what exactly Bling has to prove here. And she goes into a spiel about never becoming a real X-Man, and says that it's really the only option for her, and she's not okay going back to living among the humans. Just then, a two-dimensional swirly shadow being appears behind her, and, as if the cover hadn't already spoiled it, it's... Monet. Uh, well, Monet as possessed by her brother. This is M-Plate. Uh, not M-Plate, E-M-P-L-A-T-E, but M-Plate. M-Plate. Get it? Like, Monet was M, M-Plate. Uh, now this, I want to say, uh, occurred during one of the last X-Books I was reading before Running for the Hills. Maybe that uh, weird... Uncanny X-Men volume that was more like an X-Force book Back when, like, Extraordinary X-Men was kind of the flagship of the line Ugh, What a confusing time to be an X-Fan Now it's alluded to here that Bling has already had a run-in with M-Plate before Though I can't speak to that Now Quentin lashes out with some flying psychic blades Monet manages to stop them and actually redirect them right back at QQ Piercing his right shoulder He's shocked Shocked, I tell you, at how much this hurts. Stands to reason, it's a blade. M then uses her disgusting hand mouths to go into Roxy's ears and starts sucking on her marrow. This allows her to replicate Bling's powers. Uh, it also appears to allow her to make the art for the rest of the issue really fall off a cliff. And it uh, really wasn't my favorite before this point. Bling, in particular, looks like Bart Simpson for the rest of the issue. Uh, the rest of the characters sort of look like Frank Quitely's work if he was, like, being electrocuted while he drew. Now, M flies toward the rest of the team, and we're told that her face lights up like faces. The art sadly doesn't show us this, it just shows a tremendous burst of light. Now, this appears to do... Well, nothing, actually. Uh, Quentin tries to get Monet to do the whole stop-hitting-yourself thing, which appears to be his go-to for this series... And it's uh, not all that effective. And in fact, M is able to reverse it, causing QQ to start punching himself. Just then, iBoy throws his shoe at her. Seriously. Uh, just then, when it would appear as though Monet is going to go for the killing blow, the cavalry arrive in the form of Jubilee, Chamber, and Pixie. At least I think it's Pixie. She's drawn... To, more to look like Gert from the Runaways with wings here. Uh, for a moment, M-Plate's veneer cracks, and it looks like she might just be about to come back to her senses. Before she does, however, she blinks out of the area. She's gone. Now, as the dust settles, it's revealed that, even though Phoebe had her connection severed, she was able to, you know, get a bead on the kids here, at least point Jubilee and the gang in the right direction. Uh, Jubilee then picks up Bling Simpson and carries her out of the tunnel, I guess uh, that strength is one of the perks of being a vampire. Next we know, we're back in that hospital room with one bed from last issue. So I guess face has been released then. 
Colmy Jube starts reading Bling the Riot Act about her recklessness. She cannot understand why it's so important for Roxy to be an X-Men, as it's really never been up to this point. Jono asks Lee to give him and Bling a moment alone. Now here's where the Roxy-flavored narration comes around. She tells Chamber that she wants to, well, well, no, she needs to be an X-Men because of how she looks. She can't go back to living among humans. It simply isn't an option for her. And she knows that Jono can relate to and understand that. She asks why her mutation had to change how she looked, and she begins to cry. She and Jono embrace. We shift scenes over to the foyer, where Jubilee is laying into the rest of her squad. Nate steps forward to take the blame. After all, it was his, you know, using his powers on face that led them to heading into that tunnel. And here's where Jubilee has an about-face. She says she's not sure whether to be ticked off or really proud. The team starts having a bit of a love-in, and it is quite cringy. And uh, Quentin comically walks away from this uh, this little you know group hug. He's all, you know, F this noise, and he bounces. And I tell you, what does it say about me that Quentin frickin' Choir is the only character in this book that I can relate to and the only character I'm actually rooting for? Now, Jubilee tells the rest of the gang that they're going to have to start working smarter, otherwise they're going to end up dead. We close out the issue with Jubilee making a uh, Bloody Mary? It's a blood cocktail in any event. Uh, it looks like she's using one of those, like, those weary, you know, hand beaters to blend some strawberries into it. Uh, the whole thing looks very, very foul. Now, Jono's here, and they recount everything that just happened. Jubilee can't believe they're still dealing with the St. Croix siblings after all these years. Jono reminds her that, uh, hey, you know, Monet is one of them, and it's okay for Jubilee to feel conflicted. Jubilee takes us out of the issue, uh, vowing to kick Monet's ass. Which, eh, okay. That's where we leave it, so let's talk about it. Now, I gotta say, right off the bat here, that the second two issues of this volume of Generation X were worlds better than the first two. I mean, that's kind of damning with faint praise. Um, And still, uh, despite the fact that I enjoyed these last two issues a whole lot more than the first two, um, this still isn't my kind of book. Um, First, and, and most importantly, it's just not fun. This isn't fun to read. I mean, there there can be silly stories. There can be stories that are, you know, from a different generation than I am that I can still have fun with. Uh, I mean, we talked on the main show about uh, Gwenpool not too long ago. Very silly book that, it, like, pings all the red flags that say, you know, Chris should not like this book, and I absolutely adored it. This just isn't fun. None of these characters give you a reason to want to root for them. Now, this is the problem that I have with these, as I've called them in the past, I call them Alvaro teams. Now, now that, and I've, I've said this before, but if you're not aware or if you're new to the show, this is what I call weird and random teams, uh, relating to all those old, like, fantasy book your dream X-Men team forum posts over at the old Alvaro comic boards that I'd see probably around the turn of the century. Now, these posts would always start out in earnest, you know, the honest question here, but they would quickly devolve into forum members simply trying to out-obscure one another. Hey, remember this guy? I bet you don't. 
And they, they put all these like weird characters together without any sort of consideration for how this team could possibly exist and tell interesting stories. It's just, hey, this is weird. Now here, in Generation X Volume 2, we've got a weird, quirky, and random team. The problem is, with very few exceptions, they're all way too similar in that they're all kind of useless, they're very milquetoast and mousy, and again, they're just not very fun to read about. Now, this might just be more Chris problems where maybe I am just too old for this sort of thing. You know, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I hate to break it to Marvel, but I'm, I think I'm kind of their main comics demographic here. So what are you going to do? Uh, let's jump over to the art. Uh, the art here, the, you know, Amilcar Arpina has never really been my bag. Um... But when we get past the staples in this issue, as I mentioned during the synopsis, it definitely falls off a cliff. Uh, the second artist, Martin Morazzo, he tries to keep the tone and style of Pinna, along with some notes of Frank Quietly, only it really doesn't work out. Um, it results in some brutally ugly characters. Uh, Bling Simpson and Gert Pixie are particular standouts. Um... The sequential storytelling of the art is mostly solid. It's just these faces and poses are a little bit rough here. Very, very melty. Um, now, for the story, I, I really can't speak to the current, or I guess as of this moment, uh, Monet situation. I know they made her relationship with her family even more complicated, as if that were possible. We know from reading the current year Hoxpox era books that she will ultimately get better. Not sure if she's the big bad for this volume of uh, Generation X, but I gotta say, if she is, I'm okay with it. Um, now, I mean, she's always been portrayed as overpowered, and now, under M-Plate's influence, she's quite the formidable opponent for this team, and further reason why this series should be called Generation X, instead of, like, New Young X-Men Academy whatever volume whichever, which, I mean... It very well could have been. Now, our main takeaway from this issue would be uh, Roxy and uh, her, you know, internal struggle here. We find out why she wants to be an X-Men, why she needs to be an X-Men, I should say. And, uh, you know, there's a lot that you can relate to there. And it's a lot that uh, it makes perfect sense why a character like Roxy, whose powers unfortunately also affected the way she appears... To need a purpose in her life, need a direction, and realize that if she were to, you know, rejoin, you know, just working alongside, you know, everyday normal folks, that'd be a rather, you know, tough road to hoe for her. That's going to be uncomfortable. That's going to be just not a pleasant experience. So I totally understand her wanting to be an X-Man here. And it also makes perfect sense why she would feel a sort of closeness to Chamber, considering his, you know, challenges with appearance and inability to blend in with just regular folks. So I, I like that. I think that's really well done here. Um, I like the concept of her, like, sort of, like, tough girl persona being, like, a defense mechanism, you know? Uh, not really wanting to tell her teammates exactly... The reasons why she, this is so important to her right now. Not telling Jubilee why this is so important to her right now because she probably figures that Jubilee wouldn't be able to relate the same way that Chamber would. So I really have no complaints with the Roxy story here other than the fact that she makes such good points 
that I want to see her go to Chambers' team. <laughs> I mean, she's got no reason to hang around with these goofballs on Jubilee's squad. Uh, she should be with Chamber. She deserves to be with Chamber. But um, let's talk about the uh, the geeks on Jubilee's squad here. The group hug at the end, or the, the little love-in, that was pure cringe there. And I'm glad that they actually kind of lampshaded it by having Quentin call it out and be like, no, not doing it, not doing the love-in thing here. It was like I was watching that episode of Saved by the Bell where they sang Friends Forever. It was a very, very cringe. It is weird that, uh, I mean, Quentin is being written in such a way that I think I think we're supposed to be rooting against him actively. We're supposed to hate his guts here. And again, like I said before, I don't know what it says about me, but he's like the only character in this book that I'm actually kind of rooting for outside of Roxy. But I'm rooting for Roxy to get out of the book, to go somewhere else where she could be uh, better utilized because this book ain't it. Overall, like I said uh, at the outset here, these last two issues, the... uh, the Shadow Monet issues here have been a whole lot better than the first two. The first two were phenomenally weak. Um, these two were a fair amount better and uh, actually make me a little bit optimistic for what's to come here. I'm hoping we do see uh, more of the conflict between the original Generation X members here. I would absolutely love it if the you know the young kids here would uh, maybe be moved to the back burner for a bit because... They're not terribly interesting, but I don't see that happening, unfortunately. I do know from the covers that we will be getting some more cameos from original team members here. I believe uh, Husk is there, and I'm guessing we'll probably be seeing Monet again. So looking forward to seeing how that all plays out. I hope you are as well, and I think that's where we're going to leave it for today. Agree, disagree, please feel free to let me know. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and it's growing by the day. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation devices and applications. And uh, that is where we'll close out for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing a little bit of time with me today. I really, really appreciate it. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Thank you.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to Generation X Lapse to Episode 5, where uh, we're going to break away from the entire team that we've been building over the past four issues and focus on... Well, we're going to focus on a couple of characters here, but it's, this is mainly a spotlight on one character, and if you're familiar with the cover of this issue, you could probably figure out who that is. So let's get right into it. This is Generation X Volume 2, Number 5, which had an October 2017 cover date. Written by Christina Strain, with art by Alberto Jimenez Albuquerque. Colors by Felipe Sobrero, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, edits Robinson, Shan, Panizia, and Alonzo. Cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale August 16th of 2017. As always, we start with our full-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. The characters we're going to be seeing here today are Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. Now, we open at the Xavier Institute of Lockpicking, Pickling, and Obstetrics, where Jubilee is, hey, she's actually doing something. I mean, she's not carrying Shogo. She's not blaming Shogo for her inability to do things. Uh, she's actually here. Well, she's kind of doing something. Uh, she's putting iBoy through a test of his 57 eyes by standing him before a bank of monitors, which he must watch to try and figure out who on those monitors is holding six colorful chips. Three red, three blue. Not that it matters. Now, on the screens, we see members of our team, as well as Chamber, Evan Apocalypse, Anole, Rockslide, The Cuckoos, and Don't Yet Call Me Kate. Now, Jubilee is sucking blood from a sippy cup, which almost sounds like a euphemism, but uh, eh, maybe not. Anyway, Trevor has managed to locate five of the six chips. Roxy's got two reds, Lynn's got one blue, Nathaniel's got a red and a blue. So, who has that last blue chip? Uh, Call Me Jubes tells iBoy that he's got less than a minute to figure it out. She then tells him that, uh, hey... This test isn't limited to members of his sad little squad. By God, he's got to check out the entire quad. So I gotta ask, uh, what exactly are iBoy's powers? Like, does he have all of Superman's eye-based gimmickry? Like x-ray vision, telescopic vision, all that kind of stuff? Or is he just a, a weird little dude with a bunch of eyes? I'm not entirely clear. Anyway, Trevor focuses hard and watches a scene of Ben Deeds chatting up Nature Girl. Then, Chamber walks by. Suddenly, both Jono and Ben are... nude. But they have their naughty bits, you know, cleverly covered up. But Trevor can see that Chamber has the final blue chip in his right pocket. He declares that Chamber's got the chip. Jubilee does the Regis, is that your final answer, thing before uh, telling him he's correct. Trevor bounces, all freaked out that he just saw Chamber's explosive nutsack. 
We rejoin him a little bit later on. Maybe it's the following day. Maybe it's the same day. Maybe it's several days or a week, year later. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Uh, He's in the cafeteria eating with his classmates. In the background, we get cameos from regular bits and pieces of X-Men wallpaper, including Pixie, Shark Girl, Glob Herman, Brew, Loa, and that one with the wings and blue skin. iBoy laments the fact that they're still under curfew, meaning that they can't leave the school after 6 p.m., which... That's a lot earlier than I thought it would be. Now, he comments that this makes him feel like a caged animal, to which Nature Girl says that that statement is offensive to her friends at the zoo. Oh, Lord. Trevor remembers what year it is and profusely apologizes. Nate then offers Lynn an apple. Now, here's the thing. One fell from a tree and the other was picked. She corrects him, claiming that one might have fallen from a tree, but the other... Jesus was murdered. Uh, get the... F- you kidding me with this? Come on. Uh, Bling then saunters up to the table to ask if anyone's seen her missing ring. It's got a tiger on it. Nobody's seen it. Boy suggests that it could be one of two things. Either she lost it, or it was stolen. Yeah, you think? I mean, this is Stan Laurel levels of deduction at play here. Anyway, after Trevor pipes up... Suddenly, everyone around him seems to lose not only their clothes, but their skin. You see, his eye powers are in super overdrive, and he's giving the entire student body a non-consensual x-raying. All but Nature Girl. But, uh, don't you worry, we'll get to the bottom of that soon, whether, whether we want to or not. But first, it's time for a montage. Now, we see Trevor in class, everyone around him, besides Lynn, are in x-ray mode. Then, he's on a couch with Nathaniel and Ben, who are arguing about the merits of 2001 A Space Odyssey versus The Ring. And all we see of them is their, like, hearts pumping blood. And we only know that it's them because the narration is so stilted that these goobers are, like, referring to each other by name during conversation. It's like, well, you see, Ben, oh, that's a good point, Nate or Nathaniel. It's very stilted. Later still, Trevor sees through a wall where Roxy is crying to Kitty and Chamber. Maybe about her lost ring? Maybe about something else? Who knows? She's been crying a lot lately. So, montage is done, and iBoy is afraid that his eyes are in revolt. He's then joined by Lynn on a bench outside the school, and everyone else around them is still just bones. He spills the beans to Lynn about his weird eye experiences, and informs us all that Chamber has, a, has Smith's lyrics tattooed on his hip, and also that he saw his wiener. Uh, Trevor is having a crisis, you see. uh, He already knows that people think he's weird and useless. And, I mean, he's mostly not wrong. But now he runs the risk of being the guy who's perving out on all of them while still being weird and useless. Just then, he sees a raccoon stealing Rockslide's wallet. I can't believe I'm not joking. So, uh, this is either the way Tom Nook got his start or something very stupid. I will let you make your guesses and place your bets. iBoy then runs up to Santo and asks where his wallet is. Um, Rather than asking Trevor why he's being so weird, Rockslide just assumes, after patting himself in the back pocket, that he probably just left it in his room. He doesn't seem at all creeped out by the question, though. I mean, maybe it's me. Um... I mean, if someone, even a close friend of yours, like, frantically ran up to you and asked where your wallet was, you might think that's kind of weird, right? 
I don't know, whatever the case, Santo notices that iBoy's eyes are really effed up right now and suggests that maybe he try and get some sleep. Lynn then tells him that she'll help him track down the criminal trash panda, and away they go. Along the way, we get guilted for being humans, because lest we forget, humans are the worst. Lynn asks the trees for help, which Trevor notices totally contradicts a previous story beat, wherein trees don't recognize humans because, you see, trees are racist or speciesist or whatever. They, they think all of us look alike. And lest we forget, we are also dangerous and terrible as well. But Lynn says a raccoon with a wallet is something a tree would notice. And I think we're going to need to compile a list of things trees might notice, like, uh, I don't know, a squirrel eating an ice cream cone, an armadillo reading a book, a kangaroo trading stocks over his smartphone. I, I don't know. Anyway, just then, the naked raccoon attacks. It's completely hairless, is what I'm trying to say, and it's worth noting that iBoy isn't just seeing its bones at the moment. Lynn attempts to communicate with the raccoon, but it's no use. And in fairness to the rabid beast, it does have a mouthful of wallet at present. Now, she grabs Mr. Raccoon, and uh, since we're naming him, I guess we could say that this is probably Mr. Raccoon's first appearance, so you should probably get this issue slabbed if you own it. Uh, She calls the raccoon bad, noinks the wallet out of its mouth, and finally, it screes about what's going down. This is like, you know, Timmy talking to Lassie here. Now, we learn that there's a rat king the so-called Animal Don of Central Park. And I can't believe we're spending an entire issue on this. Uh, Anyway, this rat king is forcing animals to steal money, electronics, jewelry, whatever is valuable out there. Now, iBoy suddenly gets this weird burst of inspiration. He climbs atop a large rock and performs the speech from, I want to say Braveheart. The, you know, they can take our whatever, but they'll never take our freedom. You know that one? I think that's Braveheart, right? Whatever the case, the animals of Central Park cheer him on with chirps, hoots, and chee 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 chees Next stop, the sewers, which I think is supposed to be an attempt at, like, juxtaposed comedy. Like, Trevor was all regal and brave a minute ago, you know, just really rallying the troops, and now he's trudging through a knee-deep river of human waste. He, Lynn, and a bunch of tiny beasts, including some very pink bunnies, make their way, when suddenly a strange song begins to play. This song turns all of the animals and Nature Girl against iBoy. Lynn growls a bunch while Trevor tries to shake these tiny animals off of him. As he runs, he winds up stumbling into the Rat King. Well, the shape of the Rat King, because iBoy's eyes are still eyeing. Now, the Rat King appears to be, I don't know, beatboxing this siren song? Uh, Lynn arrives soon after and punches Trevor in the face. At this point, iBoy's critical thinking and clarity begins to peak. He realizes that he can't see through Lynn because he doesn't understand her. Pretty profound, isn't it? Um, We'll we'll just go with it. Uh, Maybe then we won't have to think about it anymore. Now, this has taught Trevor not to overanalyze things. Even when his vampiric mentor is repeatedly yelling at him to focus, I guess? Um, And so iBoy is finally able to see the whole picture as it pertains to this Rat King. Sadly, it's revealed here that he's not beatboxing. He's just playing B.A.G. on his dollar store recorder. And uh, he also kind of looks like a dollar store version of the Mad Mod. It's worth noting. iBoy throws a rat at him. Oh, gee, I'm, I'm not kidding that he threw a rat at him. 
Now this releases Lin and the Beasties from the Rat King's control. Trevor then snaps the recorder in half, and an owl swoops in to completely destroy the Rat King's testicles. And no, I'm not kidding about that either. I guess that's all the punishing the Rat King needs, because it seems as though our heroes just leave him in the sewer to lick his wounds. Uh, Hopefully not literally. Now we wrap up with our pair agreeing to never discuss this little adventure. You see, Lynn is ashamed that she fell under the spell of the Rat King, and Trevor is ashamed that he can't stop thinking about Chambers' wiener. Uh, Before we go, however, Trevor, who apparently gained 250 experience points from this issue and is now level 4, has spotted Roxy's ring in a hallway. All's well that ends. Okay, so let's talk about this issue here. Um, I tell you, when I was about halfway through it, I assumed that I would... uh, have the, you know, second portion of this show just uh, ripping this issue to shreds here. But by the time we got to the end of it, I actually found myself rather enjoying it. Um, it works on a couple different levels here. Um, I-, I enjoyed the spotlight story on iBoy. And also I enjoyed just how easy it was to kind of make fun of it. It's not often enough we get issues like that. And, you know, I can't say that my... Observations or jokes are great or, or even good But with an issue like this They, they kind of write themselves and, and that's not a suggestion that they're in any way funny Or, or you know, novel in, in any way But uh, just easier to concoct Now in terms of this being a spotlight on iBoy I thought it was very well done I, I know very little about this character I've read his appearances in Wolverine and the X-Men early on um, But it's been like a decade since then uh, ever since then, all I've seen him in is X-Factor And that's, you know, something altogether different So I didn't really know what his powers are and, you know, even after reading this, I'm still not entirely sure I feel like they're very, um, I don't know, uh, convenience-based <laughs> I think his powers basically do what the story calls for him to do And that's not a that's not a bad thing I mean, he's a fairly versatile character in that um, he's not gonna he's not gonna be on the battlefield, but he can really really help out behind the scenes here. He's kind of a, a Doug Ramsey for you know the 2010s, I guess. Even though we already have a Doug Ramsey in the 2010s, I hope you know what I'm trying to say there. I appreciate that this was a lighter story. Like this wasn't like a massive coming of age story. Like I feel like, uh, and I'm trying not to say the word like over and over again. I just noticed that I am, but uh, <laughs> I feel like. Uh, usually, when they do stories like this, where there is a character who is useless on the battlefield and they have a coming of age, it's usually this big deal, right? Here, I mean, he fought the Rat King, and uh, I mean, they didn't even bother to bring him in to be arrested or, or whatever. They just had uh, they just had him succumb to some owl-based te- testicular trauma and uh, let him be as long as they broke his little recorder. So it was a silly story, but it still gave us uh, a bit of insight into iBoy. And it also gave iBoy um, some confidence as well as a little bit more insight into himself. He wondered throughout the issue why he couldn't see through Lynn. And, and while this is this is kind of cloudy, um, it's one of those things that we can accept uh, just to accept it. You know, someone he didn't understand he could not see through. Is that to say that he can understand it? Everybody else at the school? That seems kind of weird, right? I mean, he can understand someone like Chamber? I don't know. 
I think it's a very convenient sort of a gimmick here to allow for this revelation, but it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, and they didn't use this to have him save the world. He didn't save the entire team. He didn't save the school from blowing up. He broke up a tiny animal mafia racket. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't a huge deal here. Let's uh, jump back to the beginning of the issue here, where Jubilee is putting him through his paces. Um, I feel like she was uh, really showing that she's not prepared to be a mentor, in a way, here. She was... Really, really riding him hard, right? You know, counting down the seconds that he had before he could uh, find this final chip, while at the same time making it clear to us that she wasn't um, she wasn't completely transparent in what the exercise was going to be about. Uh, we see that he was led to believe that he was only going to have to uh, scan members of his squad, but no, it's the entire school she's expecting him to uh, to scan here and. Not telling him that until he only has like what forty nine seconds left till the ex till he fails the exercise. That's that's not a really good way to to mentor or teach. I mean, is it any wonder that poor Trevor's eyes went all you know wonky and uh, overpowered for a, for a bit there? He was stressed out. He was being forced to uh, to scan the entire school within less than a minute to find a stupid chip. Which, if Jubilee had explained that to him beforehand, um, you know, might have <laughs> might have lessened the uh, the stress on the poor kid. I think that uh, I'm trying to think back to Jubilee's time training. I don't think she was ever really uh, pushed quite this hard. I, I think it was just like, okay, you paff, 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 and you're good. So yeah, a really bad showing for Call Me Jubes here. She is not a great mentor, <laughs> and I worry for her team here, her little squad. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is, uh, as far as the story is concerned, is Nature Girl. Wow, what an annoying character she is. Um, and, I, and I feel like, I, I mean, she's not a bad character. She's just annoying in that I think we all might know someone who's kind of like that. Where, you know, people who drop those truths on you that are obviously true, right? So you can't tell them that they're wrong. So it's like... Okay, you're not wrong, you're just kind of a jerk, right? I think that's Nature Girl's gimmick here. It's like all the things she's saying here, maybe it's a little precious, maybe it's a little too quick to be offended, but at the same time, it's like, okay, well, sure, it's not untrue. If we're we're suspending our disbelief enough to know that she can communicate with animals, then we have to appreciate and understand the fact that she would be able to speak to them, and she knows how those behind the bars of a zoo would feel. And uh, she knows what the trees think. So we have to assume that everything she's telling us is true. To which we have to accept the way that she is. It's just the way she goes about explaining herself is very, very annoying. I mean, when I got to the part where she said that one of the apples was murdered, I really thought I thought this was going to be like a two-minute long episode. And I was going to be like, nope, I'm tapping out. <laughs> and I was just going to be done. Uh, I'm glad I pressed on though because this was a uh, this was a fun little ditty. Um, while at the same time, it's one of those that I have to kind of uh, try not to think that you know people spent four dollars for this not too long ago uh, because that takes a little bit of the wind out of the sails. Um, one more thing about this issue: uh, the art here. We have a different artist than usual. Usually, it's a Milkar Pinna. 
And today it is, let me vamp as I roll up here, uh, Alberto Jimenez Albuquerque. And while I'm not the biggest fan of Pinna's work on this book, um, this, I don't know, this one was kind of weird. It feels like, and this is an odd sort of comparison to make here, but you know when like a big budget Hollywood movie tries to like evoke that indie look? You know, like anything with that kid from Arrested Development in it, where they try to make it look super indie? That's what I get from this artist here. I feel like they're purposely trying to make this look like an independent comic. And I think that's to its detriment. I don't think that's... Uh, I mean, especially when you you contrast it with the covers we get here, these beautiful Dodson covers. And if you've seen the cover of this issue where Eyeboy's covering his eyes, but he's got eyes on the back of his hands too, it's a, it's a really cool-looking cover. And then you open it up, and it's like this weird indie take. And uh, I just don't feel like it really fits the tone of the story uh, all that well. It's not bad work. It's not bad work in the slightest. It's just, uh, you know, not for me, really. But I think that's all I've got to say about this issue. And, uh, and I suppose I should just hop into my spiel to let you all go on with your day. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you could find me very, very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could join us on Facebook, where we're having some very fun conversations. Our little group is 90s X-Men on Facebook. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation devices and applications. And that is where we'll leave it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for letting me be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode six of Generation X Lapsed. We are uh, at the halfway point. Uh, didn't think it would uh, go quite this quickly. <laughs> it felt like this was going to be a pretty drawn-out undertaking. And hey, I mean, I can only speak for myself. Uh, I'm actually kind of surprised at how breezy this is going. Uh, I apologize if the listening is a bit of a drag. You just... Uh, you just never know. But uh, let's get into it here. This is Generation X, Volume 2, Number 6. This had a November 2017 cover date. Written by Christina Strain, with art by Eric Coda. Colors by Felipe Sobrero, or Sobrero. Letters, VCs Clayton Cowles. The edits, Robinson Shan, Panizia, and Alonzo. Cover price $4. This one went on sale September 6 of 2017. As always, we start with our single-page spread of roll call and cred here. The characters we got are Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. Now we open at the Xavier Institute for Journalism, Agrotourism, and Windsurfing, where our not-yet-Generation-X-named kids yet are attending a class of Professor Dupe. Now, I don't have a uh, dupe-to-English translator handy, and even if I did, I doubt it would be worth it to translate this entire page of dupe text. Um, from the kid's reactions, though, it would seem as though rather than teaching, he's complaining about being lonely and horny. <clears throat> Bling suggests he try seeking out mutant fetishists on Tinder... And I tell you what, this is one of those instances where I'm actually happy to be too old to understand something. It's not often I feel refreshed in that way, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased not to not to get this. Now, Trevor, I boy, suggests that the uh, conversation is making him feel uncomfortable. Nature Girl thinks Dupe is hot. Okay. Uh, Quentin reminds us that Dupe is a flying potato because, well, I guess he is. Now, while QQ exaggeratedly stretches because he's very, very bored, Nathaniel notices that he's wearing a light blue bracelet with skulls on it. He then turns to Ben Deeds and notices that he, too, has that same bracelet, and also that he looks quite exhausted. And so Nate wads up some paper and chucks it at Quentin's head to ask what's up with the cuffs. Quentin more or less tells him to mind his own business. To which Nate... The kid who, for the past half-dozen issues, has refused to use his powers, decides it's time to remove his glove and touch the back of Quentin's disgusting, oily neck. Now, via his odd take on chrono-skimming, Nate is able to deduce that Quentin has been keeping deeds out all hours of the night, hanging and banging around New York City. We see them graffiti-tagging a wall, because I guess that's what the cool kids do. Uh, Kitty Pride was here. Pride spelled P-R-I-D-E and was, you know, W-U-Z. Uh, because I, I guess misspellings are cool, and I would assume that cool is with a K. Now, they sing karaoke like a couple of real mad lads. Um, they break into a mansion and swim in a swanky pool. They also do some bar hopping, so Quentin can lament the fact that the girl he loves doesn't love him back. Now, all throughout this entire montage... Ben looks about as excited as a uh, coma victim. Now, Quentin is none too pleased by this turn of events, and even asks Nate why he's going against his own established continuity, you know, using his powers without any consent. I mean, we don't know Nate all that well, but this is definitely out of character from what little we do know. Nate tells QQ that he asked himself what Quentin might do in the situation, and he just did that. 
I guess whatever helps you sleep at night, pal. Um, then, in our action portion of the issue, Ben Deeds falls asleep while jotting down notes and nearly takes his own eye out with the eraser end of his pencil. Like, really, that is the high action for this issue. A kid dopily dozing into the nub end of his pencil. Now, after class, Nate and Deeds watches Quentin playfully jogs up to the object of his affection. It's Idi Unconquo, Oya, one of the Hope Summers' five lights, and cast member of the previous Generation book, Generation Hope. Which, it's been like a decade, but I remember quite enjoying it while it lasted. Anyway, Quentin asks her out for some sushi. But, since he's Quentin Quire, I.D. says no. Then, some X-Men wallpaper in the form of Surge, Dust, and Pixie holler over to I.D. to rescue her from her pink-haired pursuer, and so she leaves with them to go to class. Quentin hides his disappointment and embarrassment by turning on a dime and telling old Ben Deeds that he's got a big night planned for them tonight. Deeds tries to back out, but Quentin is persistent, and also Deeds is kind of, um... Submissive, I guess? I don't know. And so, seeing his buddy needs a bailout, Nate tells Quentin that he and Mr. Deeds already have plans for the evening. They're going to watch a pretentious indie flick. Quentin suggests that those plans are lame. And I, once again, find myself agreeing with him. Nate then turns it on QQ and he asks what better plans he has for the three of them that night. And so, Quentin begrudgingly accepts that if he wants Deeds, he's going to have to take Carver, too. Now, the scene shifts over to Central Park, where else? And Jubilee and Chamber are out trying to hunt down M-Plate. Jubilee says she'd rather be in bed, which is a pretty big change in tone from how we wrapped up an issue or two ago with her vowing to kick Monet's ass. She and Jono talk a bit about their old friend and what they might have to do if and when they find her. Jono says they gotta take her down, no hesitation. Call me Jubes asks if that'll be the way they take her down if she ever loses control over her vampirism. Jono tells her to cool her jets, and uh, we're reminded here that Jubilee has to wear a giant amulet in order to control her urges, which I don't think I've ever seen before. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's new, maybe it's been established, I couldn't tell you. This conversation is thankfully interrupted by a mugger, because lest we forget, we're in Central Park. I mean, how could we? We haven't really been anywhere else for this entire volume. Now, Jono and Jubilee beat up, beat them up real good here and then decide to spend the rest of their evening mugger hunting rather than to, you know, search for the super powerful mutant with mouths on her hands like they were planning initially. Uh, okay, sounds good to me. We jump back to the boys here and we join them at a villain-filled auction house. We see such characters as Hammerhead, Typhoid Mary, Exterminatrix, I think Slenderman's in here. A lot of bad guys, what I'm trying to say. Ben Deeds ain't so sure that this is the best idea. Quentin says, hey, you know, I offered karaoke and you passed, so this was plan B. Then, Cade Kilgore, the, the Hellfire Tot, enters the scene. And it's worth noting, I was trying to describe how Cade is drawn here. Uh, we have a different artist today, and it's, uh, it's a little bit different. And I couldn't quite figure out the right term to use. And then I read the next panel where Nate asks, uh, who's the fetus? And yeah, that's it. Cade Kilgore looks kind of like a giant fetus. Yeah, that's, hey, why not? Kilgore approaches Quentin to ask what he's doing here and point out what an interesting entourage he has. Quentin introduces Nathaniel as his manservant. And Benji, who is currently half-morphed to look just like Quentin, as... 
his boyfriend. Now, Cade is quite surprised by this and excuses himself to go bid. Quentin takes this to mean that Kilgore is a homophobe, but they really didn't do all that much to derive that suggestion. I mean, he doesn't look disgusted. He didn't make any derogatory or passive-aggressive comments. He basically just excused himself to do the thing he was at the auction house to do in the first place. Now, as Cade walks away, he tells his security detail that he feels like Quire is lying and he wants eyes on him all evening. So, yeah, not really so much a homophobe, just a kid who distrusts Quentin, is all. So let's head to the uh, bidding bits here. Now, after Exterminatrix wins something or another for the hefty sum of 260 grand, uh, the next item up for bids is a tube of Kilgore Industries Nano Sentinels. And uh, if you don't know what those are, I'll, I'll read you a quote here. They're designed to seek and destroy a mutant from the inside out. All you have to do is deploy them, release them into the wind, or dump them into a local water supply. The choice is yours. And so, the bidding opens at five. Not five dollars, not five thousand dollars, not even five million dollars, but five hits. You know, murders. Uh, The bidding rapidly rises to ten hits, and it's ultimately won by... Oh, the Fenris twins... Oh boy! Mm. Oh, that's gonna that's gonna you know put some butts in the seats here. Uh, Quentin and Nate are panicked and wonder what they're gonna be able to do because I mean there's gonna be some killing going on. To which Benji calmly, coolly, and completely out of character suggests that they just let Fenris win the thing because the three of them are just gonna steal it anyway. To be continued. So, what did we think about this halfway point issue? I guess wrapping up the first half with this issue. Uh, I do have a little bit of a Chris trivia for this one. Um, this was actually the last issue of Generation X that came to me uh, via real-time DCBS ordering of the title. Um, I don't know why I let it linger on so long. Uh, I must have just been going off like a saved pull list or something. Uh, sometimes I experiment with that on DCBS, like when I... Don't want to be tempted by other things that might be coming out that, uh, that you know, I know I won't read. And it's just like a curiosity buy. Sometimes I would just defer back to just using a pull list. And I'm sure I had some X-Books on it. It was just like, okay, order, make the same order again. And I'm guessing Generation X just uh, lingered for a little while there. And I've mentioned before what a, a difficult um, decision it was to drop all the X-Books back in you know, late 2017, early 2018, um, it was breaking a a 30-year habit at that point, and uh, just didn't feel right not to order. If there were X-Men books coming out and they weren't coming to my house, it just uh, it didn't feel right. So maybe, maybe it was a little bit of a hope that I would get back into it. Maybe it was just a hope that uh, one day down the line I'd have a stupid show <laughs> that would discuss this stuff. I don't know, but... This was the last issue that I actually uh, ordered via DCBS, and this was the first time I ever took it out of the plastic and read it. Um, so what do we think? What do we think here? Um, I kind of I dug it. I can't believe I'm saying this. Uh, I really thought that this was going to be a lot more painful. And I, maybe I was just in a different headspace back in 2017 than I am right now. Maybe I just want to like this more than I would have wanted to like it back then. I really can't say. I guess we all have our biases and we all have uh, our phases and moods. But uh, I thought this was pretty well done in that we 
are separating out the class here, and we're learning bits and pieces about each member here, rather than just you know clumping these kids together because they're all the cast of the book, and we got to have them joined at the hip. Uh, I think that that does a great disservice to fleshing out any of these characters, and I got to assume. At least at the time uh, Christina Strain wrote this issue, they didn't know that this was only going to run 12 issues. They probably were hopeful that this was going to be an ongoing, at least until the next Marvel reboot, you know. So this was really just a bit of world building here, or I guess character building. Last issue, we had iBoy and Nature Girl have their little spotlight. We had Bling have a spotlight before that. And here we've, uh, you know, we're bringing our POV character in Nathaniel. Uh, we're bringing him out. We've got Ben Deeds here, who we don't know a whole heck of a lot about. The only one we really have some sort of like a lightning round to is Quentin Quire. But here we're seeing him in the context of impression management, if I can dig into my old uh, academic uh, bag of tricks here. He's controlling the way people perceive him, uh, not through his mutant abilities here, but by his behavior. I mean, we know that he is quite taken with Oya from uh, what we see here. I don't know if this is a continuation from anything that came before it. Uh, my memories of my latter days of X-Fandom before this are very cloudy. Um, so I don't know if this was something that was established or not. Either way, it doesn't matter. We, we know what we're getting here. We see it in the scene. It was done quite well. And Quentin being Quentin won't, you know, isn't really interested in letting anybody see him sweat. So he turns on a dime and kind of overcompensates in the confidence department here, just being very domineering over Ben Deeds, who is a pretty weak fella, I guess. He's letting Quentin just do whatever he wants to do with him here. And from what uh, Nathaniel saw when he touched Quentin's disgusting, oily neck, we saw that uh, Morph was not having a good time with Quentin. He was basically just there because Quentin told him to be there. I don't quite understand how um, Ben had that weird burst of confidence at the end. He was just like, I don't know, felt we don't know much about the kid, but uh, it just felt very much uh, like a 180 on the character that we've seen. He's just been very submissive, very, uh, you know, go with the flow. And here he is saying, no, no, we're going to steal the, uh, the canister away from Fenris. Uh, while Quentin, who, I mean, has always been portrayed as being overly confident, is, uh, is nervous. And Nathaniel, I mean, Nathaniel's basically just there because he's our point of view character. But it just felt weird that uh, Benjamin would be the, uh, the assertive voice at the end of it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it is development of his character. Hopefully we'll learn more. Again, I don't think this was ever meant to go just 12 issues, so I think we, th I think the creators thought we were going to have a lot more time with these characters, and uh, this was just, you know, step one of uh, creating a character, creating a, uh, a pattern of behavior and establishing just who these kids uh, really are here. Um, while on the subject of the ending here, um, or close to the ending, I suppose, Cade Kilgore as an evil homophobe was a, a bit felt a bit forced. Um, he really didn't do anything to suggest that he that he had any sort of uh, bigoted bigoted feelings like that. Um, all he did was excuse himself from a conversation. Uh, and I mean, Quentin was was being very annoying at the time, right? He was being overly annoying. So uh, I really can't blame anybody from for not wanting to be in his company at that point. I feel like there was certainly a message that Strain was trying to push here, but I think 
you know, it, it reminds me of um, some of those old Green Lantern, Green Arrow stories from uh, Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams here, where where Hal and Ollie would discover that, like, the bigot was actually an evil alien overlord or something. And uh, I feel like that does the story a great disservice here because bigots are real, right? You don't have to be a space alien or a supervillain to be a bigot. Here with Cade Kilgore, uh, we can accept that he's a supervillain. He's a no-good bastard. But, I mean, does that also mean that he's, you know, a bigot? Does it, it? I don't know that they're... I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibilities, of course, here, but he didn't do anything to express that sort of tone. Uh, and, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I just didn't see anything um, too out of the realm of him just wanting to leave Quentin's company, which, again, I can't blame the kid for. Uh, we got Jubilee and Jono here. Um, I feel like, and listeners of the main show will uh, recognize this little chestnut from my Excalibur conversations, but I feel like we missed an issue. Um, when we last left Jubilee and Jono, Jubilee was like full of P&V here, ready to just uh, put a whooping on Monet. And here she's like, oh man, I'd rather be in bed right now. It's like, that just feels weird and kind of undercuts the threat that M or M plate uh, poses to the team and to mutants and to whoever it's I don't know it felt it felt a little forced just to facilitate her you know wondering aloud what might happen if her vampirism takes over and uh, she goes nuts you know I, I it felt very unnecessary. Uh, I mean, she could still be full of P&V to find Monet and still have these thoughts and worries and concerns and still raise them to, jo- to Jono and still have the same conversation. So, I don't know. I don't know. It just feels very, um, like I said, it feels like we missed a scene where maybe they've been doing this for weeks and weeks and weeks and now she's just tired of it. But uh, we didn't get that scene. We didn't see those scenes and they didn't reflect back on those scenes. It's just a another night out and Jubilee would rather be in bed. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about the story. Um, we can focus a little bit on the art. You guys know me. I'm not, I'm not very comfortable talking about art. But uh, the art here is kind of evocative of what we saw last issue. In that, uh, and I think I compared that to like a big budget Hollywood movie trying its best to look like an independent film, you know, being a little quirky, a little bit off center. That's kind of what we get here as well. Um, makes me feel like I'm reading a turn of the century, like Oni Press book. Not a bad thing, you know, not a bad thing at all, but uh, doesn't really fit the tone of an X Men book to me. Uh, and maybe that's just me. I, I can totally appreciate that just being me, but. I don't know, I'm used to a uh, cleaner look on the X-Books here, and this was uh, not that. wasn't bad, just uh, wasn't what I'm looking for when it comes to this sort of book. Now that is everything I got to say about this issue. Uh, if you agree, disagree, have any comments or anything you'd like to tell me, please feel free to reach out. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could find me, I think, on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join in the conversation at our little Facebook group. It's 90s X-Men, and I think we just broke 50 members. So uh, thank you all for that. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere they aggregate noise and or sound. But... That'll do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much 
for listening today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Welcome to episode 7 of Generation X Lapsed We are officially in the second half of this uh, little series here And uh, as a matter of fact, we've only got two more episodes featuring uh, Volume 2 Because we are on the precipice of Marvel Legacy The uh, sort of kind of half-hearted Me Too to DC's Rebirth initiative Which, uh, well, it feels like Marvel really didn't uh, try to stick the landing uh, all that well here. Uh, we will get three issues of legacy-numbered uh, Generation X following the Legacy Initiative, which, I don't know if that just doesn't say at all, huh? Um, I feel like with Legacy, and, and we'll talk about this more as we get closer, Marvel spent most of their effort on trying to uh, reproduce, like, classic-style house ads, which... Also looked kind of half-hearted It was almost like uh, Rather than it being a celebration of old comic uh, uh, House ads It was more like a Hey, remember these? You know, like kind of those uh, I think the member berries is what uh, We on the internet now call these things It uh, just felt very half-hearted But that'll be a discussion for another day For now, let's hop right on in here This is Generation X Volume 2, Number 7 
Cited December 2017 cover date, written by Christina Strain, with art by Eric Coda. Colors, Felipe Sobriero, letters, VCs Clayton Cowles, edits, Robinson, Shan, Panizia, and Alonzo. Cover price, $4. This one went on sale October 18th of 2017. Now, before we get inside the book, um, this is uh, not my favorite of the Dodson covers uh, for issue 7. Now, for folks without the book in front of you, which I assume is probably... Everybody listening, um, what we've got here is Morph, halfway morphed into Andrea Strucker. Now, before reading this volume, I was about 100% positive that he was morphing into Emma Frost, since uh, it looks a whole lot more like Emma than it does Andrea, at least in this issue. Uh, Andrea here is depicted as having long hair, which she uh, does not have inside the book, so it's uh, maybe a bit of a Chris problem (laughs) in as far as... uh, you know, just deciding what a character looks like and making them always look like that. Uh, I really, I feel nostalgic for days that I wasn't even in the fandom here, like the uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, you know, character Bible days, where this is what the character looks like. If you use this character, make them look like this. We just uh, don't have that anymore, and uh, I'm not sure we've had that at any point in my comic collecting career, but uh, what are you going to do? Now Morph, as Andrea, is punching the other Fenris twin, Andres, in the mush, while Nathan, Quentin, and iBoy run out a door in the background. Eh? iBoy? Okay. Like I said, not one of my favorite of the Dodson covers here. I mean, it's technically, you know, nice to look at, but eh, not my favorite. Let's open this sucker up here. A single-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We got Jubilee. We got Bling, who isn't in this issue. Kid Omega, Nature Girl, who thankfully isn't in this issue, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy, who, despite being on the cover, is not in this issue. Now we open with Quentin, Nate, and Benji uh, putting together their plan to swipe the canister of nano-sentinels from the Fenris twins. Now, if you recall, uh, the Fenris twins won a hit auction for the goods last issue, and I believe they bid to uh, conduct ten hits for uh, Cade Kilgore in order for uh, the little canister there. Now, our young heroes are kind of grossed out by how much affection the Strucker twins show one another. And yeah, yeah, they, uh, they've totally got a point, because these two are, like, pawn all over each other. Now, it's worth noting that Andrea died a while back, and so the one we've got here is a clone, which doesn't make it any less incestual. Uh, It's still a very, very icky relationship. Now, Quentin tells the guys that after Andrea died, Andres tanned her skin to wrap around the hilt of his sword, which sounds quite outlandish, but in fact, actually happened. This is true. It happened in New Thunderbolts number 17, March 2006 cover date. And despite sounding really gross, there's actually a good reason for it. Now, you see, the Fenris twins' power requires skin-to-skin contact to be made between the two. And so, having Andreas, uh, I'm sorry, Andrea's skin on the hilt of uh, Andreas' sword makes it so Andreas can always access his powers, you dig? Uh, it's still very, very gross, though. Now, during this bit of exposition, Nathaniel is trying to use his touchy powers to procure some security codes from a wall. I didn't realize his powers worked that way, but uh, hey... We learn something new every day. Next, Quentin reveals his plan. Now, he's going to make Andreas think he's got to pee really bad. Then, in the bathroom, Benji will KO him and take his place. 
He'll cozy up to Andrea, swipe the nano-sentinel canister, and bada-bing, bada-boom, exit stage left. Now, Benji ain't so sure, considering that Andreas, uh, despite being a creep and a, you know, strange little fellow, is still uh, an expert swordsman and fighter. Nate's not sure that Benji can pull this off. Uh, he asks what happens if his morphing ability isn't perfect. Like, what if Andrea knows that Benji is not her beloved, uh, beautiful, blonde brother? Quentin tells him not to worry, as when Benji morphs, he emits a chemical that puts people at ease and makes them like him. Nate says, hmm, that makes sense, and uh, more on that in a little bit. And so, before we know it, Benji heads to the bathroom to await Andreas' arrival. He morphs into Andrea in the meantime. When Andreas enters, he, as Andrea, tells him they need to talk, and things begin to get incestial. Incest? On my show? Well, heavens to Betsy and her beautiful British blonde brother, Brian Braddock. Uh, Andreas tells Benji that he knows what he, she wants to talk about and gently caresses his, her face. He then realizes that, uh, well, there's a little bit of stubble on his sister's cheek. Benji says that he, she forgot to moisturize, to which Andreas exclaims that he, she moisturizes religiously. Which, I hate to say it, is uh, it's kind of a funny response. Andreas is then zapped in the back by Nathaniel, who swiped a very powerful stun gun from the Exterminatrix. Benji thanks Nate for the save and says that as soon as Andreas made skin-to-skin contact, his goose was cooked. Then, one pep talk and clothes change later, and Benji is ready to swipe them bots. Out on the main floor, Benji as, a, as Andreas meets up with Andrea. The whole time up to this point, Benji has been replaying a memory in his head. A memory of a time where Cyclops told him that he wasn't ready and how uh, that really wound up affecting his confidence. He repeats Scott's words over and over. You, Mr. Deeds, are not ready, dot, dot, dot. Over and over and over. He finally has enough and thinks to himself, Screw you, Scott Summers. Well, that's... Them's fighting words, but uh, in fairness, Cyclops spent most of the 2010s being written like a complete dick. Also in fairness, I believe he spent much of that time being written by Brian Bendis, so what are you going to do? Benji meets up with Andrea and takes her by the arm. Meanwhile, Nate and Quentin chat at one of the catered tables here. Nate sheepishly asks Quentin about his relationship with Benji. So, it seems as though Nathaniel's got himself the hot pants for Morph. Quentin smirks, now knowing exactly why Nate chose to read his mind that morning, as we saw last issue during Dupes class. Quentin tells Nate not to worry about his interests in Benji, claiming that there really isn't anything there. He says Benji's too fragile and suggests that uh, if he were interested, he'd destroy him, which I don't think that's a scene we need to see. Then, the main baddie of the ex-lapsed family of shows during this week, Cade Kilgore, reveals that he overheard this entire conversation. He's put together that the morphing kid was, well, Morph, the ex-student, Benjamin Deeds. He takes this to mean that Quentin is back in the good graces of the Uncannies. He then presses a gimmick on his cufflink, which triggers a psychic dampener, making it so QQ cannot communicate with Benji. Speaking of Benji, he's walking beside Andrea, who is holding the nano-sentinel canister. He is most definitely distracted, which Andrea picks up on. 
She asks him what they, what they ought to do for their upcoming birthday. Benji composes himself and glibly replies that they should uh, maybe go dancing or maybe murder some mutants or something, which would probably be the right answer. But Andrea then informs him that their birthday was a week ago. Whoops. Back to KK and QQ. Kilgore reveals that the Nano Sentinels thing was a trap. There ain't no Nano Sentinels in that canister. He just put that up for bid to try and trigger a reaction from Quentin. It's really just a thing full of saline. So it looks like Benji is probably going to die for nothing more than a thing of contact lens solution. We jump back to the Fenris. Andrea wants to know what happened to her brother. And so Benji morphs into the Mandrill, grabs the canister, and goes to flee. He runs past Tombstone and then morphs into him in order to throw Andrea off his scent. Black Tarantula and a bunch of luchadors get tied up in the chase, and before long, bad guys are bumping into one another left and right. Back to KK and QQ. Quentin tells Cade to just kill them already. To which, Kilgore says he's not interested in any of that. He just wants to screw with Quentin. He's happy to hear that Quentin's back with the X-Men, and even compares him to a nano-sentinel himself. He claims that Quentin will ultimately wind up destroying the X-Men from the inside out, and that's just fine by him. Then... A loud crash. Turns out the entire room is in a full-blown riot. Cade orders his heavies to get him the hell out of there. Benjamin tosses a crostini or a crostini at Nate to get his attention. It's one of those words I've seen, and I just don't know if I've ever said it out loud. Quentin deflects all sorts of projectiles while Nate and Benji chat. Ben tells Nate to try feeling the wall to see if there's any sort of hidden escape passage anywhere. Nate's not all that confident in his ability to do so, but... Benji convinces him to just relax, listen to his voice, and give it a try. Bada-bing, bada-boom, Nate finds the passage, and Quentin comments that this is such a cliché. Nate leads our heroes over to a bust of Cade's father, the esteemed and constipated-looking Carlton Kilgore. Now, poking the bust in the eyes causes the secret door to open, kind of like the Three Stooges here. Quentin is actually impressed by this, because uh, I suppose he would be. Then... Scene shift, because uh, we remember that this is a book called Generation X, and so we've got to at least have a minute or two with Jubilee. And so we scoot over to the Xavier Institute of Auctioneering, Bagpiping, and Puppet Arts, where Call Me Jubes and Jono are reflecting on their night in the park busting muggers, which we saw play out last issue. Jubilee says it made her feel more like her than she has felt in a very long time. And she comments how weird it is to remember her time as a mutant as the most normal time in her life. Jono unwittingly whispers some sweet nothings, which cause Jubilee to coo and cuddle a bit. She then nearly bites her tongue off with her vamp teeth. She rushes, to, uh, rushes off to check out her new piercing, leaving Jono and Shogo on the couch. Shogo doot-doot-doots at chamber, which I think is code for he's got the hot pants for Jubilee. Now... Speaking of the hot pants, let's get back to the boys. They're back at the dorms, and Nate heads off to his room. He tells Benji that uh, he owes him a movie. Remember, they lied about watching a movie together last issue in order to get out of hanging out with Quentin. And Quentin hears this and rolls his eyes. As Quentin and Benji head for their room, Quentin can tell that Benji shares Nate's hot pantsedness. And he tells him to go do something about it. And so, Benji goes over to Nate. But he chickens out. Now we wrap up in Quentin and Benji's room, with the former getting undressed and the latter in the fetal position on his bed. 
Wow, uh, <clears throat> that description makes the scene sound quite sinister, doesn't it? And actually, the way it's drawn kind of does, too. It's not, though. Uh, Quentin's basically just really disappointed that Ben chickened out. Uh, though he's probably not as disappointed as Benji is with himself. And that is where we leave it. And you know, I was going to start this uh, little section, our little ending section of this episode by saying, hey, that wasn't bad. But I can't say that. Uh, I can't say it wasn't bad because it was actually kind of good. <laughs> I, I can't believe I'm going to say it this year, but I really enjoyed this issue. Now, it wouldn't be me if I didn't bring this point up, but uh, it's taken seven issues, which is just shy of a $30 investment in this volume, and that is not... That's not ideal. I mean, I might be mistaken, but I believe this is this would be into the second trade paperback volume, right? So the entire first one was kind of just, eh. And here we are in the second of two volumes, and it's uh, starting to get good. It's starting. We're starting to, I guess, understand a bit more about our characters here. We we know them a little bit better. So um, I guess uh, I can only speak for myself, but I guess they're they're maybe they're growing on me. So where do we start with this one? What do we talk about first here? I suppose, I mean, this is a very hot pants issue, isn't it? Um, we could talk about that here. We've got a couple of couples uh, in, in the works here. Uh, we can start with uh, Benji and, and our point of view character here, Nate. I think when we started discussing this volume several weeks ago, I was uh, I expressed a little bit of concern that this was going to turn into like the, the Kieran Gillen Young Avengers thing, where it felt like... Every issue is just the characters trading off with one another over and over and over again, and it kind of became a little overdone to the point where I think like one of the last things they said in that volume was like, hey, have we all banged one another or something like that? And I was worried that this was going to be more of that. Um, and it's not. It's not here. The relationship between Benji and Nate is... Uh, is actually, you know, it's fairly adorable in in a way here. It's uh, very innocent. You can tell that they both have feelings for one another. Uh, Nate, uh, let's talk about Nate. Um, Now, he has feelings for Benji. That much we know for sure. He's even jealous of Benji's relationship with Quentin, despite the fact that it, uh, even when he touched Quentin, I think he could tell that, like, Benji's really not, into it. He was just there because he's a pushover and Quentin made him come with him. But here we have Quentin saying that uh, Ben emits a, I don't know if it's a pheromone necessarily, but it's a chemical that puts people around him at ease. I don't know if that's like a, I mean, I'm not sure we can call it a secondary mutation or just a byproduct of his mutation where he he shapeshifts, he morphs, but he puts people at ease, so maybe they would not notice things like imperfections, you know, where he's not 100% a Fenris twin or, you know, or, or whoever, right? And that made Nathaniel uh, kind of take pause here, and he's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So I don't know if that means he's questioning his feelings. And I think that's an interesting angle to take, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out here. But the fact that he took pause there... And he's like, well, that makes a lot of sense, because maybe he's questioning whether or not he has these feelings legitimately, you know? And I, I like that. Now, Benji, of course, he uh, sheepishly seems into Nathaniel as well here, and is kind of a coward. Or maybe he's just a teenager. I mean, I can't really speak from uh, my vast experience as a uh, teenage romantic. I mean, I'm sure that's shocking to all of you, but... Uh, 
here he is. He's got feelings, a crush, and he's scared to uh, address it. He's scared to reveal it. Quentin, he you know picks up on signs, and he also can read minds, so he knows exactly what's going on. He knows the score, and he prompts him to go and maybe go get what he wants. You know, don't waste don't waste the day. You know, and he chickened out because I mean, crushes are. Difficult, right? Crushes are complicated And I feel like this one is as well But uh, I really like uh, I like that they're planting seeds here It's kind of a shame that we know That we're not going to see Nathaniel or Benji After this series, I don't think I mean, we I don't think we've seen them yet So uh, I don't know how it's uh, going to work itself out Now we also have the other a couple in in uh, the works here in Jubilee and uh, and Jono, which to me, you know, being a classic Generation X fan, that always seemed to be like the most likely pairing because Jono is like the most you know striking one of the most striking characters in the X Men roster, especially of the day. And Jubilee was like the star of that book. You know, she was the she was the one. Because Generation X, you can look at it like compared to a TV show here Where you have like the backdoor pilot and someone gets a spinoff of their own That was kind of Jubilee's spinoff here Which facilitated expansion into this uh, cast of Teenage Mutants here So I, you know, seeing that, it was like, okay, well, Jono, he, he's definitely, you know, a star in this book Because he just looks so damn cool He was on all the promotional work, he was on the ash can, he just looks cool So I figured that him and Jubilee were just a natural they didn't go that way, you know They went with uh, Chamber and Husk And Jubilee was just, you know, kind of just chilling So it's weird, to, it's like a weird culmination of my, you know, 30 years of fandom here To see potential sparks between Jubilee and Chamber um, Of course, I mean, we know from our current post-Hoxpox books here That Chamber is hanging out in the sextant with the New Mutants And Jubilee is hanging out in the Excalibur Lighthouse and I don't think we've seen them cross paths So who really knows if this is going to uh, be a thing that bears any fruit Or if it does, uh, I'm, I'm guessing it'll be short term Or uh, just swept under the rug Now uh, we can talk about our threat for this issue uh, Cade Kilgore, who um, if you're following all the X-Lapsed uh, family of programs You're probably uh, you're probably sick of seeing and hearing about Cade Kilgore Because he's been around quite a bit lately here I think this was a good use for him I liked the way he kind of dismissed Quentin as something of a destructive force And basically just letting him be him Knowing that it'll destroy the X-Men at some point I, I like that Because, uh, I mean, we've, we're learning a bit about Quentin here he, He's kind of walking that tightrope between vulnerability and aloof ego For lack of a, a better term there We know that he's vulnerable We know he has weaknesses here We saw him with Oya last issue We see how he is kind of clingy with Ben He wants friends, you know He wants to not be alone And to hear Cade Kilgore be like You know what, you're punishment enough <laughs> You know, you are the X-Men's punishment on Earth And uh thought that was really, really cool And uh, I'd like to see more vulnerability from uh, Quentin Quire I mean, we are seeing that these days in the post Hoxpox And the reign of X-Books, I guess we're at now Where Quentin is, you know, he, he we're seeing a softer side of Quentin Quire Which I believe when we covered those issues of uh, 
X-Force Volume 6, I kind of questioned whether or not we needed that. It's like, do we need to like this guy? Do we need to understand him? And I think I fell on the side of like, nah, you know, we, we just need to love to hate the guy. But no, I think there might be something to it. I think there might be something to uh, fleshing him out and, uh, and learning a bit more about him and being able to uh, sympathize with his, uh, just with his state of being, I suppose. Uh, let's talk about Fenris. They are creepy. <laughs> they are extremely uh, creepy here. Um, well written, but I, I fear that it, they might be falling to um, the uh, Vartox trap, which I've talked about a time or two on this channel here, where folks familiar with Vartox, who was Superman's you know friend slash enemy back in the Bronze Age, he was the one who was modeled off of Sean Connery in the movie Zardos or Zardos. He was written as a champion back in the Bronze Age here. He was someone who was almost as strong as Superman, had a lot of similarities with Superman, and I believe after I spent a month inside Vartox Week, I came to the conclusion that Vartox was basically the Superman that failed. You know, Superman was sent off of Krypton, he came to Earth, and was just a champion. Vartox seems to trip over his own feet. And it's not like he's a goof, he's just... He's just a victim of circumstance, but he looks like a creep. You know, he's got the, he's got like the seventies hairy chest, you know, he's got the big mustache. And so when they brought him back in around 2009, 2010, they decided not to, they decided to winnow his character down from this champion with a tortured past to seventies gigolo guy, you know, seventies pervert mustache guy. And, I mean, the stories were fun. It was uh, Palmiati, Gray, and Connor in that Power Girl series right before Flashpoint. It was fun stories, but that wasn't the Vartox of old. Here we have Fenris, who I think we're just, like, focusing, laser-focused on the fact that ha-ha-ha incest, right? I mean, we're taking away everything. And I'm not saying these are f special characters. I don't think I've ever read a Fenris story that I actually cared about, but I feel like we're focusing only on the creepy incest parts of it, which is doing a disservice. I mean, it gets you the funny ha-has, but it's sort of kind of low-hanging fruit, uh, at least to me, at least to me. Um, we talk about the art. The art uh, is growing on me. I, I think last episode I said it looked like the like a big budget indie movie where it was like okay well this is what a big budget corporation thinks indie looks like and, and that's what we got here it looked a, a bit I don't know if it was a bit cleaner or I'm just used to it <laughs> or maybe I'm just a little bit less nitpicky today who knows um overall like I said I like this issue I like this issue and it makes me confident that I'm going to enjoy at least I, I hope I'm going to enjoy the second half of this Generation X Lapsed project. And I very much hope you will as well. Now, if you'd like to reach out and get a hold of me and tell me how much you're enjoying the Generation X Lapsed project, or any project, or just to say hello, I'd love you to reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. I figured out how to get into the uh, X-Lapsed Instagram. It's 90s X-Men. Um, I even changed the profile picture so it's X-Lapsed. So that's a thing. I'm hopefully going to be uh, focusing on that a little bit here and, here and again. We'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, you can go to chrisoninfiniteearth.com for blog posts and show notes. 
You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available anywhere you find sound and or noise. But that's going to do it for today. I want to thank you all so much for sharing some time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 8 of Generation X-Lapse. We're officially uh, two-thirds of the way through after today's episode. How about that? Now, uh, I want to level with you guys here. If I sound a little grunty today, uh, there's... Not grumpy, grunty, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's a reason for that. And it's a stupid one. (laughs) You see, I threw my back out. And I did so in a very, very stupid way. Um, Over the course of the past few weeks, I've been taking... Uh, daily boot camps, you know, uh, doing some bike riding, uh, taking classes, basically, doing some boxing, some, you know, bopping around, all that good stuff, uh, weightlifting, you know, weighted squats, all that stuff, and, uh, well, it's kind of kicking my butt, but I, I'm still able to walk away every day, you know, I finish up, and I can go on with my day. Well, yesterday, after doing a, uh, uh, it was a boxing workout I did for about 45 minutes, I was able to walk away just fine, but then I went to the backyard to uh, pull the thermometer out of the pool to see how warm it, the water was, and I threw my back out, 
squatting down to pick up a uh, one-pound thermometer. So I've been kind of squirming around on every soft surface in the house over the past 24 hours, just trying to get by and trying to get comfortable. So yes, if I sound a little grunty or a little forced, we'll blame it on the injury here. Uh, not that uh, not that I have a whole lot to be grunty about, because we have a very fun issue to discuss today. Let's get right on in. This is Generation X, Volume 2, Number 8, January 2018 cover date. The second to last issue of Generation X, Volume 2, before we hit Legacy Numbering. Written by Christina Strain, with art by Amilcar Pinna. Colors, Felipe Sobrairo, Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles, Edits, Robinson, Shan, Panizia, and Alonzo. Cover price, $4 on sale, November 8, 2017. Now, we open with our regular spread of roll call and cred. We got Jubilee, we got Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. The story begins at Central Park Zoo where iBoy and Nature Girl are babysitting Shogo. And you know, I think it was Evan over on the main show who wrote in and remarked that Shogo seemed to be de-aged in current times here, like he seemed older in Generation X than he does nowadays in the uh, Krakoa era. And yeah, this is proof positive of that, because Shogo here is walking around, he's actually saying words. There's a band nearby named Peanut, and Shogo is saying Peanut. So there you go. So he's playing with this bear, like a real, you know, bear. Uh, he, Trevor, and Lynn are in an animal enclosure because, uh, well, one of them has antlers, so I guess it's okay. Trevor is nervous that Shogo might be eaten. Lynn suggests that if uh, Peanut, the bear, wanted to eat Shogo, he'd probably already be a pair of bloody stumps in booties. A zoo security guard kicks the kids out of the enclosure, and then the bears begin to stir. And Shogo, who was sitting in Peanut's lap, is thrown to the ground. He begins wailing, which I'd say is probably an appropriate response. Lynn feels like something is coming, and they gotta head back to the school right away. More on that as we work our way through. Speaking of which, we next pop over to the Xavier Institute of Citrus, Theme Park Engineering, and Poultry Science. It's the uh, counseling office, specifically, which I didn't even realize they had. Here, Bling is undergoing a session with Husk. So, Husk is a therapist now? Okay, why not? Paige asks Roxy to talk, and does that cliche therapist thing, like the TV therapist thing, by responding to everything she says with, and how did that make you feel? Which, from my experience, most therapists in training are now being trained like to be a bit more creative than that, because... How did that make you feel is, uh, well, it's a cliche. And, I mean, it totally is. And the uh, impression is that it leaves patients and clients uh, feeling like they're being blown off or ignored or kind of undervalued if you're just doing the TV response. Anyway, Roxy talks about how she feels about her recent run-in with M-Plate and really doesn't understand why she's even here talking to Paige anyway. Uh, She even calls Paige out on not being a real therapist. To which we learn that Paige is working on her PhD, so I guess credits and degrees from the Xavier School are transferable then? Whatever. Uh, Husk contends that uh, she's here to show Roxy that there can be life after the X-Men. Now Roxy ain't feeling it. She compares her powers to Emma Frost's secondary mutation, the diamond-hard skin, 
and wonders why she's seemingly being pushed out the door. Paige talks about how one time she really tried hard to be an X-Man, and she also recalls how that kind of became her purpose rather than her passion. As she boots Roxy out, telling her that they'll chat again next week. That's worth noting here, Paige did not appear to be taking any notes, like none, which is kind of weird for a PhD student in practice. Outside, Roxy asks Jono if they can leave. Not exactly sure where they're going. It's not like they drove across town or anything. I mean, the uh, little uh, caption said they're still at the Institute, didn't it? Hmm. Uh, Jubilee's also there, and she checks in with Paige. Uh, Paige is upset that nobody told her about the goings-on with Monet. Call Me Jube says that they didn't want to get in the way of Paige's brand-new shiny life. Scene shift to the subway, where diminutive DOA, if you remember DOA, M-plate's little buddy, drags a Morlock to an abandoned train car, and inside is M-plate. Now, he refers to M-plate as Sir because... If I'm getting this right, M-Plate and Monet are sort of kind of occupying the same body. I want to say this happened in that weird volume of Uncanny X-Men that read more like a volume of X-Force around the time of the Inhumans disaster. Monet and M-Plate slip in and out of control of the body, or are at least able to communicate separately. M-Plate seems to speak from that nasty vampire hand gimmick, and also the mouth, while Monet can sometimes just speak from the mouth. Anyway... DOA drops the body here, it's a Morlock body, and M-Plate feeds. But he, she, it still hungers. A person can't live on Morlocks alone. They want a more powerful mutant to feed off of. But then, there's an earthquake. Scene shift back to the Institute, where Nathaniel is jealously leering at Quentin Quire as he sunbathes in a Speedo. He, Nate that is, wishes he could pull something off like that. Benji wanders up behind him, and they talk about Quentin a bit. Then, just as Benji is about to ask Nate on a date, there's an earthquake, and uh, poor Quentin spills his coquito. We jump over to the Museum of Natural History, where we see Jubilee, Chamber, and bling. I, I know that caption said they were at the Xavier Institute's counseling office. Is this office off campus? If so, why? And where? I guess it's outside the uh, museum. From here we go over to Central Park, where the earth is still quaking, and Lynn has a trio of vultures carrying her, Trevor, and Shogo into the sky. Now she suggests that this isn't an earthquake at all. It's actually something digging its way underground toward the school. Now, anybody have any guesses? Well, of course, it's Krakoa. Well, Krakoa number three. Anyway, this is the grandson of the actual Krakoa. Now, he looks like a giant amalgamation of Swamp Thing and Killer Croc. Anyway, it's, you know, shuffled its way under the earth to get to the school because it missed Quentin Choir. Call Me Kitty rushes up and rips into Quentin for this mess, though, I mean, is it really his fault? I think people just like to yell at Quentin for, like, no reason. We jump back to the museum, where Jubilee, Chamber, and Bling rush inside to rescue exactly two civilians. Well, Jubilee and Jono do. Roxy kinda just stands there, which doesn't really make her point about being a good candidate for the X-Men, does it? Then, the place caves in. Jono is able to sidestep the sinkhole and rescues those exact two civilians. 
It's a mother and a young daughter, in case you were wondering. Not that it really matters. As Jono exits the building, the entire place falls into itself. So thanks a lot, Krakoa. Back at the Institute, Kitty continues to yell at Quentin for a bit, before realizing, hey, maybe we ought to do something about all the damage. And so she sends the all-star A-list team of Dust, Mercury, and Hijack... Hijack? Who the hell? To take care of this business. While telling Quentin, you know, the Omega-level mutant in front of her, to just stay here with Krakoa, because he's caused enough damage already. As if any of this was actually his fault to begin with, maybe I'm just missing something, or maybe I'm just starting to recognize a bit of my own inner choir. Who knows? Uh, Benji runs over to Kitty to ask if she's serious about benching all QQ. He reminds her that this is kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation, which is the sort of thing that would normally annoy me. You know, like having a kid trying to correct an adult and actually being right where the adult's wrong, but... In this situation, Kitty's kind of being a jerk. Now, if only the next issue opens with Quentin Choir pointing at us, proclaiming that Kitty Pride is a jerk, I'm all about it. Brew then runs up, because that's what this scene is, uh, people running up to their marks and delivering their line. He informs Kitty that when the Earth started to mambo, it unearthed an underground carn of Nagari demons. That's a shame, isn't it? Kitty then agrees that Benji was right, and let's not put that on a t-shirt, and uh, she's going to have to send the loser squad out. Blindfold steps to her mark to deliver her line, where she reveals that she sees Duke Jubilee in a dark place, and it's going to get darker. That brings us to the end of the issue. Back at the museum, Jubilee and Bling are under the rubble, with Jubes being impaled by a piece of rebar. Luckily, it missed her heart. And also, luckily, she's a vampire, and the rebar doesn't look like it was made out of oak. So, I mean, I don't know what the trouble would have been anyway, but that's where we leave it. We are out of here. Okay, so maybe this wasn't quite as strong an issue as number seven turned out to be, but I still enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed it far more than I expected to enjoy any single issue of Generation X Volume 2, because I thought this was going to be... The kind of slog that I was preparing myself for as we read like the first two or three issues, but this is actually turning out to be a uh, worthwhile endeavor here. I'm not, uh, I'm not hating this, and in fact, I'm actually kind of liking it. Uh, let's see, where do we begin here? Um, I think my main takeaway from this issue is uh, the Roxy stuff here, because I feel like it's being handled like perfectly, you know, in the perfect way here, because. I made a joke uh, during the synopsis that Roxy kind of just stood around when, you know, the chips began to fall. She just was, she froze. She freaked out. All the while, she's trying to show that she is, you know, an A-lister, you know? Like, she has the same second, same powers as Emma Frost's second mu- secondary mutation, which, in her mind, makes her, like, a top-flight candidate for a team of X-Men. Uh, you know, actions speak louder than words, and I guess louder than powers as well, because everything started to fall apart, and she freaked out. I don't see that as a weakness in the character. I see that as actually a strength in the story, because I feel like it's kind of a zig instead of a zag here, because we have the therapy session here where Bling is making her case. And we've seen over the past several issues, we're getting bits and pieces of bling trying to prove herself, just lashing out because she's on the loser squad, right? 
She's on the team that is there to learn how to live outside the X-Men. We had Jono's team. They're, they're the X-Men in training. Jubilee's team are the... Uh, they're the ones who are getting the severance package, right? They're the ones who have powers or behaviors that don't really speak to the front line of X-Mendom, right? So, here we go. You know, the rubber, re- rubber meets the road here, and I think the easy way to handle this story would have had Roxy saving the day right away. It's like, hey, see, I can do it. I've proven that I can save lives. I've proven that I, I'm cool under pressure. Instead, we don't get that. Now, I'm sure her and Jubilee under the rubble, I'm sure that Roxy will have a bit of a coming out party there. She's going to hopefully, you know, do something worthwhile here or maybe learn an important lesson about uh, maybe not reading so much into labels here. Like, you don't need to be an X-Man to be a hero, right? Because I think she's probably going to wind up saving Jubilee. I could be mistaken, but that's... I mean, that's kind of the way this has got to be going. But to have her kind of just passively stand there as everything's fallen around here, wanting to help but not knowing quite how to, I think that's an important, um, a a seminal moment in the character because uh, this is something she's going to have to accept. She's going to have to accept that maybe she's not quite as ready for primetime as she thought she was. And I, I think this is a very, very strong way to build this character up and, I mean, it's just unfortunate that we know from reading the current-day Krakoa stuff that we're not going to see a whole heck of a lot of, bl- of bling, right? We see her for—actually, it's her and Husk, her therapist, are part of the Fallen Angels for, like, three minutes, right? <laughs> so uh, we, uh, we, we don't talk much about Fallen Angels anymore, do we? Now, speaking of uh, Bling and her therapist here, the uh, the therapy scene probably could have been done a little bit better. Uh, felt very, very boilerplate. Uh, the whole, and how does that make you feel thing is like right out of the, you know, tippy top of the list of uh, therapy scene tropes, right? Sort of just what you come to expect from that sort of thing. And I mean, that's not an indictment on the quality or saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just... If you have a few years of counseling experience or counseling um, education, uh, seeing a scene like this might irritate you a little bit or just feel, I don't want to say lazy, but because uh, not everybody has the same you know experiences, but it's just one of those things, I guess. I don't know if Husk uh, getting a PhD is something that has happened in the interim. I would venture to say that uh, nobody's ever thought about this scene a second time. So we will, uh, I guess if we see her with a, with a degree on the wall at the Sextant or wherever she's living in the uh, Krakowin era, we'll, uh, we'll know. But uh, as for now, I couldn't tell you one way or another. Not a whole lot to say about the opening scene at the zoo with Lynn and Trevor and uh, Shogo. Um, Lynn continues to be probably the worst character of the past you know, 10 to 15 years. She's just so uh, off-putting and just... Dismissive. I, I just really don't like the character at all. I don't know why any of these. Uh, I, I maybe I boys got the hot pants for. I don't know, but I, I just I couldn't see anybody wanting to hang out with this person. She's just such an irritating personality. Um, I guess the last thing to talk about is probably uh, Kitty yelling at Quentin for. Uh, I, I I don't know. She just yelled at him. I, I guess everybody just likes to yell at Quentin. That's unfortunate. Um, 
I'm not sure where I, I, They say here that Krakoa was living in the Atlantic Krakoa the third Or whatever this thing is But I, I don't remember how uh, How they separated Because uh, uh, last I knew The Krakoan grandson was the lawn At the Jean Grey school Over in Wolverine and the X-Men I don't know what happened In the interim between Wolverine and the X-Men And Generation X Volume 2 But I'm assuming that uh, there was a little bit of a split <laughs> And somewhere along the way uh, Krakoa Third has uh, grown an affinity Toward Quentin Choir Seeing them together was a cute little scene Only ruined by uh, Kitty coming in And just losing her mind Yelling at a guy for something That really isn't his fault <laughs> And uh, when, he, when she should be yelling at an island But I mean how do you yell at a uh, sentient island Right? Uh, we still have the slow burn on the Nathaniel and Benji uh, will-they-won't-they they relationship, which is still nice to see. I'm glad that they're keeping that going. Um, this scene was uh, not quite as moving or as poignant as the one in issue 7, but uh, eh, they can't all be, and this was just fine here. We have Benji finally getting up the nerve and the guts to uh, to ask Nate on a date, and... The earth starts quaking, and uh, the superstitious among us might take that as a bad omen. You never know, but uh, I like that it's still going. And I guess the last thing to talk about is the return of Amilcar Garpina in the uh, artist chair. It's still definitely not my cup of tea as far as art's concerned, but uh, it's less offensive to me now than it was in the first couple issues. Those first few issues where I saw it, I... Really did not care for it Where here, I really didn't even notice it So I guess, uh, damning with faint praise perhaps But, uh, I guess it's a step in the right direction in any event But, uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue I'm, um, delightfully surprised that, uh, that it's really picking up the way it is here I'm looking forward to more of it And, uh, when I started this little project That's not something I ever thought I would say But, uh, if you agree or disagree I would love to hear from you Um, feel free to reach out You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics Or you can shoot me an email over to WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com Uh, for blog posts and show notes You can go over to ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com You can also talk to us on Facebook Our little group is 90s X-Men there's also an Instagram, 90s X-Men, with a... Well, maybe by the time this comes out, there'll be two pictures there. But uh, I wouldn't count on it. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic talking needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere you find sound and or noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, please feel free to uh, spread the word, share the show, maybe even leave a review if it's uh, not too much of an inconvenience. Uh, Anything that would help the show grow and uh, meet more eyes and ears would be uh, a wonderful, wonderful thing, and I would appreciate it ever so much. But I think that's where we'll leave it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Feeling
This is Chris. Welcome to episode 9 of Generation X Lapsed, where we are covering the final issue of Generation X Volume 2 today. But uh, it's not the end of the series, of course. We have, uh, you remember Marvel went to the legacy numbering for that well thought out and uh, not at all half-assed initiative to show us all that uh, they cared about the history and the legacy of these characters and so we will get an almighty three issues of legacy-numbered uh, Generation X to follow this one. But uh, today, let's uh, get into the discussion here. This is Generation X Volume 2, number 9 of 9, February 2018 cover day, written by Christina Strain, with art by Emil Garpina. Colors Felipe Sobrero, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, des- um, Etnote Designs here, This that's the other show. Edits, Robinson, Shan, Panizia, Alonzo, cover price $4, on sale November 22nd, 2017. Now, as usual, we start with our full-page spread of roll call and cred, and our characters include Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. And we open... In New York City, where our uh, probably never-to-be-called Gen X kids are digging through the wreckage left in the wake of Kid Krakoa's trek underground. Now, Quentin Quire's kind of taken point on this, whether anybody likes it or not, so I guess the Omega will not be denied. Off to the side, uh, Nature Girl is trying to convince iBoy that a random opossum would be the perfect babysitter for little Shogo. Which, well, um... If you've been listening up to this point, you all know how I feel about Nature Girl. Um, what's worse, iBoy decides to go ahead and leave the baby with the little critter. Our camera then pans out, and we get a better look at the wreckage in the city, and uh, we even get to see some pieces of X-Men wallpaper in uh, Mercury, Shock Girl, and Grey Malkin. Now, as Quentin is lifting up bits and bobs of concrete and whatnot, Chamber continues to dig below. Gotta remember, he might just have the hot pants for Jubilee at this point and would probably prefer her not to die. He's probably, you know, he'd also like to say Roxy, probably, uh, but you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Paige rushes over to get a sit rep after having called into Kitty at the Institute. And I could have sworn this was like all going down right outside her office, so she should have been able to see it. Either that, or the office was at the Institute, like the caption told us last issue. I don't know, let's just move on. Jono tells Paige that he's not worried about whether or not Jubilee survived, because, well, he's sure she did. 
What he's actually worried about is the fact that he's unsure whether or not she had breakfast. Which, I mean, she is a vampire, and that might not bode well for Roxy if you uh, catch his meaning there. We get a scene shift from here. We're going to the down below, where Call Me Jubes has a rag made out of Roxy's right sleeve clenched betwixt her fangs. Roxy then jerks her off the rebar that she was impaled on last issue. Jubilee, though in great amounts of pain, will survive. Roxy then leads them through the tunnels by the light on the back of her iPhone. Back topside, Quentin, in his haste, topples over a wall on top of Mercury. In fairness to Quentin, he probably didn't even realize she was there. I mean, when was the last time you thought about Mercury? I know it's been ages for me. Now, Lynn, Nature Girl, approaches her mark on the stage in order to give her line of dialogue, which alludes to the possibility that a certain gray-haired POV character may have also been covered in debris due to Quentin's boner. Benji freaks the F out, as you might imagine, and uh, begins digging through the wreckage to find his would-be bow. Choir's all, screw this, and just lets out a tremendous burst of pink energy, which more or less clears the board and probably topples, like, half the buildings in the city as well, but eh, we don't got time for that. We'll just let the Avengers uh, sort that stuff out. Benji locates Nathaniel, who's just sitting there. Um, He's bleeding from the head. Uh, Benji uses his sleeve to cover Nate's wound. Nate tells him not to worry, he's okay, and also that uh, Benji's ruining his leather jacket by trying to clot his blood. Benji doesn't care, he just wants Nate to be okay. Jono walks over and suggests that the, uh, well, less useful young mutants just head back to the Institute where they won't be in the way. Because there were only two of their numbers still missing, uh, Jubilee and Roxy, of course. And I guess that means that there were zero human casualties after a city block in Manhattan in the middle of the day fell into itself. Uh, while we're on that thought, where in the hell are the police? Emergency services? Fire engines? I mean... Uh, The city of New York is fine just letting a bunch of weirdo teenagers pick over the wreckage? Okay, anyway. At this point, iBoy decides to step up to his mark on the stage to deliver his line. Now, it's here that he reveals that he recently figured out that his many, 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 many eyes give him the ability to see through things. Lynn clarifies that for the, uh, you know, kids in the back of the classroom here, uh, Trevor can see through walls, clothes, and skin. She thankfully doesn't bring up the fact that Trev is obsessed with Jono's wiener. Back underground, Jubilee and Bling make their way to the subway. They happen across one of M-Plate's Morlock meals, likely the last one who we saw dragged in by DOA last issue, since he's, you know, still alive. Roxy faints. She's uh, experiencing a panic attack, realizing that uh, if this Morlock meal is still moving, that means that Monet is probably still nearby. Jubilee tells her not to worry, because if Monet were in the vicinity, you'd probably be able to smell her Chanel number 5. She also suggests that Monet's too smart to just attack them directly, and then realizes that, uh, well, if that's truly the case, maybe we should skedaddle all the same. Now, Roxy helps walk the Morlock out, and Jubilee tells her she did a great job today, which is kind of a kissing-your-sister bit of praise at best, considering, um how ungreat Roxy actually did. 
As the girls leave, we see M Plate and DOA looking on. DOA is surprised that M is just letting them leave, to which we learn that, indeed, he, she, it has a plan. Elsewhere, Jono, Paige, Mercury, and Nature Girl are using iBoy's X-ray vision to help guide them through the collapsing tunnels. Trevor, by the way, has rescued Shogo from the Apasa Mama, and uh, this will be vital to the next scene, and I can't believe I'm saying that without a tinge of sarcasm. Trevor spots their friends, but they're a level further down. Now, Jono can't risk blasting down without, uh, you know, the possibility of crushing them under rubble. And so, Paige tears off her skin to become something a bit more sturdy. And, well, she then lifts a single slab of fallen concrete, and bada-bing, bada-boom, they're reunited with Jubilee, Bling, and uh, this Morlock meat. Well, Bling and the meat, anyway, because Jubilee... She's off to the side, and she has impaled her own hand on an exposed piece of rebar in order to drink her own blood. I didn't know that's how vampirism worked, but uh, then again, I, uh, I don't know much about vampires, besides the fact that they bore me. Jono is quick to offer up his own arm for her to suck on, which, again, I don't know that that's how it worked. Um, like, doesn't he risk... Be, does, does, does he have to be... Uh, Bit in the jugular to become a vampire, or can they be bitten anyway? I, I don't know. And so, Jubilee sucks it, uh, just as Trevor and Shogo saunter up. And so, Shogo sees his mother feasting on blood, with a bunch of the red stuff dripping from her chin. Uh, Shogo does call her mommy, by the way, which is something he's seemingly forgotten to do in our current-day post-Hoxpox books. Then again, maybe this was Mora's ninth life, where Shogo could speak. Who knows? Now, Shogo, upon seeing his mommy in such a creepy state, bursts into tears, as one might imagine. Later, at the Xavier Institute of Game Genie Coding, Needlepoint, and Balloon Animal Sciences, Benji is preparing for a date night with Nathaniel. And what I mean by that is he's carrying an armful of salty snacks into a room so they can watch a pretentious indie flick together. Now, he passes Quentin in the hallway, who says he's on his way to the laundry room. Quentin claims that there's only so many times one can wear their own underwear inside out, which is gross. Um, Inside, we join Nate and Benji, who finally get the opportunity to explain their hot-panted feelings toward one another. But this is a love not to be. You see, Nate, due to his roguish powers, can't allow himself to get too close to anyone else because... Well, a relationship with him is a rather dicey proposition here. He knows what people are thinking, right? And so a crestfallen Benji, he says he understands. Now we wrap up with Lynn petting the opossum mama in a tree, and she observes Quentin and Krakoa leaving together. So it looks like QQ is leaving the school forever. Or until next issue, I guess, whichever comes first. And that is it. The final issue of Generation X Volume 2. So next up, back to Volume 1 and our legacy numbering. And uh, I tell you what, I can't wait to see the Massachusetts Academy again. (sighs) No, okay, okay. I know it's still going to be the Volume 2 cast. We'll make the best of it when we get there. But let's talk about this this climactic ending to the uh, second volume of Generation X here. Um... As I've mentioned over the past several episodes here, the series is growing on me, and this uh, this issue is no exception to that uh, to that statement. Um, while I feel it was um, 
a bit weaker than the ones we've seen over the past uh, couple of shows, it's still like worlds better than the, the opening two or three issues were. Um, that said, uh, there are still things that it's hard not to see when you're reading this here. Um, it's very formulaic um, in that, I mean, I've, I've made allusions to it uh, over the past several shows here. These, uh, we have these X-Men wallpaper characters, right? We got these characters that just are, are there, you know, and uh, occasionally they'll realize, oh, I have a line. And just like a high school play, they step up to where their, their mark is on the stage and they deliver their one line. And then they go away Or they just go back to being background I I mean, and it's hard not to notice that Now that I've noticed it Because had I not noticed it I probably wouldn't be uh, you know, Sharing with you all And being like, wow, this is really you know, stilted feeling here This feels very unnatural It's like, why is, uh, why is uh, Blindfold here? Oh, she's here to give her one line of dialogue And then bugger off to the, to the back of the room again It's hard not to notice it when it's just so apparent and, and, you know, credit where it's due I'm glad that Strain is uh, using some of these lesser used characters, right? Giving lines of dialogue to characters who probably hadn't had a line of dialogue in Potentially years at this point The way uh, some of these characters have been presented or, or not presented So credit where it's due It's nice to see some characters getting, getting a little bit of a rub But uh, at the same time, it just feels so manufactured Um... Another thing that really stood out to me, and I did mention this during the synopsis, is that we had a uh, something that is tantamount to a a disaster, right? Uh, I don't know if it would be a national emergency, but I mean, the city of New York is kind of a kind of one of the major vessels of the United States here, and when a neighborhood, or not even a neighborhood, but a like a commercial area, a historical area, we had the museum there, when it collapses onto itself. No police, no uh, emergency services. Somehow, these kids from the Xavier School are just able to. There's no. There's no yellow tape. <laughs> there's no flares. There's nothing keeping them from just digging through rubble, and and they're not getting any help from any of the emergency services people. How does that make sense? Especially when we consider the like the haphazard way. That they're uh, that they're doing this here. We've got Quentin knocking walls on top of people, and Husk just ripping you know layers of earth away. We have Chamber blowing stuff up. Seems like uh, maybe the city would want to get involved, or maybe at least tell them to back off until they you know until they come up with a plan of how to how to approach this. I don't know. It's just one of those things that's hard not to uh, not to pay attention to. Um, and I mean, again, this is New York City, right? And there are. A lot of superheroes in New York City, right? I'm pretty sure like 80% of the Marvel Universe happens there. So no Avengers, no Spider-Man, no remnants of the Fantastic Four. Very, very strange that uh, it's just left, not even, you know, not even other X-Men. It's just these goofball kids who are looked at as being... So useless that they'll never actually make it to the X-Men squad, right? They're just going to be the ones who need to be given life training So they can figure out how to blend into society uh, once they can control their powers Uh, They're the ones in charge of disaster relief And, I don't know, (laughs) very, very bizarre Uh, Let's go underground Um, Roxy and Jubilee 
Now, Jubilee, uh, I've talked about how I don't find her to be a, a very credible leader at this point, um, but her pep talk to Roxy was uh, was was well taken. I, I think that was a, a a step in the direction of maturity for both characters. In that, uh, you know, Roxy. I mentioned it last episode that she uh, is trying to plead her case that she should be a you know first ballot contender to for membership on the X Men. But when the chips all fell, she just kind of stood there. She freaked out. She she didn't so much suffer a panic attack last issue. She just stood there, let Jubilee and uh, Jono like take care of everything while she just kind of watched. And here during this issue, she has uh, she suffers a panic attack. In which she, uh, you know, she's overwhelmed Um, The thought that uh, Monet or M-Plate is nearby is too much for her to handle And she, uh, all the air rushes out and she faints And I mean, that's a, that is a, you know, a natural reaction Especially with her, uh, with her past trauma It's, uh, it certainly stands to reason that she would suffer some sort of a panic attack If for no other reason than as a defense mechanism So she doesn't have to deal with it She passes out and so Jubilee tells her what a good job she did, and Bling knows that she, you know, she, this is kissing her sister, right? This is not, this is just something Jubilee's saying to be nice. And I think that the realization of that, because, I mean, she even brings up, you know, I just, I just had a panic attack. I, I was useless. What did I, I couldn't, I couldn't help anybody. And uh, just knowing that Jubilee cares enough about her that she would, Maybe not so much lie to her, but at least bolster her up a little bit. Try to improve her confidence enough to where she, maybe next time around, will be able to act. Will be able to react. Will be more functional in a high-stress situation. I think Roxy is able to take a you know, long look into herself and realize, you know, okay, I'm valued here. Because I think that's a big part of Roxy's issue throughout this volume, is that she feels like she's not valued. She talked either last issue or the one before that about having the same powers as Emma Frost or some Emma Frost's secondary mutation and wonders why that's not enough. So she's got this like inferiority thing and just a feeling like she's been held down and is just disrespected. And here Jubilee goes out of her way to say some kind words to her, which hopefully will, uh, you know, set in and uh, will help both characters grow. Jubilee grow as a mentor and Bling grow. As uh, someone who knows she still has a lot to learn before she can make any claims to being something that uh, perhaps she isn't and perhaps she never will be. Well, if nothing else, this uh, hopefully got her ready for her extended stint as a fallen angel in (laughs) the Dawn of X. Oh, boy. Uh, We got Benji. We got Nathaniel. We have their love that cannot be. Um, This is... uh, I mean, this feels so much like any time Rogue is in a, uh, or is potentially, or getting close to being in a relationship. It's always, you know, I can't get too close to people. I can't get too close to people for fear that uh, I'm going to know too much. I'm going to I'm gonna take from you. I'm going to hurt you. And Nathaniel here, he's got those similar um, worries. And I think it stands to reason that he should, because... All it takes is a touch, and he knows exactly what anybody's thinking and what anybody's experienced, and uh, that puts him at an advantage as well as a disadvantage because he doesn't know how he can tell when someone's lying. He can tell when someone's not being genuine. He can he can figure 
he, in a way, he can almost control behavior because the person who's with him knows that he can read them. And so they're going to uh, maybe engage in a little impression management, right? Changing their, their frame of mind, changing their behaviors, lying to themselves perhaps so they can get away with uh, not, not unintentionally hurting Nathaniel or, or giving, him, giving him more information than he needs to know. And in, in, in a way, Nathaniel's a very tragic character. I mean, in many ways, he's a very tragic character. Like I said, it's uh, just like Rogue back in the day. But that said, I, I thought uh, this was a really good scene here because you can tell that, uh, that both boys are, they are into one another. Right? They do have feelings for one another, they care for one another, but they know that, at least for now, I mean, that could change next issue, but at least for now that uh, this is not something they can pursue, and it's uh, pretty heartbreaking. I mean, we don't know, or I don't know, much about Benji, and so far we've read every single Nathaniel Carver appearance, so we don't know much about him either. So we don't know about past relationships, or even if there were any. So for both of them, this might be the first time they're coming to coming to terms with an attraction or, or looking to pursue a relationship or have an urge to be in a relationship. We just don't know, or at least I don't know. Uh, this, this might be made plain elsewhere, but uh, for now, I mean, for all I know, this might be their first, uh, you know, romantic entanglement. And the fact that it's, at least at this point, not to be, it kind of sucks, doesn't it? But you can see why they're going to do it this way. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. Because, I mean, we got three issues left to go. They're not just going to drop this. This is going to definitely continue. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it uh, all works out. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue. Um, if you agree, disagree, have any comments or anything, please feel free to hit me up. You can find me several different ways. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics. Instagram at 90sxmen, and you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sxmen, having a lot of fun conversations in there. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. It's available anywhere you find noise on the internet. And if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show and maybe tell a friend or two. It would really, really mean the world to me. Speaking of which, it means the world to me that you would spend a little bit of your day with me today. And so I thank you so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Feeling
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to Generation X Lapsed, episode 10, where we're done with volume 2. We're back into volume 1 here. This is uh, the half-hearted attempt at a uh, Rebirth Me Too in Marvel Legacy. So let's get right into it. Today we're going to be looking at Generation X number 85 at a February 2018 cover date. We actually have a story title this time. It's the first time we've had one of these uh, to this point. Story's called Survival of the Fittest Part 1. It doesn't say that anywhere inside the book. It's just on the cover. Written by Christina Strain with art by Emil Carpina. Colors, Felipe Sobraro. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Edits, Robinson, Shan, Panizia, and Alonzo. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale December 20th of 2017. Now, as always, we open with our roll call. And today we're going to be paying attention to Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. And we open somewhere in the Atlantic. Quentin Choir is laid out on a beach blanket, maybe on Kid Krakoa's back, maybe. I don't know, uh, I'm not sure if Kid Krakoa has a sandy side or if uh, he's just meant to be elsewhere. Anyway, Kid Krakoa's Wi-Fi coverage must be pretty good as QQ is getting a ton of text messages from Benji asking where he's at. Quentin tosses the phone over his shoulder, not wanting to deal with any of it. Over to the Xavier Institute of Jalapeno Deseeding, Kite Flying, and Build-A-Bear Technology, where Paige is knocking at Jubilee's door. Now, Call Me Jubes tells her to be quiet because they had just gotten Shogo to sleep. Paige realizes pretty quick that the they she's talking about are her and Jono, which might be kind of awkward, right? Uh, seeing as, you know, how tight Paige and Jono were like a hundred years ago. Though, I mean, since then, they've I think they've both been with other people. Uh, heck, Paige even engaged in uh, sexual relations in the sky with Warren Worthington while her parents watched. Anyway, Paige seems more surprised that Chamber is good with the kiddo than anything else. Then, they walk together into the kitchen, and we see just how big a slob Jubilee is. Paige starts washing the overflowing sink full of dishes and reveals the real reason that she's here. She wants to talk about Monet. Now, they do talk a bit here about how, you know, Shogo is kind of petrified of uh, Jubilee right now, since he saw her chowing down on Chamber's arm last issue. But we're going to get more of that as we uh, go on here. First, though, we shift scenes outside, where Benji and Nate are sat at a picnic table talking about the disappearance of Quentin Choir. 
We get to see some X-Men wallpaper shuffle around the background, including Glob Herman, Grey Malkin, Anolay, and that girl with the wings. But not Pixie. Uh, this is this is the one with the blue skin, uh, shorter haircut. Uh, I'm guessing she's probably one of the Skate 800 2000s era new X-Men with like the short two-syllable name, like Indra, Loa, Gentle. Maybe she's one of those. I don't know. Anyway, Roxy and iBoy wander up and comment that it's nice to see that these two crazy kids have finally gotten together as a couple. Nathaniel stammers a bit and informs them that he and Benji, they're, they're just friends, just good friends right now. This causes Ben to get up and slump-shoulderedly walk away. Before we get to the next page, we have a Marvel Legacy value stamp. Ooh, how about that? It's the Falcon. So uh, everything old is half-assedly new again. Thank you, Marvel Legacy. Back to the comic. Roxy comments that she feels like she just kicked a puppy since, uh, you know, Benji walked away. To which, Nate explains why he and Benji, as a relationship, is uh, something that can never be. He speaks of an old relationship he was in and how sideways it went due to his roguish mutant abilities. Roxy, uh, well, she listens, but then she basically just tells him to cut the crap right here, and uh, thank goodness she does. She tells him that he can't let a bad experience ruin what might be a good one with Benji. She also accuses him of projecting his last relationship onto Ben, as though he sees it as a self-fulfilling prophecy of a disastrous endeavor. Now, just as things are getting good, friggin' Nature Girl casually walks over to her mark on the stage in order to deliver her line. She says the trees are shivering, and the owls aren't quite what they seem. Uh, She didn't say that last part. Uh, She says an eerie chill this way comes, basically. And just then, we see on what would appear to be a different plane of reality, but overlapping with the one we're reading, M-Plate and DOA, they're walking across the school grounds. But nobody can see them. They're on a different plane. But as they walk by, we get to see a little bit more uh, X-Men wallpaper. We got Pixie, Dust, Oya, Surge, and some blonde girl. Oh, uh, Nature Girl also informs the crew that she watched as Kid Omega and Krakoa left the school grounds. And so it's time to shift scenes. We head into Jubilee's dorm again, or suite, or whatever. Lynn delivers the news that QQ and KK walked out of Central Park, across Manhattan's east side, past Rikers Island, through the Long Island Sound, then into the Atlantic Ocean. It's a heck of a trip, I tell you. Um, I think maybe we're thinking that Manhattan is like right there in the Atlantic. Uh, Lynn states that a little bird told her about this because, of course, it did. Now off to the side, Shogo is throwing what looks like spaghetti at Chamber while Nathaniel looks on. Jubilee asks Jono if he'll look after her class and her kid while she goes after Quentin. She then tells Shogo that she's leaving for a bit, and the terrified toddler throws his entire bowl of the spaghetti-like substance over her head. We follow Jubilee into her bedroom, and, well, so does Chamber. They walk for a bit, they talk for a bit, then they get lost in each other's eyes. And then they kiss. Well... Sorta. I mean, Jono still has his scarf on, and, um, well, he also doesn't actually have a mouth. So it might be more accurate to suggest that they romantically bumped faces? Maybe? Whatever the case, this was witnessed by Hindsight, who doesn't even bother to beat around the bush here. He's all, uh, yeah, you know, I saw everything. Don't worry about it, though. You guys are allowed to be lovey-dovey if you want to be. I'm not gonna, you know, spill the beans if you don't want me to. He then tells Jubilee that he needs to speak with her alone. What do they got to talk about? Well, maybe we'll find out next time. Because we got a scene shift again. Now we're going to the counseling office, which I suppose is at the school and not in Midtown Manhattan, despite the locational confusion a couple issues back. Anyway, Paige is meeting here with her only client, Roxy, 
who is, uh, and she's sort of kind of doing everything they tell you not to do when you're in training to be a counselor or a therapist. Uh, there are, are some leading questions here, which, you know, I get it. That happens sometimes. Um, we're trained to ask, you know, open-ended questions. That's kind of the go-to in the motivational interview, you know. That's to say, you know, questions that can't be answered with a simple yes or no response because that usually just stops the conversation right there, right? It's like, do you like this, yes or no? No. Okay, well, then you have to elaborate. So you ask the open-ended questions. And in fairness, they do sometimes come across as a little bit leading. Then, as Roxy breaks down into tears a bit, uh, Paige hands her a box of tissues... And this, at least in the classes I took, was the classic beginner's trap that a professor would lay for you. You know, there would be a box of tissues on the table for our role plays, and, uh, you know, you don't think anything of it. You know, that's kind of the pop culture thing. That's the view of a counselor or a therapist or a psychologist. They're going to have the box of tissues there. And so, for these role plays, when tears, real or fake, because sometimes they got very real in role play... When those tears would begin to flow as part of the exercise, the professor would wait to see if the mock therapist would offer the mock client the tissues. When they inevitably would, the professor would call a timeout. You see, in handing the box of tissues over, you're doing one of two things. Well, one of several things, I guess, but for the purposes of this bit, we'll say two. One, you're validating the crying. You're legitimizing it, telling the client that it's the proper response. Not a good thing, not a bad thing, but it is leading in a way. Conversely, a client may see the offer as a like a nonverbal way of the therapist telling them to stop crying. And uh, neither of these is ideal, so um, we were trained just to not hand over the box of tissues. You know, have them available, of course, if the client asks for one, oblige, but don't be the one to to make the offer. So this is a comic book, though, uh, so we will allow it. Now, the gist here is that Roxy is still reeling from her run-in with M-Plate, and she's worried about her future with or without the X-Men. If only she knew she's only like a year and a half away from being a fallen angel. You want a reason to cry, Roxy? There's, there's some reason to cry. From here, we go back over to the foyer, where Benji is ticked that nobody bothered to tell him where Quentin went off to. Lynn suggests that this reaction is due to the fact that uh, Benji's got the hot pants for Quentin. Eyeboy corrects her, claiming that Benji's actually got the hot pants for Nathaniel. Lynn doesn't see it, and wonders aloud why it is that uh, Benji follows Quentin around like a puppy all the time. Benji dramatically puts his hands on his hips and lectures Lynn about how being gay doesn't mean you can't have any guy friends. And uh, you also can't catch it from drinking out of the same bottle or using the same toilet. Uh, he, he actually didn't say that last bit. Benji then storms out to drag QQ's emo ass back home. But, outside, the school grounds have been absolutely overrun by ghosts Not only ghosts, ghosts who speak Korean. The ghosts can't seem to see the Gen X kids. iBoy confirms this. Then we see the same scene from the ghosts' point of view, and it would appear as though they are normal Xavier School students, at least from the looks of it. But to them, the school has vanished. Iboy deduces that this dimensional unsinking means that Monet is nearby. And that's a power I didn't realize that uh, M-Plate had, is the unsinking of uh, dimensions. Maybe, maybe I just missed it. Then, the school explodes. Well, part of the school does, and I'm guessing uh, that this probably wasn't referred to in any of the other X-Men books that came out this month. 
but I, you know, I might be mistaken. Inside, Chamber Jubilee and Husk hear the big racket and rush off into the hallway where they find M-Plate talking to those, uh, uh, you know, gross um, mouth vampire mouth hand thing that uh, is sucking on Marrow. Uh, not the character Marrow, though honestly I'm not sure which would be more disturbing. Jono pulls down his scarf to be all dramatic. Roxy has a panic attack and drops to her knees. Monet then hears a little bit of crying. And she wonders when they, dis- when they began admitting toddlers to the Xavier School. And so she follows that sound, and she enters the chemistry lab where iBoy, Nathaniel, Benji, and Lynn are hiding with Shogo. I-, I thought they were all outside. And then there was an explosion. So-, so they ran back inside toward the explosion with Shogo? Okay, then. Um, that's where we leave it. We got two issues to go, which... Kind of begs the question, uh, do you think the axe already fell on this one at this point? Do you think when Christina Strain was writing uh, what would have been issue 10, I suppose, of volume 2, which was changed into issue 85 of the overall <laughs> Generation X volume, do you think she knew that this was uh, winding down? I bet they probably did. I figure they probably knew, and uh, this is just a quick way to tie everything up here. Which, I mean... You know, it's a good thing that they're able to do something like that. Uh, Anytime a book gets canceled or is announced as being on the chopping block or officially canceled, that's when I start start getting caught up in the scenery. I start uh, noticing things that probably aren't there. Well, maybe they are there, but sometimes they're probably not. I look for the signs of truncation. I look for things that might be omitted, things that might be conveniently rushed into place in order to... um, allow the creator to not let go of their opus, right? Um, If anybody listening to this has uh, listened to Reggie and I discuss the Young Animal books over on the uh, Young Animal Gatherum here on the channel, those books were announced as being uh, canceled, and then, boy, the books kind of, like, crumpled into place. You know, wholesale bits were removed from the stories, Arcs were uh, squished into a half issue. It was, like, really, really jarring. And it didn't make for a very satisfying reading experience. I could totally understand the frustration of a creator who has the story that they want to tell, have the story that the respective comic book company said they could tell, and then having that rug pulled out from under them. So I can totally understand that. And I remember uh, particularly with uh, Shade the Changing Girl, or Shade the Changing Woman, as it would become, I remember thinking to myself, you know, as this thing was winding down, that there was a good story in there, but the fact that the creator would not let anything go from her original pitch, and a lot of this is me projecting here, but... uh, in the earlier issues, we had a whole bunch of uh, concepts and ideas just introduced, and uh, you look at those concepts and ideas, and you figure with the way your comics are written nowadays, all decompressed, written for the trade, it's like, okay, well, that's like several years worth of stories. You know, just in the first two issues, we're introduced to all this great stuff, all this potentially interesting stuff that would get us through to issue 25, 30, you know, at least... But the book was canceled at number six, so, you know, a lot of, uh, you'd figure a lot of trimming would have to be uh, done to make it work, and maybe save some stories for another time, right? Maybe we'll hold out hope that whatever comic company will come to their senses, or maybe there'll be a resurgence of excitement toward a property, or 
Maybe the CW will decide to do a friggin' Shade the Changing Girl TV show. Who the hell knows? But instead of leaving some things by the wayside to be revisited later on, everything was crammed in there. So all of these concepts were just jammed into these into the last four issues of this series, which it wasn't it didn't do anybody any favors here. It made the story feel weak. It made the story feel just so unnatural. And um, and it also, you know, closed the door on revisiting this character anytime soon. Um, I mean, who's to say that a character couldn't come back around? You know, it happens all the time. It happened with the X-Men, right? So uh, I look at a book like this, which, I mean, we've got two issues left. I'm, I'm guessing Strain probably knows that uh, time is of the essence here. So we're, we're getting everything kind of woven together. But it's, at first blush here, it feels like it's being done in a very organic way here. At the end of this, I would assume that we're going to have the Quentin Choir thing wrapped up. We're going to have some sort of resolution with Benji and Nathaniel. We're going to have the Monet thing worked out. I mean, those are our big things here, right? Those are the three big things that we've run into in this volume so far. Thankfully, it wasn't just like an embarrassment of riches insofar as concepts and ideas. It's Those are our main three things, the main three thrusts of this uh, volume. So it looks like they're all coming together here. And I, uh, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I have all the faith in the world that they will come together in some sort of a satisfying way. Oh, and, and how could I forget uh, the fourth takeaway here? Uh, Bling, Roxy's uh, you know inferiority complex here, which is also kind of bubbling in the background here. It it works, you know. We've got two issues to go. That's like what forty pages. <laughs> so hopefully, over the course of the next two issues, we will see some uh, some really good stuff here. Some stuff that'll leave us maybe not you know with our socks rocked, but uh, at least satisfied in that uh, we read something and. Uh, we maybe don't have to revisit it again, but we, we learned something here. And we also know that Jubilee will be defanged at some point in the next couple of issues. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think I've already given my thoughts on the Marvel Legacy uh, initiative overall. I feel like it's half-assed. Uh, they saw what DC was uh, reaping the benefits of finding the lapsed fan with uh, their Rebirth initiative and was like, ooh, we want some of that. And uh, I guess they went on the internet and was like, why Why do the lapsed fans not like us? Oh, we reboot all the time. Oh, okay, okay, so how about we, uh, how about we go back to legacy numbering here? And we'll also make these really, really cringy ads that make it look like a, like a millennial take on an old-school uh, house ad. We'll just, we'll do that. That'll, that'll make everything better. And uh, we certainly won't forget about this initiative in the next, you know, month and a half, two months. But, uh, well, they did. <laughs> They really, really did. Um, and it's a shame because uh, this was one of the things that made me a little bit excited for uh, for a potential return to uh, to the Marvel fold after walking away. Uh, when I heard about Legacy, it was, you know, my uh, my spidey sense tingled, right? It was like, oh, you know, I that might be uh, that might be the my my entry, my entryway back into the uh, into the fandom over there. But uh, then something happened. Um, I, I, I've talked at length, or not at length, but repetitively, <laughs> repeatedly, there's the word. I've talked repeatedly about uh, how I get my comics. I get them through mail order from DCBS. And occasionally, they'll throw something in there, either by mistake or as a freebie to me. And uh, one time, I, I'm guessing that they probably ordered a uh, surplus of this book in order to get some sort of 
ridiculous variant cover or something, but uh, they sent me an issue, a copy of uh, Marvel Legacy Number One, the uh, thing that was supposed to kick off the Legacy Initiative, and I uh, and I didn't order it, but I was like, oh, you know, it's like a six or seven dollar book. They sent it to me for free. I'll at least flip through it, and I didn't really recognize anything inside it. So um, that's where my hopes were dashed with the Legacy thing, and then. I remember getting excited for Generation X in particular because of the lenticular cover that was for this very issue, actually, for issue 85. It's uh, basically a, um, a a new take on the Chris Pachalo Generation X number one cover, just with our more contemporary characters in those positions. And it was like, oh, that looks so cool, you know? And it's like, that's, you know, my wheelhouse right there, and they're they're paying tribute to that. I never thought I'd see that book on the racks again, and oh boy, I was so excited for it. And I'm pretty sure by the time that issue came out, they already announced that it was canceled. So it's like, why? Why am I going to get invested? Why? I don't even know why they wasted the. Uh, I don't know why they wasted their time uh, shifting this back to legacy numbering here. Just let it go to volume two, number twelve. Can it and uh, tag it and bag it, and we'd be done with it. But now I've kind of gone all over the place, and I haven't even really discussed the issue we just read. So let's do a little bit of that here. Um, I did talk a bit about the uh, the therapy session between Paige and Roxy. While not, you know, accurate to the way I was trained, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, anecdotal at best here. I know that people have different methodologies when it comes to that sort of thing, so I would never say mine, the one that I was trained with, is the correct one or even the incorrect one, but it's just the one that I know. So to me, it came across as inaccurate or inefficient, um potentially problematic, even though I don't like that word very much. But uh, to other people, it may have rang perfectly true. You know, other people who went through the same sort of uh, education as me might have seen that and been like, yeah, that's how it goes. So, I mean, that's just a me thing. That's a Chris problem right there that I uh, can't seem to let go. But uh, other than that, we finally get Jubilee and Chamber kissing. I think uh, we've been waiting for that scene to play out uh, the whole time we've been reading this, uh, this new take on Generation X. It seemed... Inevitable, and um, it was handled okay. I, I think uh, that it's it's kind of an organic relationship here. They know each other for such a long time, and uh, they're seeing each other now as grown-ups. And they still have some baggage from their youth, but it's a, it's a to- totally different dynamic now. They're not the students anymore. They're the teachers. They're looked up to. They're uh, respected in, in a way, right? And they see each other, and they see what each other have gone through, and there's a respect there and an admiration there, and... Uh, it looks like a little bit of hot, hot pantedness there as well, and uh, I think it was handled quite well here. Also, the uh, budding Benji Nathaniel uh, will they won't they relationship. I like the way that was handled too. Um, Nathaniel's definitely you know protesting a bit too much here, right? He's uh, making sure everyone knows you know hey we're not a couple, we're not a couple. You know he's he's not denying that there's an attraction there. He's not a t- uh, he's not denying that there's a uh, a mutual admiration there. It's just that they're not a couple, and he's he spun himself into the altruist, right? He's going to do without in order not to hurt the other person, right? He's had bad he's had a bad relationship, and he's taking from that experience and projecting it onto Benji, which is a very teenagery thing to do. I, you know, it's a very adult, it's a very human thing to do. Um, Things like uh, projection and transference, those are very real things in life where you can, 
You can project thoughts onto people. You can project an identity onto people. You can project experiences onto people. So that's an easy trap to fall into here, and I think it's being handled quite well here. I think this is where Christina Strange shines. It's not so much in the superhero work, right? Um, It's not even so much in the uh, maintaining a large cast, because... As I've mentioned time and again here, it's like there are little X's taped to the ground outside the Xavier School where when somebody has to deliver a line, they step up to that X and deliver that damn line. So that's not where I think she excels, but in this interpersonal sort of relationship here, it works, and it sounds very natural. I mean, we always give uh, Bendis credit for capturing uh, realistic voices of the youth, right? This, to me, felt kind of like that. We've got uh, Nathaniel explaining everything to Roxy and Iboy, and Roxy's like, ah, cut the crap. You know, she calls him right out on it, has no time for his nonsense, and tries to set him straight, you know? And it's like, you can't hold that against him. You know, this is, you're missing out now. You're, you're, you're actually robbing yourself of a potentially good experience and robbing someone else who you claim to care about of a, of a you know, rewarding experience. So cut it out. Get over yourself. And, uh... I think it worked quite well in driving that point home. It was just a, it felt like a conversation you would either overhear or be a part of. And uh, in in that much, uh, I will give it a thumbs up for sure. Our big threat here with Monet, um, I'm not sure about the reality altering powers. I didn't remember, maybe that's something that she can do. I I didn't think she could. I didn't think, uh, maybe it's just a, maybe it's DOA who can do it. I don't know (laughs) if you remember this better than I do. Please feel free to reach out and, and set me straight because uh, this this seems a little weird and it seems kind of out of nowhere. Which is one of those reasons why I'm thinking like, okay, they knew you know the axe had fallen at this point. And they gotta, you know, the, the the hook is coming. You know, you gotta take it home before you're yanked off the stage. Um, a little bit of the linear storytelling is is wonky, as I've complained about a few times. Not complained about. I've observed. I've observed and uh, made mention of. Throughout this trip here Things like Where the hell's Paige's office? Is it in uh, Is it in the school? Is it in Somewhere else in Manhattan? Because It looks like it's in Both places or neither places Right? We don't know how people get from point A to point B We go from a scene where uh, Where the kids are outside the school There's an explosion To five seconds later And they're in the chemistry lab Inside the school How did that happen? Why did they Why did that happen? That just seems I don't know Kinda amateur hour in as far as uh, telling a linear story So uh, maybe it's just me Maybe it's just me, I don't know But uh, I think those are my thoughts for this issue here uh, Milk Arpina's work uh, Still not my cup of tea um, I will say that I've come around to it A bit more than I thought I would uh, Especially, you know, when we started this little trip Because I was definitely Not a fan of it in the earlier issues here Right now, I'm um, you know, it's not rocking my socks. It's also not, uh, it's also not setting me on fire. So it's just kind of, just kind of there. But I think that's all I got. If uh, you agree or disagree, I would love for you to let me know. You can reach out to me a number of different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could find me on Instagram at Nineties X Men, or you can shoot me an email over to WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. You can join us on Facebook at Nineties X Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie comics listening needs, including that entire Young Animal Gatherum that I talked about earlier, those 
the language there is a little bit saltier than uh, you're accustomed to. So uh, listen, uh, listener discretion is advised. But uh, you can find all that stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and you can find it anywhere, Apple or Google or any of those conglomerate giants uh, aggregate noise on the Internet. That's where you can find it. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to leave me a message or spread the word, share the show, all that good stuff. It would really, really mean a lot. Speaking of which, it means a lot to me that you'd spend a little bit of your day with me today listening to me talk about uh, Marvel Legacy. Thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to the penultimate episode of Generation X Labs. This is episode 11, and uh, yeah, we're really getting close to the end here. How about that? Uh, felt like it was never going to come, and uh, now it feels like it's getting here way too quickly. Let's just get right into it here. This is Generation X number number 86, had a March 2018 cover date. Story's called Survival of the Fittest Part 2, I'm assuming. It doesn't have a title inside the book, but... We do have that banner on the uh, cover that says Survival of the Fittest, and since this is the second part of that, I am, uh, I'm putting two and two together here and uh, coming up with the, uh, the idea that this is a part two. Written by Christina Strain with art by Amilcar Pinna, 
Colors, Felipe Sobrero, Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles, Edits, Robinson, Shan, Panizia, and Alonzo. Cover price $3.99. This one went on sale January 17 of 2018. And uh, we start with our roll call as per usual. Our characters include Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. And we open on Krakoa. Oh, which show is this again? <clears throat> oh, There, Quentin Quire is practicing shooting psychic skeet using some Krakoan coconuts. Which sounds kind of dirty, but I assure you it's, it's not. Then, he notices the blackbird hovering in the sky above. And so, he asks Kid Krakoa to suddenly jerk to the side a bit before the, uh, the aircraft lands. Now, Jubilee, the only passenger on the blackbird, is not amused at all. Now, I didn't realize Jubilee knew how to pilot an aircraft. Maybe I'm just not supposed to be thinking about that. Anyway, she lands and heads into Quentin's cabana, where he is busily playing video games. Like, lots and lots of video games here. We see a PlayStation 4, a Super Nintendo, a DS, and I want to say an Xbox 360 here as well. There's also a whole lot of mess, because... He's a slob. I mean, we see your classic can pyramid, uh, some empty bottles, open Chinese takeout containers. It's, it's kind of like the show that your character is a slob starter kit that I think they sell at uh, Costco. Now, Jubilee comments on the mess and for some ungodly reason decides to pick up a rather crunchy towel that had been flung over the couch. And she asks if it's clean. To which I'd figure, um, maybe don't ask questions you don't want the answer to. Quentin does answer this question, and I, you know, I try to keep this show all ages. But uh, Quentin suggests that uh, if you see a towel in a young man with extremely fast internet speeds room, you probably ought not pick it up. <clears throat> he then insults her, calling her a failure, just like her loser squad students who he secretly wishes came along with her to check in on him, because he's really a great big softie, you see. Jubilee composes herself before lashing out, and remembers what Nathaniel had told her about Quentin, really being a great big softie. And so she kind of lets his insults slide. She then asks if Quentin will please come home with her. She says his fellow students all want him there, to which he calls BS. Jubilee assures him that it's not, and tells him that she will help him find his way there. But in order for her to do so, he's going to have to let her, and also let the loser squad be his family. Quentin lashes out into a phoenix rage, filling Jubilee and those of us who don't read Thor in on recent adventures he had over in that book. And since this is uh, the half-assed Marvel Legacy era, we actually do get an editorial footnote which directs us over to the Mighty Thor Volume 3, Number 19, which came out nearly a year before this issue, uh, May 17th, 2017. Makes me figure that maybe someone finally filled Christina Strain in on what was uh, you know, Quentin was up to before this book started. Uh, it's worth noting that that Thor story is called The Asgard Shi'ar War, And, you know, if I had to make a guess, that's probably the story that fills the spinner racks in hell. Because, oof. Um, Now, now also during that story, you know, he got his phoenix powers, but he also offered to uh, bring Sophie Cuckoo back to life. But she turned him down. So, uh, yeah, how how things have changed with with mutants not wanting to come back to life. And... uh, well, Quentin is with a cuckoo now in the, in the pages of X-Force. It's Phoebe, though, not Sophie. 
Now, this chat is interrupted when Jubilee gets a message on her Apple Watch, which informs her that the school is gone. Well, the art and the storytelling didn't make that overly clear last issue, so I guess it's a good thing to know. She tells Quentin that the school and everyone in it had disappeared, and our boy QQ actually looks quite troubled. Now, I mean, last issue, it just looked like things were, like, displaced, like... They were there, but not there, but I guess they're just not there. And so let's shift scenes over to the displaced Xavier Institute of Shoe Shining, Ethical Hacking, and Fermentation Sciences, where the kids are in the chem lab trying to get Shogo to shut up, you know, lest Monet and her disgusting vampire hand find them. Now, Chamber calls out to them psychically with a plan uh, when he signals they're to fleet-foot it out of there with the tot. Now, that signal turns out to be him unleashing a great big blast of fire into Monet's face. And I guess that's about as unsubtle as it gets, and thankfully so, because uh, the loser squad doesn't even question it. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is all they do is run into, like, another nearby classroom. Or maybe it's Paige's makeshift counseling room, which, if that is the case, I suppose isn't in Midtown Manhattan like it appeared to be a few issues back. A little, uh, a little weird spatial um, <laughs> discontinuity there. Anyway, there they run into Paige, who's comforting Roxy, who's in the middle of another panic attack. We then see across the room where Hellion and Surge have already been taken out by M-Plate. In the hallway, Chamber is fighting Monet, and Husk tears off some skin to join in the fracas. She and Monet kind of sass at one another for a bit before the latter unleashes some sort of energy blast. Just what in the hell are Monet's powers, according to this book, anyway? Basically, whatever they need them to be, I guess. Anyway, this energy blast uh, causes chunks of ceiling in the room that the Loser Squad are in to come crashing down, and Benji dives under some falling debris before it can hit Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's like, why did you do that? And Benji's like, well, you kind of know why. And so Nate pulls Benji's collar up over his mouth and then kisses him. Finally! Uh, He says he was an idiot for wanting to remain just friends with Benji, and uh, it's about damn time, right? Then, Monet and Husk come crashing through yet another wall. I'm surprised there are any walls left. Paige is trying to get through to the real Monet, but M-Plate ain't having none of it. Nate then goes to smash Monet in the back of her head with a plank of wood. This does not go so well, but it does get her attention. And so she grabs our POV guy by the face, which triggers his roguish mutant ability. And we see three panels of M's history here. Only one of these panels comes from the long ago, and it's basically just her and Jubilee being mean girls to one another, because uh, it's Marvel Legacy, we gotta remember our past. The next is from that weird Uncanny X-Men volume where she and M-Plate merged, and the last is her talking with DOA before this attack. And it's here that we find out that it's DOA who pulled the whole unsinking of the school gimmick, which... I didn't know that was his power, and I also, in fairness, didn't know it wasn't. So, there you go. Now, while we're seeing Monet's memories, we also get a glimpse of Nathaniel's, or I guess Monet does, and us by proxy. Now, we see that his mother beat him, like, literally whipped him. I'm not sure if this had anything to do with, like, maybe she found out he was gay or something. It's not clear here if she's just an awful person or just, well, an awful person (laughs) in another way. Now, we find out that Nate's father knew all about this abuse, but did nothing to stop it. Finally, we see him with his old boyfriend, and uh, we see how their relationship fell apart due to his uncanny abilities, because despite the fact that his his beau wasn't talking about it, Nathaniel knew that he had uh, feelings for another. Now, the most important bit for this pressing story, however, is the uh, the DOA thing. You know, he's the one behind the, the desyncing here. 
And so Nature Girl and I, boy, go searching the grounds for the little fella. And Roxy stays behind to face her fears and fight M-Plate. Uh, it doesn't take the team long to find DOA because, uh, I mean, in fairness, it's, it's iBoy, and he could pretty much see anything he needs to. Now, DOA's in a cellar, which Nature Girl sends a bunch of rats down in to draw the little geek out. iBoy recalls Ling telling him that she didn't trust rats and how they always wanted something in return when asked for a favor. And she just cracks her knuckles and says, this time it'll be worth it. Back inside, Roxy has gotten her butt kicked by Monet. Now, before the baddie can go in for the kill, Jubilee arrives, so I guess we're no longer desynced then. Okay. Quentin is also there, and he sees Benji cradling Nathaniel and jokes that he's surprised that these two are even still alive. Monet remembers that Jubilee's a vampire and references that one issue before Counter-X kicked off with uh, the Monet the Vampire Slayer cover. I mean, Marvel Legacy, everybody, we gotta remember. She grabs Jubilee's amulet and throws her outside on the lawn. The thing is, here, Jubilee cannot survive the sunlight without the amulet, so she's going to burn up. And, in fact, she does begin to burn up right before her team. Now, it's here where Quentin Quire taps into his phoenix powers to... devampify and remutantify Jubilation Lee. So she's far less flang and a whole lot more paff. And we're out of here. Well, that was the uh, that was the scene that we read this entire series to see. Um, I knew that uh, Jubilee became uh, devampified and remutified uh, in this series, and that was basically the entire reason for this endeavor. I wanted to see how that played out, and uh, well, yeah, we saw it play out, didn't we? Um, it's basically the uh, the X Men uh, variation on a wizard did it, right? Uh, Quentin Quire just does the thing, which I mean is. All well and good, and it's perfectly fair in the uh, presentation, but it's one of those things that, if you stop to think about it, you wonder, like, why hasn't he just been remutantifying people, right? You know, uh, this is, of course, post-M-Day. Uh, we have some mutants back. It's not the way it was. Um, we still have the, you know, the pretender out there <laughs> who had uh, de- uh, or no more mutantified uh, a million mutants. I don't know why Quentin is uh, being so stingy with his powers here, other than the fact that he's, you know, kind of a dick. I guess that could be the whole thing here. Um, I don't know where Quentin's Phoenix powers went. That might be a uh, project for later. Um, I do know that there was the the Psy War, or whatever they were calling it, toward the tail end of the Jean Grey, uh, well, (laughs) technically ongoing series that ran like 11 issues, but... uh, Maybe that's something we'll have to uh, check in on and uh, get a better understanding of these Phoenix powers and uh, why he doesn't have them anymore and why they are now uh, attached to Echo over in the Avengers. I mean, I've got the Jean Grey books probably three feet away from me right now, so maybe maybe we'll do a Generation X-Lapse show. I mean, that sounds really stupid, but... Uh, I've done worse, so maybe we'll do Generation X Labs to see how that all plays out. I've been intrigued to check it out. I've definitely been intrigued to check that series out. I've heard good things about it, but I don't hear much about it, so it might be worth a visit or a dip sometime down the line. But that's really um, like the main takeaway from this issue here. And I mean, of course it is, because Jubilee hadn't been a mutant for 
near 15 years at this point, if I'm not mistaken. So it's a pretty big deal to see her back and having her, uh, her old fireworks powers here fills in some blanks for us who were ex-lapsed, you know, not knowing how these powers came back and uh, not really digging the vampire thing enough to even really be able to speak to it. Uh, Jubilee, since she became a vampire in that uh, awful Victor Gishler um, opening arc in X-Men Volume 3, I kind of she was kind of like out of sight, out of mind for me. I, I know she's been with the X-Men, and I know she was part of the uh, that all-women uh, team that uh, popped up probably during one of the Marvel Nows. I don't know which one, because there were like four of them in a row. But uh, she was part of that team, and I think that's where she found Shogo, and it was tied up with the Sublime organization, and a lot of stuff that uh, kind of makes me glaze over. Maybe one of these days we'll... Uh, when I invent, you know, five or six more days every week, we'll uh, we'll dig into those as well. Another big takeaway here: uh, we have Benji and Nathaniel finally, finally, uh, not so much sealing the deal, but at least kissing, um, at least admitting, Nathaniel at least admitting that he has feelings uh, for Benji, Benji, and realizes that uh, he was foolish to try to deny that and. Uh, and disrespectful in, you know, not allowing them to experience uh, potential joy and a hopefully fruitful relationship between the two. So it kind it's kind of weird that it took Benji literally saving his life for him to notice this. But uh, I don't know, baby steps, right? I thought that was pretty cool. I liked the way uh, the you know he utilized Benji's collar, you know, so he, they wouldn't do the skin-to-skin contact because, I, I mean, they're still... There, there are still things that need to be protected, right? If he were to kiss Benji and would have gotten some strange thoughts, it would have, it might have soured the scene for him a little bit. So, and now we see that, you know, when uh, M or M Plate, I guess, touched Nathaniel, she sort of got his memories. I think I'm not really sure how this presentation was going here because we did see it. It's like a two-page spread of Monet holding uh, Nathaniel's face, right? And on, on one of the pages, we see all these scenes of pay, of, uh, of Monet's past. And then on the other page, we see all these scenes of Nathaniel's past. So I don't know if that means that there's a like a fluid exchange of memories here. So like if anybody that that Nathaniel touches, like does he have to like consciously keep his memories inside? So like when he was touching Quentin to like find out some information a couple issues ago, Quentin didn't suddenly get all of Nathaniel's memories. Right? So maybe it's something he has to like consciously keep inside. So if he is lost in, I mean, Monet attacked him, so he's going to be in a weakened state uh, mentally, right? And maybe not have the same amount of control over his, over his memory based powers as he would have normally. Just like when he touched Quentin here, he probably was hyper focused on not sharing information with Quentin. But here we have him kissing, which, I mean, that, that could put you in a very vulnerable state as well. You can kind of let yourself go. You could just get lost in the moment with your, with your partner, with your significant other, and it becomes all about that moment where you lose, uh, you lose uh, maybe composure. You lose a lot of um, awareness, right, <laughs> of, uh, of certain things. So maybe in the heat of passion, if he's kissing Benji... Maybe some of his memories would just be, you know, let out into the ether and uh, Benji would see some of them and maybe that would cause some sort of uh, potential strife. You never, you never know. 
You never know. But I was definitely happy to see uh, a little bit of maturation in their relationship. It's uh, almost a shame that we only have one more issue with them, and I really don't know if we see these two after this uh, after this volume is uh, no more. I don't think we've seen them on Krakoa. Um, I really can't say if we've seen them any time since here. So uh, I guess we'll just have to uh, wait and see. And uh, I tried not to check out the uh, the old wikis here because uh, the only thing I check out on the wiki is the sale day. So I can say this went on sale on yada yada yada. I don't want to know anything about the characters because I'm afraid that's going to spoil us. And I'm trying to receive these as I would have, you know, in, in, in contemporarily. You know, like if I was buying these on the day it went out on sale, read it right away, and didn't have anything to kind of... Uh, Hold my hand or skew my perspective And uh, give me something that I should be paying attention to Or looking forward to or or just seeing on the horizon So I haven't read any of their wikis here Maybe after I do uh, issue 12 Or not issue 12, issue 87 I guess it is, 87 Then maybe we'll uh, do a sort of kind of deep dive on these two characters Uh, We can can do a fake-ass comics history on on I... uh, Not I, boy, on hindsight and uh, morph We'll... We'll play with that as we uh, as we move forward here. Uh, speaking of maturation, Roxy staying uh, behind to uh, to fight Monet. I, I mean, that was basically what her character's been building to this whole time, you know. And I think this is a really cool way to do it. And even cooler is that she didn't win because had she won, I think that would have been a little too neat and a little too convenient. Um, and you, I think you can learn a lot more in losing than in winning sometimes, uh, especially. When you're when you're trying to rally yourself to overcome fear and make yourself a person that maybe you're not, or maybe you're just not yet, like Roxy sees herself as a shoe in to the X Men here, and when she finds out she's not, she becomes all about proving that she is. So had she just beaten Monet up here, it would have been like, oh well, she was right all along, you know, where she very well might be right, but you need to get there. I think the victory will be sweeter if she if she actually matures a bit rather than just saying, you know what, I'm done being scared, and then wins. So uh, this was very well done. I like her not only just in general, but I like this arc a lot for her here. I mean, we've seen her freeze up. We've seen her have panic attacks. We've seen her crying. We've seen her running away. And here, finally, despite the fact that she gets her butt kicked, she faces her fear. And uh, that's a good thing. And I think that's... Um, one of the net positives that'll come out of this volume that uh, that I think pretty much everyone except us has forgotten about. So that's a that's a decent enough thing. I mean, she she will go on to become a fallen angel, and uh, well, there are a few worse fates than that, aren't there? But uh, for now, uh, I think this is <laughs> pretty good stuff here. But I think that's all I got to say. A uh, Milkar Pinna's work is a Milkar Pinna's work. Um, still not my favorite, but a little bit less. Um, a little bit less of an obstacle for me than it was in the earliest issues here. But then again, the earliest issues, I found the story to be very, very poor as well, where now it feels like it's coming together. It took a long, long time to get the wheels under this one, which is unfortunate, especially in the current climate uh, of the comic book industry, where it's like you don't always have the time. You know, Uh, Marvel especially will pull the rug out from under you right away. So... That's like a word to the wise here. If you're if you're given a project that might be a little niche, you know, hit the ground running. 
because you don't have. I know you want the six issue trade, you know, but we don't need six issues of putting a team together. That is a tremendous waste of precious paginal real estate. And at the end of the day, it's a uh, kind of a slap in the face to people paying money for it because we don't want to wait, you know. And I, I hope that doesn't sound. What, what's that word that people say about us comic book fans now? Uh, entitled? But uh, you got to understand the realities of the industry. And if we're six or seven issues in and we're finally like, okay, I get it now, that's still four or five issues too late to, to get to that point. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about this penultimate issue of Generation X. And uh, next time out, we will wrap this thing up. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. Now let's hop into contact information. If you'd like to reach out, say how much you love and or hate Generation X or anything that we talk about here on the show, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. I also opened up a voicemail. Since we are coming up to the 200th episode of X-Labs, I thought it would be a fun idea to just... Open up a, uh, a voicemail. I don't know if we'll keep it forever. If uh, people like it, I guess we can. So if you'd like to call in and leave a message here, you could call 623-396-5375. And if that's hard to remember, just think of it as 623-396-JERK. As in, as in you know, Professor Xavier is a and uh, nothing off color, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to get uh, any of those kind of calls here, right? But uh, yes, 623-396-JERK is where you get a hold of uh, the X-Lapsed program and leave all your wonderful messages there. Uh, you could find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. It's growing every week and we're having a great time talking about New, old, and future X stuff there. It's a real fun conversations. I hope to see you there. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary chatter needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Uh, and uh, if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show, tell two friends, and ask them to tell two friends, just like uh, that old shampoo commercial. So that would really, really mean the world to me. And uh, speaking of which, it means the world to me that you'd share some of your day with me today. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Welcome to episode 12 of Generation X Lapsed This is the final episode of Generation X Lapsed uh, Felt like we would never get here But then all of a sudden it uh, it felt like it was uh, in a hurry to get here uh, it's, uh, it's a weird series, it's a weird series I uh, started this thing out really dreading it And uh, here we are, about to let it go And uh, I think I might actually miss it So uh, Let's get right into it here. This is Generation X number 87. Of course, we are back with the legacy numbering for the whole three issues that they gave us of legacy numbering. Uh, This had an April 2018 cover day, written by Christina Strain, with art by Emilk Arpina. Colors, Felipe Sobrairo. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Edits, Robinson, Shan, Panizia, and not Alonzo, but C.B. Sobolski. This is the first time we see him on this book. And, and the last time, I suppose. Uh, cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale February 21 of 2018. Now for the final time, let's do our Generation X roll call. Our characters include Jubilee, Bling, Kid Omega, Nature Girl, Morph, Hindsight, and iBoy. Now we pick up right where we left off, where uh, Jubilee was a... Uh, she got her path back. Uh, Quentin Quire did the thing, and uh, she's back to being a mutant, and thankfully, no longer a vampire. Now, iBoy and Lynn are there to witness this all go down. Now, thankfully, Trevor shielded little Shogo's eyes this time around, so he didn't get to see his mother in a bad way again, just like uh, he watched her take a uh, you know a big old bite out of uh, Chamber's arm a couple issues back, which, as you might imagine, really freaked him out. Now, Lynn suggests that the uh, Phoenix is the culprit, because, I mean, why not? I mean, if you're a writer who wants to undo something, and you have access to the Phoenix, you'd be crazy not to use that to your advantage, right? I mean, it's pretty easy stuff. Now, meanwhile, M-Plate is uh, squeezing the stuffing out of, I suppose now, former Phoenix Shard host, Quentin Quire. Chamber cries out to uh, him, her, or it to put the kid down, which, I mean, why not just get in there and start punching, Jono? I mean, you're just going to yell at her? Now, the point here is rendered moot when Call Me Jubes enters the room. M-Plate dumps QQ into what looks like a bottomless pit, but is actually just a, uh, a piece of really awkward perspective. Now, she turns her attention to the former vampire, she being M-Plate, and they fight back out to the front lawn. Bling and Benji then check in on Quentin. Uh, Quentin's t-shirt reads Holiday in Genosha, which, you know, I'm not a person who's easily offended, but I would imagine there might be some folks in the Marvel Universe who wouldn't appreciate that shirt so much. Anyway, Benji then helps Nathaniel up to his feet, and they make the goo-goo eyes at one another. Nate reveals that there was a method to his madness last issue when he laid hands on Monet. You see, she took a bit of his power with her, which I didn't realize was a power that she had. Uh, It's not like she's sink, right? 
I, I don't know. We'll just we'll just go with it. So yeah, Monet, which is a word that my damn Google Doc keeps wanting to autocorrect to money, has a bit of Nathaniel's roguish powers, which makes it so if she touches anyone else, she'll form a connection with them, thus weakening her existing connection with her brother Marius, if you dig. And I mean, if we squint and assume Monet has this weird secondary mutation, it almost makes sense, right? Well, Benji turns to Nate and is like, yeah, cool story, man, and then he turns to Quentin so they can actually get something done. QQ reveals here that he is temporarily out of juice. He's got no powers to speak of, at least for the moment. And so Bling is all rut-row. Now back outside, the legacy Gen Xers do battle. We've got Jubilee, Paige, and Jono fighting off Monet and barely making a dent. Then, Bling runs up and socks Monet in the face. This also doesn't make a dent, but it wasn't supposed to. You see, this was all a distraction. Because the real Bling rushes in from behind and ear claps Monet. The Bling that punched her was actually Benji with his morphing powers, you see. So as Bling lays hands on Monet, the remnants of Nathaniel's powers allow her to transmit some memories into the baddie. And so, Monet gets to see all the torment that she's put Bling through. That's, I mean, that's been a running thing through this whole series, that Bling has some unfortunate history with M-Plate. Now, Eyeboy and Benji shout at Jubilee to touch Monet. Lynn calls for some birds to come and start pecking at Monet to keep her off balance. Um, and an internal conflict brews between the St. Croix here. Uh, Marius tells her that the memories she's seeing are not their own. Then, Jubilee, Paige, and Jono all run in and lay hands on their former teammate, which gives us a page of Marvel Legacy, y'all. Uh, basically, Monet memories from the very first issue of Generation X, and some stuff that appeared on covers of Generation X, and then the death of Sink. So, real, real deep cuts here. I mean, right in line with the rest of the uh, half-assed Marvel Legacy uh, initiative. Now, this is somehow enough for Monet to purge M-Plate from her body. Now, creepy and uh, emaciated, Marius freaks out and he attempts to reconnect, but he's paffed away by Jubilee. And uh, there he lets out a really exaggerated no before being whisked away to his home dimension. And that's that. We jump ahead just a little bit and pick back up at the Xavier Institute of Decision Sciences, Floral Management, and Piano Pedagogy's Infirmary. Now, where I'm happy to report that they added a second bed. You know, we've had one bed in this room for a long time now. We've got two because I guess we have two injured mutants, you see, so we need two beds. Now, Quentin is being observed and attended to by Phoebe Cuckoo, who uh, we now know as his girlfriend during the current year stuff. Uh, this is back in the day where the Cuckoos had different haircuts and hair colors, so we could tell them apart, even though I still couldn't tell you which one was which unless they explicitly told us. Now, Benji comments on Quentin giving up his Phoenix Shard to repower Jubilee. But QQ figures it ain't no thing, because uh, he's already seen the future, and he knows that he'll eventually become the Phoenix anyway. Now, believe it or not, this actually warrants an editor's footnote, which refers us to Wolverine and the X-Men, Volume 1, Number 37. So, uh, I mean, A, hey, how about that? You know, we got a, we got a, uh, we got a footnote. And B, could you imagine an X-Men comic actually reading, reaching its 37th issue nowadays? I just can't. Now, Jubilee pops over to thank Quentin for his help. He just wants to know if she'll talk to Kitty on his behalf about letting him stick around. And she says she will, so long as that's what he wants. And 
he's like, well, you know, my powers are kind of caca right now, so I don't have much of a choice. So there you go. Benji then hugs Quentin, telling him it felt like he was gone forever, despite only being gone like three or four days. QQ does not quite know how to take this. Outside in the entryway, Paige and Jono have a pretty forced heart-to-heart conversation, and it's kind of that whole playful, if you hurt my friend, I'll kill you sort of thing from Paige, because, you know, Jubilee and Jono kind of have the hot pants for one another. Now, Jubilee enters the scene, steps to her mark, and delivers her line. She and Jono decide to head up to her room for a bit. Now, it's worth noting, Shogo is talking up a blue streak here. Um, I don't know what happened to him since then, but uh, eh, I think we're the only ones that remember that this was a series anyway. Next stop, we're in either Benji or Nathaniel's room, where they're awkwardly facing each other. It looks kind of like a scene out of a soap opera, where both characters like want to make sure that they're facing the camera as well as the person they're supposed to be talking to. It's a little awkward, but uh, the good news is they finally make out for real without a you know without a shirt collar in the way, and they wind up sharing a bunch of their memories. Uh, we get to see Benji getting told off by Cyclops, uh, then a few of Nate and Benji's little sidebars over the months, or weeks, or days, how, however long it's been since issue one. I couldn't tell you. It might be 20 minutes, it might be a year and a half. Just don't know. We now head to the end, and it's a few days later, and we're in Central Park, because of course we are. Lynn is having some squirrels hang a banner. Eyeboy wanders up to inquire what sort of deal she had cut with the rats last issue. Anybody else remember that? Anybody care about that? I I didn't think so. Uh, She tells him not to worry about it, but assures him that when it happens, she'll keep him safe. So, okay. I'm sure we're all, you know, on bated breath here for the Revenge of the Rats miniseries. That's surely coming from Marvel. Meanwhile, Benji and Nathaniel are talking about uh, that, you know, uh, analog to Magic the Gathering that uh, Nathaniel plays. Quentin Quire walks over and he christens Nate as Hindsight, which, I mean, that's kind of what we've been calling him since Jump Street. Uh, He also comments on how Benji picked Nathaniel instead of him. And I didn't even realize Quentin was interested in the first place. I thought he was uh, all into Idy. Oh well. Um, The three boys agree that Hindsight is a pretty dope nickname, even though I doubt we'll ever see him again. Uh, next, Roxy steps to her mark to deliver her line. Now, we're all in Central Park, of course, and we find out that this little gathering is actually a going-away party for her. She's uh, going to be returning home in order to practice living among humans. And she promises that this isn't goodbye forever, and of course we know it isn't, because by God, she'll eventually join the elite of the elite, the Fallen Angels. Now, we close out the, the issue, the scene, the series, the volume with Kitty telling Jubilee that she did a good job with the Loser Squad. And, well, that's it. Now, we do actually wrap up with a uh, a letters page of sorts here. It's basically just a uh, note from our creative team here, and I I have an affinity for this sort of thing. Just, uh, you know, I think a lot of people of my vintage are uh, really, really fond of the letters pages and how much fun those could be. And uh, Marvel Legacy, I think for a few of the Marvel Legacy books, they tried... They tried doing a uh, letters page initiative again, and it came across, um, well, half-assed, just like the rest of Marvel Legacy. I think they mostly used, like, the most um, positive and rah-rah social media posts from people saying just uh, how great everything was. So, yeah, not not the greatest, but uh, this isn't even that anyway. This is just a note from our creative teams here. And actually, I had read this uh, ahead of time. I think I mentioned this during the very first episode here. 
where I was talking about the fact that um, that these opening the opening issues of this volume didn't feel like it had any heart, right? It didn't feel like a passion project. Not that everything has to be a passion project, but it just felt very disconnected. It felt like the the creative team just didn't uh, didn't have any affinity for uh, these characters, and a lot of that. Uh, projection was informed by this little missive from uh, Christina Strain here where I'll just get into it. Uh, She says here that she was asked by an editor to come up with an idea for a teen X-Men book. And uh, that tells me right there that it wasn't her idea to do it, which, I mean, again, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. That's not a bad thing, but uh, it really doesn't speak to having an affinity or a passion for these characters. Um... Now, she gives her pitch as, quote, D-list teen mutants run amok. Okay. Also, reject ex-kids must learn how to deal with their feelings of inadequacy, self-doubt, disconnection, self-hate, trauma, and somehow come together as a family. So real fun stuff here, right? Real fun stuff. Uh, She claims that Generation X was very important to her as a teenager, which, again, I gotta say, does not come across on the page. Uh, It really did come across as they're having like a very superficial, at best, knowledge of the team ever having existed at all during the 90s. Though I could be, and probably am wrong. But uh, I'm not going to lie and say that's not how it read to me, because it certainly did here. Even the, uh, even the you know, the half-assed Marvel Legacy bits here where we got flashbacks were things that were on the covers of issues and stuff from the very first issue, which to me, I mean... That's not a deep cut. Not that, again, not that everything has to be. But if you're trying to show us that Jubilee, M, Chamber, and Husk have this long and storied history, then maybe, you know, just uh, maybe show it a little bit more. Don't don't give us, like, a little scene of uh, Chamber and Skin hitchhiking from, you know, Generation X number 18 that had nothing to do with anybody, <laughs> you know? Don't give us Jubilee and the Operation Zero Tolerance helmet. Because that's just something that was on the cover of an issue. It doesn't have anything to do with really anything. Uh, the first uh, the first issue where uh, I think Skin is playing like dominoes against somebody and he cheats. I don't know why we needed to see that scene here in the flashback. It all felt very very superficial. But uh, again, I, I might I might be uh, projecting here. Uh, now, she only mentions Generation X or comic books at all in that one sentence before spending the next five paragraphs thanking everyone that she worked with. So, there's that. Uh, there's a very brief note from Amilcar Pinna as well, and it's just generic thank yous. So, uh, nothing nothing about the book, nothing about the project, nothing about the characters. It's just like, hey, I worked with some awesome people. Thanks a lot. So, what do we have to say about this issue? And then we'll talk a little bit about the series overall. But for the issue... You know, it's uh, it's one of those good news, bad news situations, right? Because it feels like we took 12 issues to get to a point where we would care about these characters. And we leave them we leave them where there's more story to be told, I feel. Uh, I said I didn't want to look ahead to see if, you know, Ben Deeds and Nathaniel uh, Carver got, you know, scenes in any other books that I might have missed out on. And, uh, well, they really haven't. Um, I think they showed up in a couple issues of Iceman. And uh, they were apparently in the Marvel Voices uh, one-shot that we covered on the show a while back, but I don't remember seeing them there. So I'm guessing they were just uh, X-Men wallpaper for that uh, for those scenes. Which, if you ask me, really sucks, because we spent so much time establishing these two characters as uh, actual complex and realistic teenagers, right? We spent a lot of time learning about Nate's powers, about his history, his trauma... 
Benjamin trying to, uh, you know, outproduce what Cyclops thought he was going to produce, right? He tried to overcompensate, or just, I guess, plain compensate. He tried to make it so uh, whatever Cyclops said about him being ineffective and kind of worthless wasn't true. And so we, we built these characters up over these 12 issues here, and I think... And I mean, I've had problems with the way some of these stories have been told and some of the ways these scenes have been laid out. I always joke about how, you know, it looks like there's marks on a stage that they walk up to to, to deliver their lines here, like it's a production of, like, Our Town being done by a high school or something. But the characters were built well. The characters were built very, very well. And it's a shame that they didn't, uh, they didn't do anything with them. Let's shift over to Roxy here, who did a lot of maturing during this series as well, and, uh, well, um, you know, looking on the wiki here, because again, I, I was away for a little bit, and there's certainly reason to believe that I might have missed a story or two with uh, with these characters here, and uh, well, basically, yes, I've missed a story or two with uh, with Bling here. Um, I showed up an Iceman, um, a couple of issues of Old Man Logan, um, a Domino Annual, then Age of X-Men. And from Age of X-Men, uh, we don't see her again until she's a fallen angel for about five seconds, right? Uh, we spend four issues of Fallen Angels saying we need to put a team together. Then they put a team together with Husk and Bling, and they basically stand there, and then the series ends. So, uh, yeah, so it's a shame. <laughs> it really is a shame that that's another character that was actually handled very, very well in this series that they just didn't do a whole heck of a lot with afterwards. I'm pretty sure it's the same thing with Lynn. I, I know she does show up during uh, Age of X-Men, so I don't know if there's anything in between then and now. It's, I, I'm, I'm fine not seeing Lynn, though. I think she's uh, probably one of the more horrible characters to come out of the X-Offices in, in quite some time. Uh, iBoy, actually, uh, yeah, he's an X-Factor now for, I guess, for a little while longer until they can that book. And Quentin Quire, of course, is Quentin Quire. He was always too good for this book. So uh, it stands to reason that he will be, uh, you know, the, the big star coming out of it. I do feel like um, the characters were presented as being, I don't know, maybe a little bit more mature uh, during this Generation X run than they have been since. I feel like the characters are presented as being younger now. And, I mean, I could talk about Shogo, of course. Shogo actually speaks during this uh, this run, but in you know the current post-Hoxpox books here, uh, Shogo is, you know, an infant who doesn't speak, just gurgles, right? But, I mean, even let's even look at... Like Chamber and Husk and Jubilee, you know they were they were like the elders of this team, and now it seems like uh, they lost a bit of their uh, maturity, right? Uh, Chamber's just hanging out with the New Mutants whenever they remember that he's there. Jubilee's with Excalibur, but is coming across um, younger again. She feels like uh, she's been de-aged just a little bit, and Husk, well, just like Bling, was a fallen angel, so. Uh, Probably the less said about that, the better. Um, Monet, of course, uh, I guess she's going to be an X-Corp, which we have not yet read. Uh, so I guess she's an adult now. <laughs> it's just uh, these other characters who are being presented as adults during this Generation X run are, uh, I don't know, they're in a like a stunted Arrested Development. They're just uh, forever young, I suppose. Now, it's not fair to hold any of that against this volume here, which turned out to be far better than I ever thought it would be. Um... That's just uh, what happens with these books sometimes. They come, they go, and uh, whether or not we remember anything that happened to in, in them or we're supposed to remember anything that happened in them, that's really up to uh, the editors here. We did see the editor-in-chief changed 
just in this very issue, right? Alonzo was booted, Sobolski was brought in, and things would change from here. I, I doubt any of that really had, uh, you know, Generation X at the uh, forefront, but uh, hey, it was, a, it was a casualty all the same, right? So let's talk about the wrap-up here, right? Um, Nathaniel's powers work <laughs> very conveniently. Uh, Monet, her powers also work very conveniently. It was one of those things where you have to squint and turn your head sideways for it to work, but if you are able to contort your head in such a way, then yes, this was a creative way to uh, to reach the ending here, to, to separate Marius and Monet, to make, you know, to kind of, I guess, uh, take away uh, Monet's guilt, you know, as being controlled by uh, the evil M-plate here. It's all terribly convenient, but again, I mean, a book gets canceled, you gotta do what you can to make it fit, and uh, I think, you know, looking at it through that prism, they did as good a job as they could, and I, I think it worked. I think it worked here um, far better than it had any right to, just like the series as a whole. It worked a lot better than I think it had any right to coming into this series, and I've said it before. The first three or four issues of that, um, I felt like the, you know, the camera was zooming up on my face, and I was about to say, I just made a huge mistake by agreeing to, uh, to pursue this. And then we hit about issue probably six or so. I think it was the the auction issue where Quentin took uh, Benji and Nate to um, to that auction where they ran into Fenris. I think that's kind of where I turned on the book here, and I started to actually enjoy it. And actually not only enjoy it, but look forward to it. So uh, it took a little while to get things cooking, which is never a good thing, because... Like I always point out, these things are four bucks a pop. So if you're waiting six issues to just start to care about these characters, you're in at twenty-five bucks. You know that's a that's a big buy-in, right? But I think that's probably all I have to say about this uh, this issue and this series. I uh, look forward to hearing from you guys about uh, your thoughts on this series now that we're at the other end of it. I would also love to hear from you guys about what the next uh, Sunday special subject ought to be here. I've got a couple of things in mind here. I might put up a uh, poll. I always get nervous about putting up a poll because I'm always afraid it's just going to, like, sit there and no one's going to care <laughs> and no one will vote. So it'll just be me, like, hey, help me out. And then people are just like, no, nah, we don't care. So uh, once I figure out how to do that and uh, get over myself in the process, um, I will put a poll out here. I'm looking at two books here. Uh, one will be uh, Mr. and Mrs. X-Lapsed, wherein we look at the five-issue Rogan Gambit miniseries. We take a look at the wedding issue of, uh, of X-Men Gold, and then we hop into the 12-issue um, Mr. and Mrs. X series, which will make it a, uh, what about an 18-part story. So that's a, that's a long one. The other idea I had is... Uh, Generation X lapsed, where we're going to take a look at the Jean Grey series that ran, I think, 11 issues, plus there's a Generations um, special, the uh, Phoenix special, where uh, young Jean meets regular Jean, which I think fits in there between, like, the 6th and 7th issues, or the 5th and 6th issue, but it'll probably be a 12-episode uh, series there. So Mr. and Mrs. X lapsed and Generation X lapsed are the options for the next Sunday special. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. Is there one you'd rather hear? If Do you not care about either? <laughs> Whichever. Uh, let me know. Let me know. And you can do that a few different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sxmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can leave a message on the X-Labs hotline voicemail at 623-396-JERK. 
And you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearth.com for blog posts and show notes. Also, since we're done with this series, I will be uh, putting them all over on xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. All 12 episodes will be there, uh, hopefully easy to find um, and, and easy to uh, to go through. So those will be on xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com as you are listening to this episode right now. Uh, you can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and there'll probably be a poll over there about the uh, you know generation and the Mr. and Mrs. Uh, books there. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates sound. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, all that happy stuff. I would really, really appreciate it. It would mean a whole heck of a lot to me and the show. But that's all I got to say. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.